Conceived in Liberty, Volume 3, Advance to Revolution, 1760 through 1775, by Murray N. Rothbard. Part 1. The British Army and the Western Lands. Let us not, I beseech you, sir, deceive ourselves longer. Sir, we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned, we have remonstrated, we have supplicated, we have prostrated ourselves before the throne, and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted, our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult, our supplications have been disregarded and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain after these things may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. Patrick Henry Preface What? Another American history book? The reader may be pardoned for wondering about the point of another addition to the seemingly inexhaustible flow of books and text on American history. One problem, as pointed out in the bibliographical essay at the end of Volume 1, is that the survey studies of American history have squeezed out the actual stuff of history the narrative facts of the important events of the past. With the true data of history squeezed out, what we have left are compressed summaries and the historian's interpretations and judgments of the data. There is nothing wrong with the historians having such judgments. Indeed, without them, history would be a meaningless and giant almanac listing dates and events with no causal links. But without the narrative facts, the reader is deprived of the data from which he can himself judge the historian's interpretations and evolve interpretations of his own. A major point of this and the other volumes is to put back the historical narrative into American history. Facts, of course, must be selected and ordered in accordance with judgments of importance, and such judgments are necessarily tied into the historian's basic world outlook. My own basic perspective on the history of man and an off fortiori on the history of the United States is to place central importance on the great conflict, which is eternally waged between liberty and power. A conflict, by the way, which was seen with crystal clarity by the American revolutionaries of the 18th century. I see the liberty of the individual not only as a great moral good in itself, 
or with Lord Acton as the highest political good, but also as the necessary condition for the flowering of all the other goods that mankind cherishes, moral virtue, civilization, the arts and sciences, economic prosperity. Out of liberty, then, stem the glories of civilized life. But liberty has always been threatened by the encroachments of power, power which seeks to suppress, control, cripple, tax, and exploit the fruits of liberty and production. Power, then, the enemy of liberty, is consequently the enemy of all the other goods and fruits of civilization that mankind holds dear. And power is almost always centered in and focused on that central repository of power and violence, the state. With Albert J. Nock, the 20th century American political philosopher, I see history as centrally a race in conflict between social power, the productive consequence of voluntary interactions among men, and state power. In those eras of history when liberty, social power, has managed to race ahead of state power and control, the country and even mankind have flourished. In those eras when state power has managed to catch up with or surpass social power, mankind suffers and declines. For decades, American historians have quarreled about conflict or consensus as the guiding leitmotif of the American past. Clearly, I belong in the conflict rather than the consensus camp, with the proviso that I see the central conflict as not between classes, social or economic, or between ideologies, but between power and liberty, state and society. The social or ideological conflicts have been ancillary to the central one, which concerns who will control the state and what power will the state exercise over the citizenry. To take a common example from American history, there are, in my view, no inherent conflicts between merchants and farmers in the free market. On the contrary, in the market, the sphere of liberty, the interest of merchants and farmers are harmonious, with each buying and selling the products of the other. Conflicts arise only through the attempts of various groups of merchants or farmers to seize control over the machinery of government and to use it to privilege themselves at the expense of others. It is only through and by state action that class conflicts can ever arise. This volume deals with the stormy and fateful period from the end of the French and Indian War until the outbreak of war at Lexington and Concord in 1775, the period that incubated the American Revolution. With France driven from the North American continent and with the classical liberal Whigs out of power, the British government moved quickly to impose a system of imperial control over the fractious and hitherto virtually independent colonies. These 15 years are a record of mounting American resistance to such efforts by the mother country, a resistance that finally erupted into full-scale war at Lexington and Concord. 
Inspired by libertarian ideals, the colonists increasingly forged a unity that was to result in the first successful national revolution against Western imperialism in the modern world. Although other largely unrelated armed rebellions also erupted in this period in North Carolina, South Carolina, New York, and Vermont, these years are essentially the story of the development of the American Revolution up to the outbreak of actual armed conflict. My intellectual debts for this volume are simply too numerous to mention, especially since an historian must bring to bear not only his own discipline, but also his knowledge of economics, of political philosophy, and of mankind in general. Here I would just like to mention, for his methodology of history, Ludwig von Mises, especially his much-neglected volume, Theory and History, and Lord Acton, for his emphasis on the grievously overlooked moral dimension. For his political philosophy and general outlook on American history, Albert J. Nock, particularly his Our Enemy the State. As for my personal debts, I am happy to be more specific. This series of volumes would never have been attempted, much less seen the light of day, without the inspiration, encouragement, and support provided by Kenneth S. Templeton, Jr., now of the Institute for Humane Studies, Menlo Park, California. I hope that he won't be overly disappointed with these volumes. I am grateful to the Foundation for Foreign Affairs Chicago for enabling me to work full-time on the volumes and to Dr. David S. Collier of the Foundation for his help and efficient administration. Others who have helped with ideas and aid in various stages of the manuscript are Charles G. Koch and George Pearson of Wichita, Kansas, and Robert D. Kephart of Libertarian Review, Washington, D.C. To my first mentor in the field of American history, Joseph Dorfman, now Professor Emeritus at Columbia University, I owe in particular the rigorous training that is typical of that keen and thorough scholar. The last chapter in this volume was included at the suggestion of Roy A. Childs, Jr. of New York City. But my greatest debt is to Leonard Pelligio of SONY, Old Westbury, whose truly phenomenal breadth of knowledge and insight into numerous fields and areas of history are an inspiration to all who know him. Ligio's help was indispensable in the writing of this volume, in particular his knowledge of the European background. Over the years in which this manuscript took shape, I was fortunate in having several congenial typists, in particular Willette Murphy Klausner of Los Angeles, and the now distinguished intellectual historian and social philosopher Dr. Ronald Hamowy of the University of Alberta. I would particularly like to thank Louise Williams of New York City for her heroic service of typing the entire manuscript in its final form. The responsibility for the final product is, of course, wholly my own. Marianne Rothbard, February 1976 Volume 3, Chapter 1, The Stage is Set 
By 1760, the great French and Indian War in America between Britain and France was over, with Britain the absolute master of Canada and of all the land east of the Mississippi. The peace treaty of 1763 between the belligerents in the World War, Britain, France, and Spain, known in Europe as the Seven Years' War, completed the ouster of France from the North American continent. For Spain acquired France's domain in Louisiana, west of the Mississippi, in compensation for Britain's acquisition of Florida from Spain. The mighty British Empire now stood master of all it surveyed, and no place more so than in North America. Furthermore, the war had driven from power the peaceful Pelhamite Whigs, led by the Duke of Newcastle, who along with his brother Henry Pelham and the previously ousted Robert Walpole, had managed to keep England on a course of minimal government and international peace and of salutary neglect of the American colonies. These men had accomplished this feat against the reluctant opposition of Crown and Parliament. Salutary neglect had meant the conscience thwarting of Britain's grand mercantilist design for controlling and restricting American commerce and industry for the benefit of British merchants and manufacturers. Furthermore, the Walpole-Newcastle policy of laissez-faire toward the colonies had allowed the representative colonial assemblies to wrest effective power from royally appointed governors by wielding the power of the purse over colonial taxes and appropriations, notably including the governor's own salaries. Thus, from 1720 through the 1750s, the American colonies were virtually de facto independent of British imperial control, an independence bolstered by libertarian spirit and ideology eagerly imbibed from the radical libertarian English writers and journalists of the period. The hostility of these writers to government in general and to the existing English government in particular, especially to its designs for power, keenly alerted the American colonists to the slightest signs of aggression by the mother country against their liberties. For its part, the British government, seemingly all-powerful, was now freed both of the distractions of a two-decades-long conflict with France and of the salutary neglect policies of the Pelhamite Whigs. The British were now free to bring the fractious American colonists to heel, to impose a comprehensive system of imperial British political and mercantilist control over the colonies. To her surprise, the mother country was to find that the Americans would not sit still while she imposed her grand design that would unleash her imperial power. Volume 3, Chapter 2 The Ohio Lands, Pontiac's Rebellion The first and immediate problem the British faced was what to do with the Ohio Lands, which had been militarily conquered from the French by 1759. 
Since the European war with France was not to be ended for four more years, the Ohio lands would continue, at least temporarily, from 1759 on under British military occupation. First to swing into action with a claim to Ohio lands was the Ohio Company. In 1749, the Ohio Company, a Virginia company headed by the president of the royally appointed Virginia Council, Thomas Lee, and including the Lee family, the Washington family, and George Mason, induced the Crown to direct Virginia to grant the company 200,000 acres of French-held land at the strategic forks of the Ohio River. Soon, Robert Dinwiddie, royal governor of Virginia from 1751 to 1758, his patron, the powerful imperialist, the Duke of Bedford, and the powerful Mercer and Carter families were added to the Ohio Company. Now, with Britain in full military control of the Ohio lands, the Ohio Company naturally swung into action, putting pressure on the crown and the military for acknowledgement of its claim. During 1760, officials of the company offered Colonel Henry Bouquet, commandant of Fort Pitt, a share in the company. The Ohio Company, however, met formidable resistance among British officialdom. The new governor of Virginia, Francis Fouquier, was trenchantly opposed to the Ohio Company and to land grants in general. Furthermore, the British militia dug in for a lengthy stay and constructed many more forts in the Ohio Valley. Finally, the Earl of Egremont, in November 1761, officially proclaimed a British policy of prohibiting all grants to settlements upon Indian lands, thus blocking the Ohio Company or any other settlement. As soon as the fighting ended in 1760, General Geoffrey Amherst, the British commander, indulged his absolute contempt and hatred for the Indians. The substantial supply of presents that the British had been wont to grant the Indians was suddenly cut off now that France was beaten. Moreover, Amherst arbitrarily decreed severe restrictions on the amount of ammunition that could be traded or given to the Indians. With the supply of ammunition, so necessary to their livelihood of hunting, suddenly cut off, the Indians were naturally embittered against the English. When the Indians protested, Amherst savagely told them, through intermediaries, that should they cause any trouble... They must not only expect the severest retaliation, but an entire destruction of all their nations, for I am firmly resolved, whenever they give me an occasion, to extirpate them root and branch. As a typical hardliner, Amherst scoffed at the suggestion that the Indians might be either capable of causing or courageous enough to create any real mischief. He was therefore heedless of repeated warnings of probable Indian uprising upon the cutting off of their ammunition. In addition to cutting off the Indians' supply of ammunition, Amherst ruthlessly blocked their supply of rum. Not only did he prohibit any sale of rum to the natives, 
but he also ordered all trading to be confined to the British forts in order to enforce the ban. Also aggravating Indian resentment was the personal arrogance of the British toward them, a striking contrast to the previous friendliness and camaraderie of the French. The Indians were expected to conduct business at the forts and then leave. The English soldiers were forbidden to fraternize with them. Another Indian grievance was Amherst's arrogant disregard of English treaties with the Western Indians and of the Crown's own pronouncements. By permitting white settlement and by giving Seneca Indian lands at Niagara Falls to some of Amherst's officers. The gifts were, of course, made without bothering to purchase the land from the tribes. Alarmed by the threat to their lands, the Indians were further disturbed by the rapid British construction of new forts, especially the one at Sandusky Bay on the southwest shore of Lake Erie. Amherst grew particularly cocky from the ruthless British suppression during 1761 of a Cherokee uprising in South Carolina. The Western Indians were driven to a point of desperation by the news in early 1763 that their friends, the French, had ceded the whole of America east of the Mississippi to the hated British. Jeffrey Amherst simply shrugged off the problem of disturbed Indians. Whatever idle notions they may entertain in regard to the sessions can be of very little consequence. But General Amherst was soon to find out that the consequences were great indeed, for on May 7 the Indians launched a general uprising dedicated to driving the hated British out of all lands west of the Appalachians. Headed by the great Ottawa chief Pontiac, the Pontiac Rebellion began with the massacre of a band of British soldiers near Detroit, followed by the rapid conquest of all the forts in the northern Ohio Valley, including Fort Sandusky and Fort Miami's, now Fort Wayne, Indiana, with the exception of the great fort of Detroit. This conquest was completed by the beginning of June 1763 and included the destruction of a troop sent to relieve Detroit from Indian siege. Hearing the great news of victory, the Indians further east joined the rebellion. In the Allegheny region, Forts Leboeuf, Prescott Isle, and Venango were quickly captured by Senecas and Hurons, and Delawares and Shawnees had even besieged Fort Pitt by the end of June. General Hamhurst perfectly exemplified the classical hardliner, the eternally tough enemy of appeasement. Like all hardliners, he was ignorant of the fears, aims, or motivations of those he designated as the enemy. He knew only that they were evil and contemptible, men easily cowed by the equivalent of a whiff of grape. Convinced that they would not dare to resist stern and harsh measures, Amherst found, as hardliners invariably do, that repression only provoked resistance, and suddenly the despised enemy was striking and winning on many fronts. 
One would think that the hardliner, seeing the abject failure of his policy, seeing his toughness only provoke a conflict, would have the grace to admit his error and retire from the scene. But the hardliner has never done so. Instead, he takes the outbreak as merely an indication that only extermination can be the deserts of such a diabolical enemy. To Amherst, negotiations for peace became more traitorous than ever. General Amherst reacted to the Indian uprising as might be expected. At first, and for quite a while, he refused to believe that near savages could have the gall to attack, much less endanger post where British soldiers were stationed. When he finally realized the scope of the war, he could only express amazement. He could not believe that his own actions might have provoked the war. The enemy must be irrational. It is difficult, my lord, he wrote to the British Secretary of State, to account any causes that can have induced these barbarians to this perfidious attempt. Driven into frenzy, Amherst vowed, as is typical of the hardliner, ruthless extermination of the enemy. He set upon all-out punishment and frantically ordered his commanders to take no prisoners. As he ordered one troop, the Indians were to be treated not as a generous enemy, but as the vilest race of beings that ever infested the earth and whose riddance from it must be esteemed a meritorious act for the good of mankind. You will therefore take no prisoners, but put to death all that fall into your hands. If the Indians were truly subhuman, then any means for their extermination was proper. Accordingly, Amherst, in early July, directed his chief aide, Colonel Henry Bouquet, a Swiss mercenary, to spread smallpox among the Indians. Colonel Bouquet, an apt pupil, answered that he would send blankets infected with smallpox as gifts to the Indians. Delighted, Amherst replied that you will do well to try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try every other method that can serve to extirpate this execrable race. One other method was hunting the Indian vermin down with dogs, but this proved impracticable because of the scarcity of good English hunting dogs in the colonies. Thus Pontiac's rebellion gave rise to one of the great advances of the art of modern war, germ warfare. As in the case of other important inventions in history, other great minds were thinking along the same lines, even as General Amherst was adumbrating the concept of germ warfare, his commandant at Fort Pitt had been putting it into practice. Captain Simeon Ecuere, another Swiss mercenary, generously gave two smallpox-infected blankets to the Delaware Indians. The new theory bore fruit, and soon smallpox raged among the Delawares and the Shawnees, and seriously reduced the fighting spirit of the eastern Ohio tribes. Germ warfare was not decisive, however, 
The summer of 1763 found all the Ohio country in the hands of the Indians, except for the besieged forts of Pitt and Detroit. The Indians proceeded to ravage the frontier settlements of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. By the end of the year, over a thousand whites had been killed or captured. Unfortunately for the Indians, neither the more northerly nor the southern Indians revolted. In New York, the Iroquois, except for the Senecas, remained pro-British. To the south, the Cherokees were still cowed by the suppression two years earlier, and by the lavish presents given them at a great conference in Augusta arranged by Lord Egremont. The turning points of the war were Colonel Bouquet's ability to relieve Fort Pitt after his victory at Bushy Run in early August and Fort Detroit's ability to withstand Pontiac's siege. Pontiac had always clung to the hope that the beloved French, still occupying Louisiana and the Illinois country, would come to his aid and drive out the English once again. But in October, the French commander in Illinois wrote to Pontiac and told him the facts of life. The French had made peace and were indeed leaving, and the Indians had better make peace themselves. His heart no longer in the war, Pontiac offered peace, and the offer was accepted by the commandant of Detroit. The Indians were ready to quit and make peace. The big question now was the attitude of the British Army. Would it make peace calmly and bloodlessly? Or would it insist on bloody vengeance to be wreaked upon guilty and innocent Indians alike in the name of punishment? Amherst, no longer a hero, had been happy to hurry back to England in October, leaving General Thomas Gage with the task of crushing the Indians' insurrection and punishing those tribes who have so ungratefully attacked their benefactors. Gage's instincts were certainly a hard line, but he soon realized that a policy of suppressing the Western Indians would at least drive them west of the Mississippi into Louisiana and thus end the lucrative British beaver trade with them. The Indians to the east, however, had no such escape route, so Gage sent out two punitive expeditions in the summer and fall of 1764. But Colonel John Bradstreet, leaving Fort Niagara in the summer with a formidable force, had either the wisdom or the naivete to circumvent Gage's rather vague orders and to conclude a just and easy peace with the Shawnees and the Delawares, insisting only on the Indians' surrender of all their English prisoners. Gage and Bouquet were furious at this failure to wreak vengeance to punish these infamous murders by the Indians. Gage refused to ratify the peace and ordered an attack on the Indians, who at the same time had failed to surrender the white prisoners. Colonel Bouquet was now sent out in the fall of 1764 from Fort Pitt with orders to pillage and kill all the Shawnees and Delawares in Ohio that they could find and to burn all their villages. He was then to force the Indians not only to surrender prisoners, but also to deliver up the murderers of white traders, to pay a high indemnity to the traders, 
and to renounce all land east of the Ohio River. Bouquet, however, found out that the Indians had been preparing to surrender their prisoners to Bradstreet, and, out in the field, even the tough Bouquet agreed to forego punishment for the prompt surrender of captives. By mid-November, with Gage giving him carte blanche, Bouquet had concluded peace with the Delawares and Shawnees in return for the prompt return of white prisoners. Unfortunately, the British insisted on forced repatriation, including as prisoners all whites who had grown to prefer Indian life and half-breed children born in the Indian camps. At any rate, rationality triumphed over repression, and a formal and harmonious peace was concluded with Delawares and Shawnees in the spring of 1765. The only imposed indemnity was to be land-granted as compensation to the English traders. Volume 3, Chapter 3, The Ohio Lands, The Proclamation Line of 1763 With the French and Indian War completely over, and the northern American continent east of the Mississippi subdued by 1763, the English government faced more insistently the problem of what to do with the western lands. Until now, or at least until the temporary edict of 1761, virgin land had been open to settlement on various terms and in various relationships to the Indian tribes. But now the British government began to prepare what would be a rude shock to the American colonist. On June 8, 1763, Lord Shelburne, powerful protege of the Earl of Butte and the Duke of Bedford, and president of the Board of Trade, recommended that the newly conquered land be divided into three new colonies, East Florida, West Florida, and Canada. Simultaneously, the vast remaining lands of the Ohio and Mississippi Valleys were to be reserved completely to the Indians and barred totally from white settlement. Rule over the West was to continue indefinitely in the hands of the British Army. It is incorrect to imply, as many historians have done, that this measure was designed merely to quiet the Indians temporarily in the face of Pontiac's rebellion. The Board of Trade's proposal was made months before the Indian rebellion had become known in England. To be sure, the rebellion hastened the English decision, and the Board now urged an immediate proclamation reserving to the Indians all territory west of the Appalachians and ousting all white settlers from the western lands. The King issued a proclamation to this effect on October 7. It established East Florida westward to the Apalachicola River, West Florida in the southwest from the Apalachicola to the Mississippi, and Quebec in what was formerly French Canada. Cape Breton Island was added to Nova Scotia and the region south of the Altamaha River to Georgia. Most important, the proclamation barred any white settlement, present or future, 
in the lands west of the Appalachians and placed its government under the military commander-in-chief. Even voluntary purchase of land from the Indians was outlawed. The proclamation also decreed that Indian lands within the bounds of the seaboard colonies must be voluntarily purchased from the Indians in public transactions. What was the reason for this astounding British policy, which stunned and deeply angered the American colonist? We have seen one grave flaw in the theory that this was only a temporary way to appease the rebellious Indians. Another flaw is that the proclamation line continued in force long after Pontiac's rebellion had been quelled. The Board of Trade later proclaimed its aim to be the altruistic one of protecting and safeguarding the Indians, and many historians have naively fallen for this myth. But surely the contemptuous attitude of the British then and in the past toward the Indians is enough to discredit the idea of a sudden burst of enlightened altruism toward the red man? Far more convincing are two motives attributed to the crown, both economic. A. A general desire to keep the Americans confined to the seaboard to continue to provide markets for English manufacturers. And B. A bowing to the pressure of the powerful English fur lobby, which was desirous of keeping the West free of settlers and therefore confined to the fur trade. On the first point, the British were apprehensive that Americans in the interior would begin to make their own clothes and other goods in their households rather than buy English textiles, so that valuable English markets would be lost. This motive for outlawing further settlement was privately admitted by various key British officials, including John Pownall, Secretary of the Board of Trade. For its part, the fur lobby had powerful connections in the English government. Particularly important for the American fur trade was David Franks of Philadelphia, who was connected with John Watts and James DeLancey in the Albany fur trade. The crucial London connection of Franks and Watts was David's brother, Moses Franks, a powerful recipient of government contracts in Largesse. There was some evidence that Lord Egremont, who issued the original prohibition on settling the western lands in 1761, was heavily involved financially with Moses Franks. A memorandum by Lord Shelburne's secretary, Maurice Morgan, declared the need to confine colonists to the eastern seaboard in order to preserve the West as a source of furs and to keep it as open and wild as possible for the purposes of hunting. Thus the fur lobby was able to triumph over the interest of the settlers, as well as over the separate interest of the various speculative land companies now dismayed to find themselves deprived of all the fruits of victory of a war they had helped to foment. Particularly distressed was the Mississippi Company, formed by the Washingtons, the Lees, and other leading Virginians of the old Ohio Company, who had petitioned the Crown for an enormous grant of land in the Mississippi and Ohio Valleys. 
Individual settlers, however, began steadily to defy crown policy and quietly moved to settle west of the proclamation line. The British military succeeded in obtaining orders from Pennsylvania and Virginia to desist from settlement, but these laws and edicts could not be enforced. If the speculators in western lands were thwarted by the proclamation line, the reverse was true for speculators in lands east of the Appalachians, which were now the only lands open to new settlement. A boom occurred in Nova Scotia on lands seized from the unfortunate Acadians. Benjamin Franklin picked up 100,000 acres there, in Pennsylvania and in Florida. Indeed, many highly important interests in England had speculated heavily in Florida lands, interests that included the Prime Minister George Grenville himself, the Earl of Egremont, Earl Temple, Charles Townsend, Henry Fox, and Sir Geoffrey Amherst. This speculation undoubtedly strengthened their resolve during the war to seize North America rather than the Sugar Islands of the West Indies. Volume 3, Chapter 4, The British Army and the Grand Design The British rulers, during and immediately after the French and Indian War, confronted the American colonies for the first time in four decades free of the restraints imposed by the liberal Whigs within the government. The Whigs were at last out of power, and hence the remaining imperial and Tory factions were able to execute a grand design for cracking down on the American colonies. Spurred by the wise Whig, Walpole, Newcastle, Pelham policy of salutary neglect, and by the right to levy its own taxes, America had been allowed to flourish with a good measure of independence. The extent of salutary neglect is indicated by the complete absence of condemnation proceedings in the Massachusetts Admiralty Court between 1745 and spring 1760, and of enforcement against colonial smuggling between 1743 and mid-1764. Vital checks had been maintained upon British imperial power. Not only were trade restrictions unenforced and taxation levied only by consent of the colonial assemblies, but funds for the colonial executives were supplied only by the assemblies and thus subject to their power. Moreover, virtually no British troops had been stationed in America in peacetime. Troops had been largely confined to colonial militia, raised and paid by the colonial legislatures themselves. The imperial grand design, hatched during the French and Indian War and put into effect as soon as it ended, was a comprehensive, many-sided move to subject America to the British power. The vast new domains captured from France and Spain were to be occupied and administered as befitted a mighty imperial power. The laxity of salutary neglect was to be no more. All the mercantilist laws were to be strengthened and, above all, vigorously enforced. The British army was to overawe the unruly colonials by being stationed in America in force.
The British army was to keep the French suppressed, rule the newly won Western lands, and help a network of royal bureaucrats enforce mercantilist restrictions. To pay for all this, the British rulers hit upon a cunning expedient. The Americans themselves were to be taxed for that purpose. Thus, the fractious Americans were to be forced to pay for their own suffering. To supply the funds to finance soldiers and customs agents who would enforce restrictions and taxes upon them, and a vast increase in the royal bureaucracy and the peacetime military would thus be established without imposing new levies on the already war-burdened English taxpayer. The Americans would thus be caught in a vicious circle of tyranny. The British army was to be stationed in America. Largely to enforce unwelcome regulations and taxes upon them, while the major excuse for the unpopular taxes was to pay for the self-same army. It was a clever scheme for the English imperial power, but the American colonists were not as enchanted with the new dispensation. Somehow, the British argument. That it was no more than justice for Americans to support the army that liberated them from the French threat, failed to impress the Americans. On the contrary, Americans, especially after the first phase of the war for the Ohio Valley, tended to regard the French and Indian War as a war for Britain and not for themselves. The crushing of Canada wasted American resources. Oppressed and conscripted Americans, and wrecked their trade with Canada, all to redound to British imperial glory and the profits of London merchants. Furthermore, Americans reasoned that with the French conquered and the Indians crushed, the post-war need for a British standing army was far less, not greater than before. They could only regard the large new standing army of British regulars as a permanent instrument of oppression, and the events of the Pontiac Rebellion and the Proclamation Line only convinced the Americans of one the ineptitude of the British troops as protectors, and two, the use of the army to prohibit American settlement of the tempting virgin lands of the Ohio Valley. The imperial grand design had been formulated as early as the wartime Pitt administration. Indeed, earlier, as can be seen from the truly ominous dispatch of Massachusetts London agent Thomas Bolin in 1756, that the British intended to govern America as they governed Ireland, specifically to keep a standing army there and to demand the right of prior approval. Of the acts of colonial assemblies. During the same year, Lord Loudon wrote from New York, "Governors here are ciphers. Their predecessors sold the whole of the king's prerogative to get their salaries, and till you find a fund independent of the province to pay the governors and new model the government, you can do nothing with the provinces." For Pitt. Conquest and retention of North America were to be logically accompanied by the imposition of imperial power, the ending of salutary neglect, and the stationing of an army in America. Bute, Bedford, and Grenville all had similar designs, and they envisioned Benjamin Franklin as the head of a new overall central government in America.
Pitt ordered enforcement of the Trade Acts in 1760, and when Newcastle resigned in mid-1761, the latter wisely wrote that, I shall certainly in and out of office oppose the continuation of the militia in any shape, at least after the war is ended. I shall oppose any alteration that may be proposed of received usage and practice with regard to our settlements in America. Presumably, Newcastle was referring to salutary neglect. During the regime of Lord Bute, the imperial design made further strides. Bute and Parliament made a preliminary decision for a large peacetime standing army in America, which Bute planned to force the colonies to support. A new Customs Act pushed by Grenville as First Lord of the Admiralty encouraged British sailors to harass smuggling by promising them shares of the booty from condemned vessels. The final decision to station troops in America after the war was made by the imperialist Earl of Egremont, brother-in-law of George Grenville and Secretary of State for the Southern Department, and by Wellbore Ellis, Secretary of War and a follower of Henry Fox. Egremont and Ellis decided in December 1762 that 12,000 troops would be stationed in America as a regular standing army and that the Americans would be forced to pay for its support. The decision was based on the model of Ireland, where the Irish Parliament had been compelled by England to pay for the Redcoat Army that kept Ireland in subjection. As liberals and opponents of strong imperial and royal power, Newcastle and the Whigs strongly opposed the large army. The crucial debate on the scheme took place in March 1763, when the army budget was submitted to Parliament, somewhat reduced to appease the instinctively liberal country gentry who tended to oppose expansion of government power and of the budget. The Whigs argued for a huge slash in the army budget and for withdrawal of all troops from America. They thereby echoed American sentiment. The French were now conquered and the Indians controllable by the colonists themselves. Newcastle charged that such an extensive plan of power and military influence was never thought of before in this country. But the edge of Whig opposition was blunted, as so many times before, by the disruptive influence of Pitt, a maverick out of power whom the Whigs were anxious to bring into unified opposition against the ministry. Pitt, as usual the ultra-militarist and warmonger, attacked the government for not providing a bigger American army. Pitt called for bigger and better military budgets, attacked the permanent disarmament desired by Walpole and Newcastle, and looked forward with relish to imminent renewal of war with France, a country displaying the ill grace to continue in existence. As a partial and immediate means to pay for this extra expense, Butte introduced a domestic excise tax on cider, along with his army budget. The cider tax extended the enforcement of the excise from retail shops to private English homes. Cider was produced by the West Country, the great center of an instinctively liberal country gentry. Here was an issue of basic English 
liberties, both personal and economic, on which the Whigs could unite with the country gentry in powerful opposition. William Pitt, though happy enough when in power to impose an excise on beer and general warrants against dissenters, was now willing to join with the London merchants, Earl Temple, the Whigs, and the West Country gentry in bitter opposition to the tax on cider. The City of London was vehement in opposition, and the Lord Mayor, the Aldermen, and the Common Council of London vigorously and repeatedly instructed their representatives in Parliament to oppose the tax. This pressure was characterized by a contemporary observer as a proceeding which, though by no means illegal or blamable, has no precedent that we can recollect. The tax on cider was able to pass in Parliament despite the opposing coalition, but its lasting significance for America was the depth of the popular and ideological opposition that it engendered in England. Leading the opposition was John Wilkes' North Britain, which distributed widely and popularized the great slogan, Liberty, Property, and No Excise. Throughout the West Country, the people rose in virtual rebellion, demonstrating, marching, resisting, and setting a welcome and instructive example eagerly observed by American colonists. Church bells were stilled. Thousands marched in bereavement, bearing symbols of freedom and mourning. And Lord Bute, throughout the West Country, was hung in effigy. Large bonfires consumed effigies of Butte, and freeholder meetings of protest were held in towns and counties. Above all, the people refused to pay the tax and set upon the hated tax collectors. The government proceeded to send an army to the West Country to subdue the people, but it was finally forced to repeal the provocative tax two years later. With the West Country in virtual rebellion, Lord Bute was forced to resign as Prime Minister at the beginning of April 1763. Bute was succeeded by George Grenville. Grenville's brother-in-law, the Earl of Egremont, continued as Secretary of State, and Charles Jenkinson, Secretary to Lord Bute. The Earl of Halifax and the Earl of Shelburne took prominent roles in the new administration, the last as president of the Board of Trade. The Crown did no better with the crucial part of the financing of the troops, the plan to tax the colonies. For the first time, a tax was to be imposed on the colonists in violation of the ancient English principle of taxation only when approved by representatives of the public. Spark plug of the plan was Charles Townsend, a highly conservative Whig who had been Secretary of War during 1761-62. In February 1763, Townsend was rewarded by the Crown for deserting the opposition Pelham Innocence and Rockingham's Whig Club, receiving appointment as President of the Board of Trade. Inspired by the devotion to royal prerogative by Halifax and Grenville, Townsend introduced a bill to tax the colonies. But even the king attacked it as hasty and premature, and Parliament rejected the plan at the end of March. 
More important, in early March, the Crown, in a masterful piece of tactical management, drove the plan to station troops in America through Parliament with a minimum of opposition. The Crown had managed to defuse the opposition by playing off the Newcastle Whigs against Pitt, his two major groups of opponents, and by confusing the potentially troublesome West Country gentry. Newcastle was muted by a threatened parliamentary inquiry into the financial dealings of his previous administration, and the Crown counted correctly on William Pitt's devotion to militarism to win Pitt's charismatic support. Despite the sometimes vehement opposition, the Crown managed to drive through Parliament the principle of a standing army in America, as well as a domestic tax on cider in partial payment thereof. The British decided to station approximately 8,000 troops permanently in North America. The disposition of these troops refutes the thesis of British apologists that the huge increase in the post-war army was needed to keep down the western Indians and to man the forts of the newly conquered interior. Of the existing force in America, the British deliberately dissolved every one of the units of rangers and others established during the war as specialists in Indian fighting. Rangers, but not forts, were useful in protecting settlers from Indians. There were many indications that the British intended to use their army to keep the American colonists in line and to enforce restrictions and taxes there. Maurice Morgan, secretary to Lord Shelburne, along with an associate, wrote during 1763, I have no idea that we want military establishments against the Indians, and no danger is to be apprehended from the Canadians. On the other hand, troops were needed in order to awe the British colonies. The lines of forts so much talked of before the war will restrain the colonies at present as well as formerly. The pretenses for this regulation must be the keeping of the Indians in subjection, Another paper by Morgan succinctly summarized the grand design that the military force on that continent be increased so that with the aid of a naval force the whole of the provinces shall be surrounded that under pretense of regulating the Indian trade a line be suddenly drawn on the back of the provinces in the country beyond that line thrown under the dominion of the Indians the provinces being now surrounded by an army, a navy, and by hostile tribes of Indians, it may be time to exact a due obedience to the just and equitable regulations of a British parliament. The use of the army to enforce trade restrictions and taxes in America was particularly stressed by the powerful Lord Halifax, who, after the death of Egremont in August 1763 had become Secretary of State for both departments. It did not take the American colonists long to see what was going on. Colonel Eliphalet Dyer, a member of the Council of Connecticut and the leading lawyer of Eastern Connecticut, wrote from London in the spring of 1764 that Parliament 
seems determined to fix upon us a large number of regular troops under pretense for our defenses, with the revenues to be raised from the colonies to support them. Rather than for defense, the army was designed as a rod in check over us. And a leading young lawyer, John Dickinson of Philadelphia, condemned the formidable force established in the midst of peace to bleed America into obedience. Enthusiasm for the British troops among the colonists was hardly strengthened by an incident between General Amherst and the Massachusetts recruits stationed in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The troops' terms of enlistment were up on May 1, 1763. Yet the British refused to discharge them. One refusal begat another, and finally the troops refused to serve any longer. The British retaliated by cutting off all provisions to the colonial troops, who were thus forced to buy their own supplies. General Amherst was responsible for forcing the troops to stay, in violation of the Massachusetts Charter, which required consent of the general court before Massachusetts troops could be forced to serve outside the colony. Since the beginning of the French and Indian War, there had been an appointed commander-in-chief of the British Armed Forces in America, and now, in mid-1763, the Board of Trade recommended that the commander-in-chief also be made military governor of the Western Territory. The commander, who after 1763 was General Thomas Gage, was also in charge of Western Indian Affairs. To Newcastle, this military regime portended an upheaval in the colonies, which would expect a similar fate to descend upon them. We have seen that Townsend's premature bill for taxing the colonies was defeated, but the plans continued brewing in the upper echelons of the British government. English taxation of the colonies to raise revenue had been suggested by royal officials in America for half a century, but had never been adopted during the Whig regime. The proponents had largely been governors anxious to secure their salaries independently of colonial assemblies, or royal officials asking for troops to enforce customs or other regulations. The latter included Colonel Robert Quarry, Chief Customs Officer, and Colonel David Dunbar, Surveyor General of the King's Woods. Among the governors, the arch-imperialist William Shirley and Robert Dinwiddie of Virginia were the most insistent. During the war, their voices were joined by such military commanders as General Braddock and Lord Loudoun. In England, during the French and Indian War, Lord Halifax was an early champion of parliamentary taxation of the colonies, and he was quickly joined by Charles Townsend. Halifax suggested a stamp tax, but the most influential and fateful plan for a stamp tax was proposed in 1761 to Lord Bute by the royal bureaucrat Henry McCullough. So long as the great Newcastle remained as prime minister, there was no chance of approving taxation of America without its consent. 
But Newcastle's fall completely turned the tables, and Butte, Halifax, and Townsend began to drive toward English taxation of the American colonies. Henry McCullough, one of the chief theoreticians of a stamp tax, was a London merchant who, for thirty years, had been a Crown official and a power in North Carolina. He tried to impose quit rent payments on the reluctant colonists. And participated in large-scale land grants and speculation in land in North Carolina and across the mountains. His transmontane land speculation led him to espouse the British acquisition of eastern Louisiana from the French. In the autumn of 1763, McCullough, along with a colleague, was assigned to write a draft for a stamp tax on the North American colonies. Of the two drafts, McCullough's was the most daring, calling for a broad stamp tax that would finance not only the cost of colonial troops, but also an entire royal civil bureaucracy in America. McCullough's draft was rejected, however, and the competing bill, which confined the stamp money to financing the standing army. Was selected by the Crown at the end of 1763. The draft of the bill was completed the following spring. Caution, however, dictated postponement of the stamp plan for another year. Part two: Enforcement of Mercantilism, Volume Three, Chapter Five: Writs of Assistance in Massachusetts. Having secured its army in America. The Grenville administration proceeded to a comprehensive plan of enforcing its mercantilist restrictions and imposing its imperial power. The various regulations, so long a dead letter because of the policy of salutary neglect, were now to be imposed in all their rigor. The Navigation Act, the Wool Act, the Hat Act. The Sailcloth Act, the Iron Act, the White Pine Act, the particularly crippling Molasses Act—all were now to be enforced, and some to be strengthened and updated. Actually, the first crisis of tightened enforcement had begun earlier during the French and Indian War. The Crown was frantically trying to stamp out the flourishing illegal commerce with the French and Spanish West Indies. To this end, the government ordered the customs officers in Massachusetts to use general writs of assistance. That terrible, menacing monster, as John Adams labeled it, the writs of assistance authorized customs officers to break into and enter warehouses, stores, and even private homes to search for smuggled goods. Without having to present any grounds for being reasonably suspecting contraband to be there, in short, warrants could be general rather than specific, and a virtual carte blanche was given to the customs officers, who needed to be accompanied only by a local constable, to invade private property at will. In contrast, special writs of assistance. As in common law or in present-day search warrants, required specific evidence to be presented to a judge before the writs could be issued. 
The Massachusetts merchants, the citizens most harassed by these writs, did not protest the original writs issued from 1756 on, but they became alarmed by the petition of customs officers to renew the writs after the death of George II in October 1760. Under British law, these general writs automatically expired six months after the death of a king. A renewal would continue writs of assistance long past the end of the war and throughout the reign of the new king. Besides, the end of the war was already clearly on the horizon. The threat to liberty and property was evidently serious, and 63 Boston merchants banded together to oppose renewal of general writs. The merchants retained as their lawyers Oxenbridge Thatcher and James Otis, Jr., who was in this capacity to assume the leadership of the new Popular Party, or Smuggler's Party, in the colony. It was Otis who, according to the charge of the Tories, first broke down the barriers of government to let in the hydra of rebellion. To take up the cause, Otis resigned a lucrative post as the King's Advocate General of the Boston Vice Admiralty Court, where he had been engaged in prosecuting such merchants. In hearings before the Massachusetts Superior Court in February 1761, Otis soared beyond narrow legalisms to base his opposition on unconstitutionality and on the right of the courts to supersede. An unconstitutional act of Parliament, and beyond even that, to base his opposition to general writs on the law of man's nature. Otis based his ultimate argument on the great early 17th century liberal Chief Justice Coke's declaration, even then falling into disuse under the pressure of Tory statism, that when an act of Parliament is against common right and reason. The common law will control it, and adjudge such act to be void. As Otis declared, an act against the Constitution is void, an act against natural equity is void, and if an act of Parliament should be made, it would be void. Although the majority of judges of the Superior Court agreed with Otis and stood ready to prohibit general writs, Chief Justice Thomas Hutchinson managed to persuade the court to uphold the writs and to continue them in force. The Massachusetts legislature passed a law in February 1762 prohibiting colonial courts from issuing general writs, but Governor Francis Bernard vetoed the bill. Despite this veto, the furor over writs of assistance died down for a few years. Since they were not used again until 1766, however, the agitation catapulted Otis into the leadership of the Popular Party. Massachusetts now split into two camps: the Court or Prerogative Party, headed by Thomas Hutchinson and the Tory Governor Bernard, and the Liberals, headed by James Otis Jr. and Samuel Adams. Hutchinson, a wealthy Boston merchant, was lieutenant governor, president of the council, and chief justice, and gathered power into the hands of himself and his friends. 
He dominated the executive, legislative, and judicial functions in Massachusetts and used them to erect a formidable political machine and to control the province. Shortly after his speech against General Ritz, Otis was sent by Boston to the House and became head of the Liberal Party. Otis was motivated partly by revenge. The prerogative party had passed over his father, James Sr., Speaker of the House, for preferment to the Chief Justice post in favor of the non-lawyer Hutchinson. Samuel Adams was Otis's right-hand man in whipping up agitation among the people. Adams's father, Samuel Deacon Adams, had himself been a wealthy Boston merchant and brewer and a leader of the popular liberals. Now the younger Adams, an impoverished Boston office holder, showed himself to be a consummate radical liberal agitator. Adams obtained an M.A. from Harvard in 1743, and while there he read deeply such liberal or Republican thinkers as John Locke, James Harrington, and Samuel Pufendorf. His M.A. address declared it lawful to resist superior magistrates to preserve the Commonwealth. Adams employed as his major political arm the recently founded newspaper, the Boston Gazette, as well as several eager political clubs of Boston, the Boston Caucus Club, which packed town offices, the Merchants Club, the Monday Night Club, and the Boston Masonic Society. The clubs met either in the garret of one of their members or in a Boston tavern. Taverns, the centers of meeting and discussions, were critical in Massachusetts politics in that era, and the tavern keeper was a power in local politics. Sam Adams' Boston Caucus Club, for example, met regularly at the Green Dragon Tavern. At the other end of the cultural spectrum, Otis also mobilized allies, not the least being the Black Regiment of Congregational Ministers, who lent spiritual force to the new ideologies. Particularly ardent in this movement was the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, the pastor of Samuel Adams. Volume 3, Chapter 6, The White Pine Act Although the furor over writs of assistance had temporarily died down by 1763, the comprehensive Grenville program for enforcing and strengthening the mercantilist restrictions was soon put into effect. One important step was the sudden enforcement of the White Pine Act. The restrictive White Pine Act had scarcely been enforced by Benning Wentworth, surveyor of the King's Woods and governor of New Hampshire, for over 20 years. Suddenly, in 1763, Wentworth seized over 2,000 white pine logs in western Massachusetts and charged in Admiralty Court that the trees were legally reserved to the crown. The nearly impossible task of the owners was to prove that the logs had come from trees growing within township boundaries in New Hampshire, for all other logs were legally reserved for royal use. Hundreds of white pine logs were also seized in Connecticut. Ironically, very few of the pine logs thus confiscated were suitable for use by the Royal Navy, and the great majority soon would have rotted away if they had not been cut for timber. 
Wentworth's zeal was spurred by the new general enforcement program and also by a desire to cripple the timber operations of Wentworth's new Connecticut rival in the trade, Jared Ingersoll. Enforcement of the White Pine Act quickly reactivated the ardent hostility of New England colonists to Crown policies. Wentworth's deputies were threatened with beatings and assassination by the people of Massachusetts, and the local justices of the peace refused to aid or protect the deputies in enforcing the law, despite the orders of their governor. Volume 3, Chapter 7, Molasses and the American Revenue Act Of all the mercantilist measures that had not been enforced before 1763, perhaps the most important was the Molasses Act of 1733. This act had provided for a prohibitive duty of sixpence a gallon, amounting to 100%, on the import of foreign molasses, in order to grant inefficiently produced British West Indies sugar, a monopoly of the American market. The molasses trade was vital to the North, which could sell its staples in the West Indies in exchange for molasses. The molasses could be used either as a sweetener or to produce rum, which could be then sold at home or exported. The illegal molasses trade was largely with the French West Indies, Guadeloupe, Martinique, San Domingo, and the Dutch West Indies, Suriname, St. Eustatius. Of all the illegal commerce, the molasses trade was the most benevolently indulged by the customs officials. Domestic vessels were openly permitted to import foreign molasses on payment of a negligible duty, most of which was pocketed personally by the officials, as well as fresh fruit and wine directly from southern Europe. The duty charged in this way usually amounted to less than a half penny per gallon. This open indulgence put the molasses trade on a footing far different from that of most imports from Europe or the East Indies, which had to be smuggled secretly. During the Seven Years' War, attempts were made, especially by Pitt, to suppress trading with the enemy, but the molasses trade also flourished with the islands captured from the French in the later years of the war. In March 1763, Charles Townsend, new president of the Board of Trade, attempted to lower the official molasses duty to two pence a gallon and to enforce it strictly in order to be able to tax the colonies. We have seen, however, that Parliament rejected the plan and the old salutary indulgence for molasses was quickly resumed. The post-war salutary neglect, alas, proved short-lived. In the first place, Parliament decided in May 1763 to use a good part of the British Navy as a powerful instrument of enforcement of the trade laws. As an incentive to the naval officers, the ships and cargoes seized by them for illegal trade were now to be sold by the courts at auction, with the proceeds divided equally between the officers themselves and the crown. Twenty British warships with over 2,000 men were assigned to this task. Absentee colonial customs officers were ordered back to America to assume their posts, and the colonial governors, as well as the commander-in-chief, were ordered to render all possible assistance. At first it seemed to the relieved merchants that the molasses trade would still be indulged, 
and John Temple, the chief customs officer for the northern colonies, gave reassurances to that effect. But the customs commissioners dashed these hopes in November by threatening all American customs officers with instant dismissal for any laxity in enforcing the law. In response, Temple, at the end of the year, gave notice that customs officials would board all the vessels in the West Indian trade to execute fully the Molasses Act of 1733. Governor Francis Bernard of Massachusetts wrote that this notice caused a greater alarm in America than had the French capture of Fort William Henry six years before. And not only the merchants, but the rest of the public began to denounce customs officers for restricting the natural rights and liberties of the people. The term Tory now came into common use to designate the advocates of imperial aggrandizement over America. The British West Indies planters, in contrast, were highly gratified, especially since they made sure that their own illegal trade with the Spanish West Indies would continue to be indulged. The Molasses Act was scheduled to expire in 1764, and so the Massachusetts merchants took the opportunity to bring pressure against renewal of the law. The merchants and traders of Boston, Salem, Plymouth, and Marblehead petitioned the Massachusetts legislature in December against renewal, and a committee of Boston merchants presented a detailed economic argument against the duty, particularly concerned with the Massachusetts fishermen, whose low-grade product depended on the West Indies market. The Massachusetts legislature backed up the motion against renewal and stressed that a lower duty strictly enforced would introduce the dangerous principle of parliamentary taxation of the colonies' trade. The previous laws were deemed trade restrictions rather than revenue measures, as Townsend's proposal would be. Connecticut merchants, led by Gurdon Saltonstall and Jared Ingersoll, filed a petition against enforcement or renewal of the Molasses Act, and the March session of the legislature sent a protest to England. A committee of Philadelphia merchants asked the same of the Pennsylvania legislature, but the agitation came too late to have any effect. Many merchants helped organize the opposition by writing to associates or correspondents in the colonies. The most fully developed example was a letter of January 1764 written by a committee of Boston merchants to merchants in Rhode Island and Connecticut, rousing them to the cause. The merchants called on their fellows to unite our endeavors and to defeat the iniquitous schemes of the West India interest, these overgrown West Indians. The letter inspired the merchants and traders of Newport and Providence to call for and obtain a special session of the Rhode Island legislature for January. The legislature decided to send to England a remonstrance which constituted the first official American protest against renewal of the Molasses Act. The remonstrance pointed out that Rhode Island did a flourishing trade in molasses, importing almost as much as Massachusetts. For its supplies, it was dependent on the non-British West Indies. Rhode Island had over 30 distilleries, 
processing the molasses into rum, much of which was traded to West Africa for slaves who in turn were sold to the British West Indies and the Southern colonies. In January 1764, New York merchants, inspired by a letter from Nicholas Brown of Providence, chose a committee that issued a proclamation against enforcement of the molasses duty. The committee pointed to the wide West Indian market for New York agricultural staples and to the manufacture from molasses of beer and rum, the latter vital to the Indian trade. The merchant's protest was later approved by the New York legislature and sent to England. During February, New York and Philadelphia merchants were also in correspondence about joining New England's protest, and a committee of Philadelphia merchants petitioned the Pennsylvania Assembly to oppose the renewal. This movement of pressure by merchants in the northern colonies was the first case of intercolonial pressure on England in behalf of colonial rights and liberties. It was, however, totally unsuccessful. In fact, by the time the pressure was fairly underway, the Crown had introduced the American Revenue Act, also called the Sugar Act, in the spring of 1764. The London agents of the northern colonies, including Jasper Maudwit from Massachusetts and Richard Jackson from Pennsylvania and Connecticut, were remarkably quiet, being willing to settle for a duty of two pence and thus to abandon the principle of no English taxation upon the colonies. But the Revenue Act, as introduced in March and passed quickly in April to take effect at the end of September, imposed the crushing duty of three pence a gallon on foreign molasses and promised a rigorous enforcement. The Revenue Act passed easily because of Newcastle's continuing anxiety not to alienate Pitt and thus to keep a united opposition. A few members of Parliament mildly urged reduction of the duty to two pence, but only John Husk, an MP from Malden who had spent his early life in New England, opposed the American Revenue Act in toto. Husk, it should be noted, had been newly elected the previous year by the agitation of the radical John Wilkes movement. An important factor in the abject collapse of British opposition to the new molasses duty was the failure of the London agents of northern colonies to press opposition in principle to the molasses duty. They confined their opposition to urging a somewhat lower duty. Particularly grave was the defection of Richard Jackson, who also held the critically influential post of private secretary to Prime Minister Grenville. Richard Jackson was an old and close friend of Benjamin Franklin, and the two had co-authored an important imperialist pamphlet during the war with France. As an old friend and a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly's Committee of Correspondence, Franklin embodied the American position as far as Jackson was concerned. Yet Franklin raised no protest over the Revenue Act or against stationing a standing army in the colonies. Indeed, Franklin went so far as to welcome the steady protection and security of a British standing army. 
Franklin also reacted blithely to the plans to tax the colonies. In fact, he even offered a helpful suggestion for a tea tax for raising revenue from America. Much of the responsibility for Jackson's attitude and for the easy passage of the New Sugar Act must, therefore, be laid at the door of Benjamin Franklin. Franklin's soft attitude toward the crown and imperialism was certainly not unconnected with his own bureaucratic post as deputy postmaster general of the American colonies or with his son William's royal appointment as governor of New Jersey. In addition to the three-pence duty on molasses, the American Revenue Act of 1764 provided for a continued duty on foreign raw sugar and an increased rate on refined sugar, higher import duties on foreign textiles, coffee and indigo, much higher duties on Madeira and Canary wines, double duties on foreign goods imported from England, prohibition of imports of foreign rum or French wines, and the addition of iron, hides, whale parts, raw silk, and potash and pearl ash to the enumerated list imposed by the Navigation Acts. A particularly important provision crippled the intercolonial trade. No goods could be shipped from one American colony to another without a detailed registration with and permission from a royal customs officer. Furthermore, every vessel had to put up an expensive bond on each trip for paying duty on foreign molasses. The requirement of a detailed registration and listing of goods, or cocket, imposed particular hardships on small vessels engaged in local trade. Chief Justice William Allen of Pennsylvania wrote in November 1764 of the plight of a typical owner of a small boat on the Delaware River carrying a load of wood for iron from New Jersey to Philadelphia. He now was forced to go 40 miles out of his way to the nearest custom house to make out his manifest, the charge of which in his traveling makes this burden intolerable. Before the Revenue Act, Small vessels carrying non-enumerated products in the coastal trade had not been forced to gain customs clearance. The cocket requirement also permitted Britain to begin the enforcement of the Restrictive Wool Act of 1699, the Hat Act of 1732, and the Sailcloth Act of 1736, which had been virtual dead letters for many years. Another provision of the American Revenue Act proved extremely irritating to the colonist. Despite the incentive of acquiring a share of the loot, naval officers had been reluctant to confiscate the goods of alleged smugglers, being deterred by a healthy fear of the common law rule of personal liability for damages to any owner found innocent of the charge. Personal liability for arresting officers was a superb way of making governmental officials extremely careful about invading someone else's property. Now the Revenue Act virtually removed this deterrent and opened a broad channel for injustice by limiting the owner's damage claims to two pence if the officer could prove probable cause for the unjust seizure. 
and if the trial judge did not certify probable cause, even a minority of the customs board could now reimburse the naval officer for paying damages. Critical to the British campaign of strict enforcement of the trade laws was the aggrandizement of the vice-admiralty courts. The Act of 1696 had established vice-admiralty courts for the colonies. These courts possessed jurisdiction over violations of the trade laws. The judges were appointed by the royal governors and were able to decide cases themselves without granting the accused the benefit of trial by jury. In the common law courts, where trial was by jury, the juries generally acquitted smugglers and violators of the trade laws as a matter of principle. Before the Revenue Act of 1764, however, the vice-admiralty courts were not intolerably oppressive for the colonist. For one thing, the Crown decided that the admiralty courts did not have jurisdiction over enumerated products or importations of goods from Europe. This was firmly established by the Privy Council in 1743 in the Archibald Kennedy case. It was there decided that only the navigation laws prohibiting foreign ships came under admiralty jurisdiction. Secondly, of course, the policy of salutary neglect gave the courts little work in any case. The American Revenue Act changed all this. First, the law made crystal clear that the admiralty courts had jurisdiction over all trade and revenue law violations. Second, the new law authorized the creation of a new admiralty court, specifically covering all colonial trade violations. Before 1764, each court was limited in jurisdiction to its own colony. At the urging of Admiral Lord Colville, commander of the British North American fleet, a new overall admiralty court was set up in the fall of 1764 in the raw little military-run town of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Halifax was the headquarters of the North American fleet, but remote from the center of American commerce. Dr. William Spry, husband of a niece of William Pitt, was appointed judge of the court. The Englishman Spry ominously contrasted to the other vice-admiralty judges who were all American colonials. Lord Colville had frankly written that admiralty court judges in the major colonies might be influenced by the pressure of jobs or of their neighbors, but this pressure would be avoided by conducting trials in far-off Halifax. Admiral Colville's warnings were not simply hypothetical. They were based on the solid experience of existing vice-admiralty courts, which indeed were under the influence of the merchants and the pervasive smuggling trade. During the French and Indian War, the three judges who successively served in the Charleston vice-admiralty court were unmistakably in league with the merchants of the town. Charleston had arisen during the war as a center for trade with the French West Indies, to which it was nearer than any other American port. Not surprisingly, the vice-admiralty court judge in Charleston, after 1761, was Councillor Egerton Lee, formerly a lawyer for many of the merchants in the illegal trade and a close friend of the leading merchants of the town. 
Lee was usually able to find a way to rule for the accused merchant. In Philadelphia, Judge Edward Shippen ruled in favor of the illegal flags of truce method of trading with the enemy. In New York City, the vice admiralty judge before his death in 1762 was Lewis Morris, Jr., who was notoriously partial to the harassed merchants, often waiving jurisdiction of their cases. In fact, the New York customs officers were moved to complain of Morris's partiality to their superiors in England. To these zealots, Morris was little better than the colonial juries of the common law courts. In 1762, Morris was succeeded by his son Richard, formerly a lawyer for accused merchants and a deputy admiralty judge in New Jersey. Rhode Island was a great and flourishing center of illegal trade, helped by its self-governing charter, by which the governor and all other officials, except the appointed royal customs officers and admiralty judges, were democratically elected. When the war with France began, the Rhode Island merchants decided that they could control the vice-admiralty court better if the colony had an admiralty court of its own, rather than a mere branch of Massachusetts courts. The Rhode Islanders not only quickly obtained their own court, but even persuaded the king to appoint their own choice as admiralty judge, the Providence planter, Colonel John Andrews. When Andrews forgot his true role and shifted toward the crown, the whole Rhode Island political structure put pressure on Andrews and brought him into line. In fact, the independent and individualist Rhode Island merchants publicly proclaimed the advantages of trading with the enemy and quoted the Magna Carta against enforcing the trade acts. In Massachusetts, the former customs collector for Boston, Benjamin Barons, cashiered for accepting payment for not enforcing the navigation laws, led the merchants during 1761 in an all-out legal attack on the Admiralty Courts. The merchants took successful action in the common law courts to hold customs officers liable for damages to property and to recover money for the sale of confiscated property. Thus, by 1763, the enforcement procedures of the Trade Acts were pleasantly lax, inefficient, and hobbled, not the least of the causes being the partiality of the admiralty judges for the merchants' problems, hence the imposition of the super-admiralty court at Halifax. A third vital change in enforcement procedures was effected in the admiralty courts, the amazing provision that the onus of proof would henceforth lie on the accused rather than on the officer who seized his property. Thus, only a little more than a year after the end of the war with France, a comprehensive network of expanding and strengthening enforcement of the trade acts was imposed upon the colonies. The end of salutary neglect, revenue from molasses duties, new commodities on the enumerated list, use of the British Navy in force to apprehend smugglers and violators, use of general writs of assistance by customs officers in Massachusetts, a thoroughgoing expansion of jurisdiction of the vice-admiralty courts, and the establishment of an overall colonial admiralty court in remote Halifax, 
the granting of one half of the loot from the seizure of the goods of the accused to the arresting naval officers, placing the burden of proof on the defendant rather than on the arresting officer and removing the latter's common law liability for damages for false arrest and the coerced registration of bills of lading, cockets, hampering small vessels in the coastal trade. Most of the enforcement provisions of the Revenue Act had been proposed by the Commissioners of Customs and had been specifically drawn up by John Titan, their solicitor, and Robert Yeats, chief clerk in the Treasury. The only opposition within the royal bureaucracy was expressed by William Wood, secretary to the Commissioners. Wood, an elderly holdover from the Newcastle era, was clearly out of step with the new dispensation of aggressive Tory imperialism. Volume 3, Chapter 8, Reaction in Massachusetts The news of the new Revenue Act reached America in early May 1764 and provoked a storm of protest in the northern and other colonies, especially in trade-conscious Boston. A Boston town meeting on May 15 quickly appointed a committee to draw up Boston's instructions to its four representatives in the Massachusetts House. The committee's instructions, approved rapidly at the next meeting, were drawn up by the great popular leader of the Massachusetts liberals, Sam Adams. Adams threw down the gauntlet on constitutional and libertarian principles, as well as on the pragmatic consequences of the crippling restrictions. He boldly denied any right of Parliament to tax the colonies. Adams warned, for if our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? An appeal to the farmers of Massachusetts. Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of? This we apprehend annihilates our charter right to govern and tax ourselves. It strikes at our British privileges. Adams also called for uniting the efforts of protest of the other American colonies. The Massachusetts legislature promptly organized two committees, each dominated by their Boston members. One committee, headed by James Otis, instructed Massachusetts' London agent to urge repeal of the American Revenue Act and wavered between a principled denial of the right of Parliament to tax the colonies and a call for reduction in the molasses tax to a penny a gallon. The Massachusetts House sent this protest along with an essay by the great leader of the Boston Liberals, the lawyer James Otis, Jr. The essay, The State of the Rights of the Colonies, implied an immunity of the colonies from parliamentary taxation and grounded its argument not only on the Magna Carta but also on common law and on the laws of nature and of nations, the voice of universal reason and of God. The other House committee sent a circular letter at the end of June to the other colonies urging a united colonial protest. A few weeks later, James Otis published an expanded version of his thesis titled The Rights of the British Colonies Asserted and Proved, stressing citations to John Locke, as well as to the international law theorist Hugo Grotius, Samuel Pufendorf, and Emmerich de Vettel. 
Again, Otis's arguments were partially self-contradictory. At some points, he stressed the constitutional right to be free from all taxes but what an English subject consents to in person or by his representative, as well as the invalidity of acts contrary to natural law. At other points, he upheld the absolute power of Parliament to legislate for the general good of the empire. But in the pamphlet, Otis stressed that government derived its powers from the people. Should a government violate, rather than protect the natural rights of the people to their life, liberty, and property, Otis emphasized, then it could be overthrown by the people. Otis also condemned the abrogation of trial by jury, admiralty courts, restrictions on colonial trade, the discriminatory treatment of colonial troops during the war, and Negro slavery. Later in the summer, another Boston representative, the lawyer Oxenbridge Thatcher, published a similar pamphlet, Sentiments of a British American. Thatcher protested the various enforcement provisions in the Revenue Act and again denounced the violations of the basic English right of taxation only by consent of one's representatives. In the fall, the Massachusetts House held a special session called at the behest of Otis, Thatcher, and the other Boston delegates. It approved and addressed to England a claim of exemption from any parliamentary taxes for revenue on the essentially British right of no taxation without representation. The Conservative Council, however, declined to approve, and a compromise address confined the protest to pragmatic grounds, implying that Parliament did have the right to impose external taxes on the colonies and only denying its right to levy direct internal taxation. This was a grave retreat from principle, since all previous English taxation of trade had been designed for regulation rather than for revenue. Indeed, in 1764, before the Revenue Act came into force, gross annual revenue from all the trade acts on the colonies amounted to less than 2,000 pounds a year, while the cost of collecting it totaled over 7,000 pounds. The way was now, unfortunately, open to unlimited taxation of American trade. The person responsible for weakening the Massachusetts stand was Thomas Hutchinson, Lieutenant Governor, Chief Justice, Counselor, and Head of the Court Party Oligarchy in Massachusetts. Hutchinson understood the issue clearly enough, but he imposed a distinction between internal and external taxation that he knew to be unsound for fear of jeopardizing his position as royal favorite in Massachusetts. In addition, the pernicious influence of Richard Jackson helped to sabotage Massachusetts' stand on principle. It was Jackson, in fact, who propounded the spurious distinction between internal and external taxation. Jackson was undoubtedly motivated in his advice to the colonist by his powerful post as secretary to the British prime minister. Despite the crucial role played by Otis, and especially by Adams, in triggering colonial protest at the Sugar Act, 
The radical Liberal Party in Massachusetts suffered troubles by early 1765. For one thing, Boston, the center of radical liberalism in the province, was grievously underrepresented in the Massachusetts Assembly. The House was represented by the number of towns rather than by population. And as a result, the disproportion against populous Boston grew ever greater as the colony expanded and more towns arose in western Massachusetts. In this period, Boston had only four representatives out of 120 in the House. Moreover, rural Massachusetts had not been really aroused against British tyranny. In fact, western Massachusetts was then dominated by such leading Tories as Colonel John Murray of Rutland, the largest landowner in Worcester County, and by Colonel Timothy Ruggles of Hardwick, another leader of the court party. Volume 3, Chapter 9 Reaction in Rhode Island and Connecticut As the Revenue Act was being passed, Colonel Eliphalet Dyer of Wyndham, a member of the Connecticut Council, attacked the Revenue Bill for supporting the Standing Army and called on the colonies to unite in protest. If they failed to do so, they may bid farewell to freedom and liberty, burn their charters, and make the best of thraldom and slavery, for if we can have our interest in estates taken away and disposed of without our consent, and by those whose interest as well as inclination it may be to shift the burden off from themselves under pretense of protecting and defending America, then England can insist on America's paying the expenses of any wars, past or present. Connecticut's legislature of May-June 1764 appointed a protest committee that included Governor Thomas Fitch. The committee's address to England, approved by the legislature in October, strongly protested the molasses tax, but again it retreated from principle to the artificial distinction between internal and external taxation. Once again, Connecticut's perfidious London agent, Richard Jackson, was instrumental in ensuring a suitably weak stand in the colonies. Rhode Island, with its large interest in trade, took a similar but a more bitter stance toward the molasses tax. In July, the legislature chose a committee to confer with other colonies on protesting the tax. The committee included the merchant Nicholas Brown and was headed by Governor Stephen Hopkins. Hopkins, a prominent storekeeper and popular politician, had founded the Providence Gazette, and as early as January had written an essay on the trade of the northern colonies, urging united colonial action for repeal of the old Molasses Act. The Hopkins Committee, however, took no action until instructed by the legislature in September to confer with neighboring colonies. The committee then wrote to other colonies, significantly suggesting an intercolonial conference to launch a united protest. In October, the legislature also appointed a committee to frame a protest and sent it to England the following month, along with a draft of Governor Hopkins' pamphlet 
the rights of the colonies examined. The address in Hopkins' pamphlet strongly protested the trade restrictions and enforcement provisions of the Revenue Act, but explicitly denied only the right of Parliament to levy internal taxes. However, both Hopkins and the Assembly went beyond other colonies by denying the right of Parliament to legislate for the colonies except for the general good of the whole empire. The Hopkins pamphlet was popular in America and was soon reprinted in every colony. The radical Massachusetts Gazette hailed it as a pamphlet that breathes a true spirit of liberty. The following February, however, the Hopkins essay was attacked in a pamphlet by Martin Howard, Jr., a leading Rhode Island Tory, who invoked the transcendent sovereignty of Parliament. Under pressure, Hopkins retreated from his denial of the right of Parliament to pass laws governing America and also hinted that colonial representation in Parliament after the manner of Scotland would remove colonial grievances. Not only was Hopkins pressed into retreat, so too was James Otis of Massachusetts. In March 1765, Otis in a vindication of the British colonies attempting to defend Hopkins wound up retreating to a repudiation of his own pamphlet of a few months earlier. Otis's virtual surrender to Howard was soon completed in another pamphlet, Brief Remarks. But in the same pamphlet, Otis lashed out in bitter and hard-hitting denunciation of Howard and his small but powerful clique of Tories known as the Newport Junto. Otis attacked the Junto as that little, dirty, drinking, drabbing, contaminated knot of thieves, beggars, and transports, or the worthy descendants of such, made up of Turks, Jews, and other infidels, with a few renegade Christians and Catholics. The formation of the Newport Junto in late 1764 was, undoubtedly, one of the reasons for Governor Hopkins' precipitate retreat from liberal principle. The Junto had had the gall to petition England for revocation of Rhode Island's precious liberal and self-governing charter. Leader of the Tory Junto was Martin Howard, Jr., an Anglican lawyer, the son of a Newport town councillor, and a delegate to the abortive Albany Congress of 1754. Samuel Hall, printer of the Newport Mercury, one of the two newspapers in the colony, supported the Junto and made his paper a spokesman for Junto views. Other leading members were Dr. Thomas Moffat of Edinburgh, George Rome, an agent and debt collector for an English mercantile firm, probably Augustus Johnston, Attorney General of Rhode Island, and the King's officers in the colony, especially John Robinson and his roommate, Lieutenant Benjamin Wickham. The Junto called for strict crown control over fractious and democratic Rhode Island and for suppression of the abusive protest against English measures. The citizens of Rhode Island were understandably incensed at the Junto and at Howard's pamphlet, against Hopkins. Freedom of speech and press was hardly purely upheld in 18th century America, 
and Deputy Governor Joseph Wanton, Jr., urged the Assembly to move against the Tory pamphlet and its printer. Fortunately, the Assembly voted down the zealots. The Superior Court, under Governor Hopkins' control, did call up and intimidate the printer, Samuel Hall, for a while, but did nothing further. Hall's Mercury, in reply, thundered that liberty of the press and freedom itself were in grave danger. Rhode Island and Connecticut were uniquely fortunate. Both had democratically elected executives and therefore were free of an appointed oligarchy of royal officials, their friends, and their favorites. In Rhode Island, the Newport Junto had nuisance value, but not political power. Instead, Rhode Island was torn between two political factions, both of which were relatively liberal and opposed to British exactions. One faction was led by Stephen Hopkins of Providence and the other by Samuel Ward of Westerly in South Rhode Island. Historians have unfortunately woven around the Ward-Hopkins controversy the neo-Marxian myth that the two sides waged a class struggle, the Hopkins group representing the radical farmers and the Ward faction the conservative merchants. Actually, both parties had similar liberal principles and both were equally democratic in a highly democratic colony where nearly 80% of the adult males were eligible to vote. In addition to personal disputes, the two factions roughly represented sectional interest. The Hopkins forces represented Providence and the North, and the Wardites, Newport, and the South. The controversy was sectional, but not class. Each group represented a similar economic congeries of agriculture, trade, and finance, This should not be surprising when we remember that, on the market, farmers, merchants, and financiers are not in conflict or even competitive with each other. Each occupational group is interdependent, and together they form a harmoniously integrated network of production and exchange, each benefiting from the other's activities. Competition, not conflict, existed between two such commercial complexes as rising Providence and relatively declining Newport. Both factions then were interclass. Thus, Hopkins was backed by the influential Brown brothers, leading merchants of Providence, and by the wealthy and aristocratic Wantons of Newport. Samuel Ward, on the other hand, was a farmer and small-town merchant who was no more wealthy than his rival, Hopkins. As Professor Lovejoy puts it, farmers and merchants alike supported Ward or Hopkins for reasons not directly related to the position either candidate or voter held in society. What then did the Hopkins and Ward groups quarrel about? About the essentials of government in any era or any country. Allocation of the privileges to be derived from government and of the burdens to pay for these privileges. The essence of government is an exploitative rob-peter-to-pay-Paul process, 
and the jockeying of factions is to become as much of the Paul and as little of the Peter as possible. The perquisites of government in the Rhode Island of that day were largely public funds for bridges, lighthouses, schools, and public works, letters of mark to allow ships to be privateers upon the enemy during wartime, grants of monopolies to businesses, and grants of permission to businesses to build dams or to towns to hold lotteries. Particularly important was the allocation of the tax burden. When the Hopkins faction came to power, the colony's taxes fell more heavily upon the southern towns and more lightly on the northern. And the reverse was true when the Ward Group was in the saddle. A general atmosphere of Local rebellion against taxation then began to permeate the colony. The northern towns began to refuse tax payments during a ward regime, and the southern towns became delinquent during a Hopkins period. Each set of towns could wait for an ex post facto vindication when political fortunes would change. Seeing this, the towns of the factions in power began to take advantage of the situation and quietly ceased to pay. As a result, tax refusal and tax delinquency permeated Rhode Island. Here was a particularly strong reason for Rhode Island's bitter resistance to the prospect of parliamentary taxation. The Rhode Islanders were paying very little colonial taxes at all, and neither the Ward nor the Hopkins faction had any wish to disturb this idol by becoming subject to levies from England. Volume 3, Chapter 10, Reaction in New York Neither was New York laggard in protesting the molasses tax. The New York Assembly appointed a committee in September 1764 to draft a protest against infringing the right to be taxed only by consent. The Assembly approved the committee's statement the following month and, unlike Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, made absolutely no concessions to a supposed expediency. The historian Bernhard Nolenberg justly called the New York Assembly's addresses, one each to the Houses of Commons and Lords and the King, among the great state papers of the pre-revolutionary period. Thus the Assembly's remonstrance and petition to the Commons took its stand against taxation without representation squarely on the natural right of private property. The exemption from such taxation was not simply a privilege, but a natural right of mankind, a right inseparable from the very idea of property, for who can call that his own, which can be taken away at the pleasure of another? The petition expressly repudiated the artificial distinction between internal and external taxation, since all impositions, whether they be internal taxes or duties paid for what we consume, equally diminish the estates upon which they are charged. The New York petitions were prepared by three New York City lawyers, the liberal leaders of New York, John Moran Scott, William Smith, Jr., who wrote the drafts, 
and the eminent liberal William Livingston, the leading theoretician. As early as March, Livingston had written of his implacable hostility to the deep-formed and steadily prosecuted plan of the British ministry to reduce us by degrees to perfect vassalage. A judiciary appointed by the crown, a standing army among us, a measure absolutely inconsistent with civil liberty, and now the crushing the trade of North America in such essential articles as must reduce us to beggary. Should they also carry another favorite point, subjecting us to the payment of the national tax, we should certainly envy the superior political happiness of the French. The boldness and daring of New York's action was undoubtedly traced to the shock of a recent message by Governor Cadwallader Colden, ordered by the Board of Trade. Colden urged the unilateral annulment of a huge land grant of 800,000 acres that had been given by Governor Cornbury to 13 grantees in 1708. Underlying Colden's urging was a threat of further parliamentary coercion to annul the grant. By 1764, ownership of this tract, the Caya de Roseros Grant, between the Hudson and Mohawk Rivers, was widely distributed through all the leading families of New York province. The sudden suggestion for abrogation of the grant, almost a half-century later, came as a severe blow to New Yorkers, who also scented a precedent for other reevaluations of land titles. The questioning of the Caya de Roseros grant was ostensible altruism in behalf of the probably defrauded Mohawk sellers of the land, but the assembly correctly suspected chicanery behind the altruistic mask. All the Crown officials involved stood to gain handsomely by the annulment. Governor Colden stood to earn 10,000 pounds, his fee for regranting the Caya de Roseros land. Cauldron's son, Alexander, 4,000 pounds in fees as surveyor general of land in New York for the regranting. The crown itself would gain from an increased annual quit-rent payment of over 1,500 pounds for negotiating the lands, and Sir William Johnson, the Crown's superintendent of the Northern Indians, who pushed the Mohawk claim, had received overlapping land grants from the Crown and from the Mohawks of over 100,000 acres in the same area. Colden agreed to back Johnson's highly dubious Indian claim after Johnson offered him 10,000 acres from the tract. The New York Assembly swiftly and angrily rejected the whole scheme, and no doubt its reaction radicalized the Assemblymen into taking a firm, principled stand on the molasses tax. Volume 3, Chapter 11 Reaction in Pennsylvania Pennsylvania's protests were among the most anemic in the colonies. A major reason was undoubtedly the restraining influence of Franklin and Jackson. The Pennsylvania Assembly, in September 1764, declared its opposition to taxation by Parliament, 
but was too timid to follow its sister colonies and send the protest to Parliament or the Crown. Instead, the Assembly quickly, quietly, and privately sent its conclusions to Richard Jackson. For a while, it even promised to send Jackson an alternate plan for raising a colonial revenue, probably the scheme of the ever-helpful Franklin that would pay interest to the Crown on a new all-colonial paper currency. Perhaps the major reason for Pennsylvania's timidity as well as Franklin's was the scheming of the non-pacifist Quaker oligarchy of eastern Pennsylvania, with whom Franklin was allied to perpetuate their control of the colony. As the Germans and the Ulster Scots poured into western Pennsylvania, the older Quaker settlers became a distinct minority of the population. Yet their districts still commanded a majority representation in the assembly. Thus the three Quaker counties of Chester, Bucks, and Philadelphia, excluding the city of Philadelphia, had far less than half of Pennsylvania's population in 1760, yet they sent 24 representatives to the assembly out of 36. Demands for correcting the increasing inequity of Pennsylvania representation were mounting, and the Quaker oligarchs calculated that if the province shifted from proprietary to royal government, they could manage to dominate a crown-appointed council and thereby keep control of the government. Hence, Benjamin Franklin, appointed as Pennsylvania's agent in London in the fall of 1764 to press for a change to royal government, wrote from London that English Quakers would back the cause and thus prevent their friends in Pennsylvania falling totally under the domination of Presbyterians. Seeking important favors from the crown, the Quaker-dominated Pennsylvania Assembly felt that it could not press any opposition to a favorite measure of the Grenville administration, principle yielded to the subservience of the courtier. With Franklin, Jackson, and Franklin's close ally, Joseph Galloway, committed to a pro-crown position as against the proprietary, Pennsylvania politics were endangered of being sidetracked by a struggle over the proprietary system. In the midst of this trend, one great leader arose to take a determined libertarian position against both crown and proprietary. The lone voice was John Dickinson, a young lawyer who in May 1764 warned of the blaze of royal authority that would follow replacement of the proprietary. Only Dickinson warned clearly of the impending aggrandizement of the imperial power and of the dangers of a British standing army. He also pointed out that the proprietors had cooperated closely with royal policies and therefore that the crown could hardly serve as a relative paladin of liberty. While denouncing the exactions and evils of proprietary rule, Dickinson hailed Pennsylvania's unique liberties, complete religious freedom, 
absence of test oaths. A unicameral elected legislature unhampered by an appointed council, absolute assembly control over its own meetings, and annual elections. In contrast, Joseph Galloway sought the blessings of royal liberty, and Ben Franklin proudly and accurately proclaimed that he had constantly and uniformly advanced the measures of the crown ever since I had any influence in the province. John Dickinson's emergence as head of the liberal opposition to the tyrannical moves of the British crown occasioned a new political lineup in Pennsylvania. On one side was an anti-royal coalition of Western Ulster Scott Presbyterians, urban Philadelphians, and a handful of proprietary men. On the other was a conservative party headed by Galloway and Franklin, based on the non-pacifist Quakers of the eastern counties surrounding Philadelphia. Professor Jacobson concludes, For John Dickinson, 1764 marked the beginning of his important political leadership. His arguments in 1764 showed not essential conservatism, as historians have so frequently charged, but a belief in the more radical idea that fundamental rights could not be altered without the consent of the governed, an idea that clearly foreshadowed the American position in the revolutionary crisis of succeeding years. Dickinson's early and perceptive analysis supports his own later claim that his stand against royal government marked the beginning of the revolutionary struggles in Pennsylvania. Volume 3, Chapter 12, Reaction in New Jersey New Jersey sent no official protest whatever to England. Robert Ogden, Speaker of the New Jersey Assembly, was, during August, inspired by the June 1764 circular letter of the Massachusetts Assembly, urging all the colonies to unite and exert themselves to the utmost to keep off the threatening blow of imposing taxes, duties, and so forth, so destructive to the liberties of the colonies hitherto enjoyed. Ogden pressed for a special session of the legislature, but none was called, perhaps because of the recalcitrance of New Jersey Governor William Franklin, son of Benjamin. However, in September, two members of the New Jersey Council, Samuel Smith and Charles Reed, and a member of the Assembly, Jacob Spicer, formed themselves into a Committee of Correspondence for West Jersey, and sent off a protest to the colony's London agent. The committee asserted that we look upon all taxes laid upon us without our consent as a fundamental infringement of the rights and privileges secured to us as English subjects and by charter. In a letter to the governor of South Carolina, Attorney General Cortland Skinner of New Jersey riddled the defense argument used by Great Britain the British troops in the Indian country, far from protecting, are the very cause of our Indian wars and the monstrous expenses attending them. All we want with the Indians is their trade, which we can never enjoy until we remove their suspicion. 
When that is done, Skinner pointed out, the colonies will enjoy the security of the days they knew before the war, when there were virtually no English troops stationed in America. Skinner also noted that the French and Indian threats were now removed, and therefore even fewer troops were needed for defense. Volume 3, Chapter 13, Reaction in the South Virginia was also inspired by the Massachusetts Circular Letter of June 1764, and the House of Burgesses appointed a committee of notables of the province to draft a protest to England. The committee was headed by Peyton Randolph and included Richard Henry Lee, Landon Carter, George Wythe, Edmund Pendleton, Benjamin Harrison, Richard Bland, and Archibald Carey. The Virginia protest sent in mid-December asserted freedom from parliamentary taxation as a right, although the application of this freedom to external as against internal taxes was not clearly defined. The protest also moved to reject one solution that was already implicit in James Otis's position, colonial representation in Parliament. This was an alternative to continuing colonial home rule, most emphatically rejected by most Americans, and the Virginia Resolves were the first to make this clear. In a private letter, young Richard Henry Lee expressed sentiments portentous for the future. He asserted the unquestionable right of Americans to the free possession of property and to laws and taxes made by their own representatives. He sensed a design by the mother country to oppress North America with the iron hand of power, unrestrained by any sentiment, drawn from reason, the liberty of mankind, or the genius of their own government. Finally, he warned that possibly this step of the mother country, though intended to oppress and keep us low, in order to secure our dependence, may be subversive of this end. Poverty and oppression, among those whose minds are filled with ideas of British liberty, may produce a fatal resentment of parental care being converted into tyrannical usurpation. The North Carolina House, during its October session, protested the imposition of taxes without colonial consent and against what we esteem an inherent right and exclusive privilege of imposing our own taxes. The protest was drawn up by a committee headed by Thomas McGuire. No distinction was made between internal and external taxes, but the boldness of the stand was greatly vitiated by the fact that the protest was only addressed to the governor and that none was sent to England, even privately to the colony's London agent. The first Southern Assembly to protest the American Revenue Act was the South Carolina House, which in August 1764 ordered its Committee of Correspondence to instruct its London agent to oppose any parliamentary tax as violating the inherent right of every British subject not to be taxed but by his own consent or that of his representative. No official protests apparently emanated from New Hampshire, Maryland, Delaware, 
and Georgia. Volume 3, Chapter 14, Enforcement Troubles In addition to protesting the molasses duty, the colonists denounced the aggrandizement of the vice-admiralty courts and the further weakening of the safeguards of trial by jury. They also protested other provisions for tighter enforcement of the trade laws. The creation of the new overall court at Halifax seemed particularly threatening. Not only was the new court remote from friendly pressures by the merchants, and not only was it Britain instead of an American appointed to the post, but Halifax was costly to travel to and suffered from a shortage of lawyers to represent the accused. Accordingly, merchants in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York petitioned their assemblies for relief and complained of the new enforcement procedures. The pamphlet of Oxenbridge Thatcher, a leading lawyer, placed particular stress on objection to the aggravated jurisdiction of the Admiralty Courts. The protest of the Massachusetts Council and House put it succinctly. The extension of the powers of the courts of vice-admiralty have deprived the colonies of one of the most valuable of English liberties, trials by juries. Southern merchants were particularly disturbed at the red tape regulations crippling the coastal trade, and their protest was strongly backed by Lieutenant Governor William Bull of South Carolina. After the Revenue Act came into force, merchants tried their best to avoid the regulations. Sometimes action was forceful indeed. In late November 1764, Robert Heron, a customs collector of Maryland, seized a ship with a cargo of molasses. The cargo was condemned in a vice-admiralty court and duly advertised for auction sale at the local tavern. The owner of the condemned vessel... A chap named Graham got the merchants to promise to boycott any purchase of the goods, and at the auction Graham assaulted Heron and threw him out of the tavern. Such forcible measures were rare, but the temper of America was plain enough, so plain that the British officers thought it more prudent not to anger the colonist by taking cases to the general court in Halifax. As a result, Judge Spry languished at Halifax with little to do. As staunch a Tory as Governor Bernard of Massachusetts urged Britain to move the Admiralty Court from remote Halifax to the American mainland. Indeed, the Crown prepared to abolish the Halifax Court and substitute three appellate vice-admiralty courts, one each at Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston. But the reorganization plans were lost in the furor over the Stamp Act. One collector, however, had no scruples about the wisdom of hauling defendants to Halifax. He was John Robinson, the new collector of customs in Rhode Island. Robinson's turn toward Halifax was prompted by a legendary record of heroic obstruction by Rhode Islanders in the colonial courts. Rhode Island, indeed, proved a thorn in Britain's side from the time the new enforcement policy went into effect. When Robinson first arrived in the colony from England in the spring of 1764, he sternly refused to play by the old lax rules of colonial officials and therefore did not accept a huge annual 70,000-pound bribe from the merchants for allowing them continued freedom of trade.
Instead, Robinson began a rigorous enforcement of the trade laws. However, he soon found himself blocked in the courts, even in the local admiralty court. Volume 3, Chapter 15, The Newport Case Enforcement troubles in Rhode Island began promptly. The Assembly forbade the governor from swearing in any customs officials. And after John Temple, surveyor general of the customs at Boston, seized the ship Rhoda at Newport for engaging in illegal trade, a party of citizens loaded the cargo at night and put the ship to sea. The Rhoda, incidentally, was owned by a judge of the Rhode Island Superior Court. In a more important case, John Robinson, in the spring of 1764, seized a vessel and cargo of sugar that had in turn been seized by a British naval officer. Robinson took the cargo to Rhode Island's Admiralty Court, which superbly thwarted the collector by selling the sugar back to its owner at a low price, and somehow never collecting the amount. In March 1765, moreover, Robinson and his deputy, John Nichol, seized the vessels Wainscott and Nellie for possessing illegal molasses and took the case to the Rhode Island Admiralty Court. The judge, John Andrews, and the prosecutor or king's advocate, James Honeyman, were both native Rhode Islanders and both highly sympathetic to the merchants. They did their best to thwart the whole proceeding. Witnesses were not summoned and were permitted to escape. Honeyman refused to attend the trial, and finally Judge Andrews acquitted both of the ships. When Robinson and Nicol complained to England of this treatment, Judge Andrews retaliated swiftly, suing the customs officers in common law court for defamation. Judge Andrews won the case and proceeded to sue Robinson for complaining to the governor. Such cases being typical in Rhode Island, the judge and the king's advocate effectively stymied the royal customs officials in that province. When, therefore, John Robinson seized the ship Polly in April 1765 for smuggling molasses, he should not have been surprised to receive the full treatment from populace and judiciary alike. In fact, here was an excellent example of cooperation in obstruction between the citizens of Rhode Island and neighboring Massachusetts. The vessel was seized at Dighton on the Massachusetts side of Narragansett Bay. The first step for Robinson and his aides was to have a crew bring the Polly to Newport to be condemned in court. But they could find no one in Dighton to serve on such an obnoxious voyage. That night, a large group of citizens carried away the whole cargo and grounded the sloop. Robinson's two aides found it healthier not to interfere, and when warned by the local justice of the peace of further rebellious action by the mob, they scurried back to Newport. And a crew sent by Robinson to bring the Polly to Newport was sent fleeing back by a turbulent crowd of about a hundred people. Hearing the news of the popular resistance, John Robinson gathered an armed force of British soldiers and marines and marched to meet the rebellion at Dighton. In Massachusetts, the local justices of the peace refused to grant him writs of assistance and warned him that the whole country would defeat his handful of men. 
At night, Robinson found that his prize capture, the Polly, had been run aground, stripped of sail rigging and other equipment, and her bottom drilled full of holes. No sooner had Robinson arrived in Dighton than he was arrested and sued for three thousand pounds in damages by Job Smith for seizing his vessel, the Polly, and its cargo. The suit would eventually be superseded by justification for probable cause in Vice Admiralty Court, but meanwhile Robinson was taken to Taunton, Massachusetts, to the jeers and threats of the populace. Without friends to stand bail, Robinson was forced to spend the night in jail until bailed out by John Temple. Meanwhile, Robinson ranted that the wretch Smith was deserving of the severest treatment that the law could inflict. At Taunton, it was again justices of the peace who obstructed Robinson's efforts at enforcement. Finally, Robinson called on a British warship and re-seized the Polly. Backed strongly by Temple, he then lashed out at the Rhode Islanders by taking the case to court at Halifax, Nova Scotia. Not only remote, Halifax was in a militarily held domain as well. Resentment in the colony also piled up against the British fleet, both for its enforcing activities and for impressing colonial seamen into the royal fleet. The impressment issue burst forth in the summer of 1764. Three crew members of the British naval schooner St. John came ashore and stole some pigs and chickens from Newport citizens. The Newporters were incensed to find that the sheriff, rowing out to arrest the thieves, was prevented from boarding the St. John. The same day, one of the ship's impressed seamen managed to escape to Newport, and the St. John sent out an armed party to recapture him on the charge of desertion. This outrage was too much for the people of Newport. When the armed party landed, a Newport mob promptly seized the commanding officer, giving him a little taste of impressment in reverse, and stoned and drove off the rest of his men. In retaliation for the warship's defiance of the civil sheriff, two members of the Rhode Island Council ordered the gunners at the fort to shell the St. John as it left port that day, and fifty other Newporters enthusiastically joined in the firing. Such incidents polarized the conflict on both sides. Thus, the Rhode Island Council chastised the gunners for not trying conscientiously to sink the warship. In the meanwhile, Captain Richard Smith of the Royal Navy was urging the British government to use this act of insurrection as a means of a coerced change of government in this licentious republic. At about the same time, the British schooner, Chaleur, impressed some fishermen off Long Island in New York. The Chaleur's master was threatened with death if the men were retained, and so the victims were released the next day. Notwithstanding, a New York City mob seized a boat from the Chaleur and burned it ceremoniously in front of City Hall. Thus the impressment issue kindled opposition to Britain in the colonies. The explosive issue of impressment, or at least forced conscription, 
into the Navy was also involved in a clash off New England in December 1764. Officers of the British warships Signet and Jamaica forcibly boarded a passenger ship off New England, looking for deserters from the Navy. The passengers rose to their own defense and managed to throw several of the officers overboard. The fight ended when an officer ran through one of the passengers with his sword, a finale that incensed the citizens of Newport when the Signet put into port shortly afterward. A more directly rebellious act by Newporters against the Crown over impressment occurred in the spring of 1765. The royal ship Maidstone had arrived at Newport at the end of the previous year and proceeded to conscript colonial sailors at a furious pace. Indeed, the Maidstone men even broke an agreement not to seize Newport townspeople. Trade was crippled out of fear of losing crews to impressment, and fishermen refused to venture forth about their business. Peaceful persuasion and protest having failed, the people of Newport decided to take positive measures to defend life and property against these outrages by England. On June 4, the Maidstone officers impressed the full crew of a ship. A furious mob of 500 seized one of the Maidstone's boats and burned it completely. Lieutenant Jenkins of the royal vessel was seized by the crowd and almost killed until cooler and more timorous heads prevailed. A few weeks later, the Maidstone finally bowed to pressures coming from the masses, up to and including Governor Samuel Ward, and released all the impressed and kidnapped Rhode Islanders. The British officials, the Maidstone's captain and the customs officers, wrote to England complaining of the fomenting of violent resistance to England by the Rhode Island officials, who, being democratically elected, would be turned out of office if they behaved otherwise. The attack on the Maidstone stemmed from the lawlessness of the people and from the principles of the constitution of the government, which is the most popular that can be formed. The merchants also reacted to the Sugar Act and the enforcement of mercantilist restrictions by trying to encourage self-sufficiency in manufacturing in the colonies. This reaction at first was meant not as pressure on Britain to repeal the Sugar Act, but simply as a means of reducing dependence on a foreign trade that was now crippled. Wealthy merchants of New York and Boston formed associations and advanced capital for spinning factories and whiskey distilleries to replace rum, and planned to increase wool manufacture. Concerted movements arose in Boston, New York, New Haven, and Elizabeth to abstain from luxury imports and substitute American products. In Boston, an association formed by some councillors, representatives, and others pledged a boycott of British manufacturers and of the consumption of lamb in order to help domestic woolens. Leading liberals in New York formed in late 1764 a Society for the Promotion of Arts, Agriculture, and Economy of New York City to promote these aims. Included among the founders was the eminent radical triumvirate of William Livingston, William Smith, Jr., and John Moran Scott, as well as Philip Livingston, Frederick Phillips, 
and James Duane. All these popular actions tended to unite the people against British legislation. The upshot of the trade restrictions, aided by the check on inflation imposed by the British Currency Act of 1764 in areas south of New England, was a severe business depression in the colonies. Evidences of severe depression appeared by the spring of 1764 in Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, Boston, New Hampshire, Philadelphia, Maryland, and Virginia. In Boston, the bankruptcy of Nathaniel Wheelwright, one of New England's leading merchants, in January 1765, was a severe blow to business confidence. The Virginia planters, heavily indebted to English merchants, were in particularly bad straits, with the price of tobacco declining sharply. Volume 3, Part 3, Ideology and Religion, Chapter 16, The Threat of the Anglican Bishops. During the first half of the 18th century, there were sporadic schemes to impose Anglican bishops upon the American colonies. The schemes had been bitterly resented by all the non-Anglicans in America, and even opposed by most of the Anglicans themselves, who were generally low church and happy to be governing themselves free of English control. The schemes had died down during the war with France, but even then Bishop Thomas Secker, who had assumed the post of Archbishop of Canterbury in 1758, quietly laid plans to revive the scheme as soon as the war was over. His installment was the occasion for the Reverend Samuel Johnson of New York, a longtime advocate of an American episcopate, to join with a group of Anglican ministers in New York and New Jersey to petition for this innovation. Secker replied with the assurance that he had long had at heart the idea of American bishops. He added that the matter must remain in abeyance, but that the powerful Lord Halifax, president of the Board of Trade, was enthusiastic over the scheme. As soon as the war was over, Secker launched his campaign. The grand design for imperial assumption of power over the colonies was well underway, Secker informed Johnson, and the time was therefore right for pushing the project for American bishops. The imperialistic Duke of Bedford was, not surprisingly, quite willing, but Secker continued in secrecy until plans could fructify. It was in an atmosphere of fear and rumor engendered by these machinations that agitation against an American bishopric resumed in the colonies. The controversy burst to the fore in early 1763 when the great libertarian divine of Massachusetts, Jonathan Mayhew, was provoked by an Anglican minister's spirited defense of the Anglican Society for Preservation of the Gospel. The Reverend Mr. Mayhew's famous reply, Observations on the Charter, strongly attacked the SPG's long-standing and dangerous agitation for an American Episcopate. Against this scheme, Mayhew thundered, When we consider her, Church of England, enormous hierarchy ascending by various gradation from the dust to the skies, and the threat that all of us will be taxed for the support of bishops 
and their underlings. Can we avoid crying out? Will they never let us rest in peace? Is it not enough that they persecuted us out of the old world? Will they pursue us into the new to convert us here, compassing sea and land to make us proselytes? What other new world remains as a sanctuary for us from their oppressions in case if we need? Where is the Columbus to pilot us to it before we are deluged in a flood of episcopacy? Mayhew's stirring observations performed the function of intensifying and polarizing the conflict, stirring interest in activity among his supporters, and drawing bitter replies from several prominent Anglicans. Many of the replies called for a full-fledged Anglican establishment, while a rebuttal pamphlet by Archbishop Secker tried to be more moderate and to stress the simple administrative functions of American bishops. Jonathan Mayhew was unimpressed. Once they are here, Mayhew replied, the bishops will try to attain the power of their English colleagues, and ambition and avarice never want plausible pretexts to accomplish their end. A gradual plan for bishops was in the long run as grave a threat as the extreme one. Indeed, Mayhew wisely commented, people are not usually deprived of their liberties all at once, but gradually, by one encroachment after another, as it is found they are disposed to bear them. Furthermore, Mayhew expressed great distrust of the revival of high church Tory principles and maxims under the new king, George III. Jonathan Mayhew's pamphlets in 1763 and 1764 on the Anglican question had a profound effect in rallying colonial opposition to an Episcopal scheme and in sowing distrust of and hostility to English imperial projects. The treasurer of Massachusetts wrote of the unprecedented general approbation and applause greeting Mayhew's observations. John Adams, writing later of these events, testified to the importance of the controversy that began with Mayhew's pamphlets. It spread a universal alarm against the authority of Parliament. It excited a general and a just apprehension that bishops and dioceses and churches and priests and tithes were to be imposed on us by Parliament. It was known that neither king nor ministry nor archbishops could appoint bishops in America without an act of Parliament. And if Parliament could tax us, they could establish the Church of England with all its creeds, articles, tests, ceremonies, and tithes, and prohibit all other churches. So influential were Mayhew's writings, indeed, that the conservative Calvinist Congregationalist who had been hostile to Mayhew's highly liberal views now ranged alongside him and the other liberal Congregationalist and forged a new unity against the common danger. So severe was the reaction that the frightened Archbishop Secker was soon willing to call off the whole thing, but the damage had been done. 
Furthermore, rumors tended to fly overseas of impending appointments of American bishops, thereby keeping America hostile and on the alert. Meanwhile, irritations against church and state accumulated in America. The Anglican governor of New York, James DeLancey, refused to allow Presbyterians and Lutherans to control their own property. And as early as 1761, the Crown had prohibited the emigration from England of any schoolteacher to New Hampshire who was not an Anglican and certified by the Bishop of London. Volume 3, Chapter 17, The Parson's Cause A particular area of trouble with England over the Anglican establishment appeared during this period in the colony of Virginia. Of the seventy or so Anglican clergy in Virginia, the bulk were moderate, liberal, and easygoing, in keeping with the low church moderation of Virginia Anglicanism. In the western valley of Virginia, the local vestry, the important local political organ in that province, included Presbyterians and other dissenters for many years, since the valley was almost exclusively dissenter. Local vestries furthermore selected their ministers, who rapidly fell into the tolerant and liberal spirit of religion in Virginia. A little knot of high church Anglicans bitterly opposed this condition and strove to bring church and British control over ecclesiastical and other affairs of the colony. These men, largely English-born, clustered in and around the faculty of the College of William and Mary. In the fall of 1755, Virginia passed the first of its Twopenny Acts. Since Virginia's major currency was tobacco, its dues, contracts, and obligations were generally payable in that commodity, or in more convenient warehouse receipts for quantities of tobacco. In such a system, a poor tobacco crop and a consequent rise in tobacco prices injured debtors and advantaged creditors. In 1755, a year of high tobacco prices, there was inaugurated a Virginia practice of fixing tobacco at an arbitrary price of two pence a pound, this at a time when the market price of tobacco was far higher than that. Virginians generally approved the measure because the main creditors or receivers of fixed obligations in tobacco were the tax collectors and the receivers of government fees. The Twopenny Act caused a welcome reduction in the real economic burden of taxation and government spending on the Virginians and did this precisely during a time of economic crises when such relief was most needed. Government bureaucrats receiving fixed fees in tobacco lost a heavy windfall as a result of the Two-Penny Act, particularly affected with the Anglican parsons who each received a fixed sum of a little over 17,000 pounds of tobacco per year. The knot of high church ministers zealously protested the two-penny law. 
A small clique of Parsons, including four professors at William and Mary, sent several bitter protests to the Bishop of London. They were led by the Reverend John Cam of York County, a professor of divinity at William and Mary. The 1755 law was meant to be enforced for ten months only, after which the crop crisis would be over. The most important of the Virginia two-penny laws was passed in the fall of 1758, amid a catastrophic drought that lowered Virginia's tobacco production by nearly 90 percent. A fixed maximum price of two pence a pound was placed on tobacco for the following year. The Tory faction of the Virginia establishment was embittered at the loss of its windfall gains. The market tobacco price had risen to six pence a pound. Half of the Anglican clergy of the colony convened, and with dispatch sent John Cam to England to plead their Parsons' cause. For royal disallowance of the law, Cam took with him the minister's representation of the clergy of the Church of England. The representation bitterly and incorrectly denounced the Twopenny Act as deliberately designed to injure the Anglican clergy, and angered the Virginians by warning that the royal prerogative was being violated by the colony. The Anglican clergy were thus urging a royal veto over the self-governing acts of the Virginians, and went from there to urge the nullifying, rather than the mere setting aside of the law, so that the Twopenny Act would be null and void from the beginning. The importance of this stemmed from the short-term nature of the crisis and of the law. If it could be voided from the beginning. Virginia would be liable for a large retroactive salary to its established clergy. The Virginia Assembly countered the appointment of Cam in early 1759 by appointing its own agent in London and selecting a committee of correspondence to carry on the struggle. The argument was now carried to England, where Virginians were further embittered. By a vicious attack upon them by Bishop Thomas Sherlock of London, who had long been one of the prime movers in the scheme for an American episcopate, Sherlock levelled false accusations of a deliberate attack on the Virginia clergy, and then went on in a crescendo of calumny to charge the Virginia Assembly in its passing of the Twopenny Act with committing an act of treason. And I do not know any other name for it in our law. Sherlock went on to denounce the increasing number of dissenters, largely Presbyterians, in the colony. The Cam petition, aided by Archbishop Secker, travelled favourably through the ranks of the British bureaucracy. Finally, in August 1759, the Privy Council disallowed the two Twopenny Acts. It also went beyond this to order the Virginia governor not to sign in the future any such law that did not have a suspension clause, delaying execution of the law until the king should approve—a serious threat to the self-rule of the colony. The crown had merely disallowed the Twopenny Act rather than nullified it from the start. The outcome of the dispute was therefore still unclear.
a fact that would rankle Virginia-British relations for eight more years. The Reverend Mr. Cam and a few other Tory parsons immediately decided to sue in the courts for the missing back pay, and if these cases were won, total nullification would be a fact. The Virginia taxpayers would then be burdened with huge windfall salary payments to the established clergy. The Assembly and its Committee of Correspondence decided to back the vestries in the court cases, and its Committee of Correspondence warned that the royal decision called into question the powers of the Virginia legislature to make temporary laws for the public weal. The Assembly in late 1760 petitioned the Crown for power to pass such temporary measures, but in vain. News of Bishop Sherlock's bitter blast particularly infuriated Virginians and set off a pamphlet war in the colony. Two of Virginia's leading planter oligarchs, Colonel Richard Bland, Jr. and Colonel Landon Carter, both Burgesses and both Anglicans, attacked Sherlock and became involved in a series of exchanges with John Cam. The Bland family was intermarried with such eminent planter families as the Randolphs and the Carters with the Randolphs, Birds, and Harrisons. Bland's pamphlet, A Letter to the Clergy, 1760, was notable for a sardonic statement on the royal prerogative. Like the king of Babylon's decree, it may, for aught I know, almost force the people of the plantations to fall down and worship any image it shall please to set up. Moreover, as Salus Populi est Suprema Lex, every consideration must give place to it, and even these royal instructions may be deviated from with impunity. But the major threat lay in the court suits of the Reverend Mr. Cam and four of his fellow ministers, for their victory would mean that the Twopenny Act had been void from the start and that the government would have to reimburse the ministers. The slow processes of the courts kept the whole issue alive and festering. The first case to be decided was that of Reverend Alexander White of King William County, White's case was turned over in toto in the fall of 1762 to the jury, which naturally found for Virginia. In the case of the Reverend Thomas Warrington, decided soon afterward, the Elizabeth City County Court, headed by George Wythe, sustained the original validity of the Twopenny Act. Furthermore, it also found for the defendant. The third case to emerge was that of the Reverend James Maury of Louisa County and was decided in Hanover County Court. On November 5, 1763, Judge John Henry decreed that the Twopenny Act had been null and void from the start. The only problem remaining was a jury trial fixing the amount of damages due to Maury. The trial was held in December. To Mari's disgust, the jury included the vulgar herd, two of which were ardent New Light Presbyterians. 
Dissenters had obvious reason to be hostile to levering taxes upon themselves for the benefit of an Anglican establishment. The great significance of the Mari trial was the emergence upon the scene of the brilliant young lawyer Patrick Henry. Henry, son of Judge John Henry, a leading planter of Hanover County, was a nephew of a venerable Anglican minister, the Reverend Patrick Henry, who was one of the ministers filing suit against the colony. Young Patrick had every family incentive to be on the Tory-Anglican side of the dispute. Instead, hired despairingly at the last minute, Henry, presumably in a helpless situation, radicalized the atmosphere and captured the imagination of the colony in a dramatic speech to the jury. In short, Henry escalated the dispute straight up to the crown. By annulling the good and necessary twopenny act, the king had violated the original compact between king and people, by which the latter had promised obedience in return for royal protection of their rights. Therefore, concluded Henry inexorably, a king, by disallowing acts of so salutary a nature from being the father of his people, degenerated into a tyrant and forfeits all rights to his subjects' obedience. At that point, the Reverend Mr. Maury recounted that the more sober part of the audience was struck with horror. Peter Lyons, the leading lawyer of the area, and Maury's counsel cried out at this that Henry had spoken treason, and murmurs of treason arose from the audience. But Henry, unruffled, continued to denounce bitterly the Anglican clergy. The clergy of Virginia, on refusing to acquiesce in the law, ought to be considered as enemies of the community. And Maury and his colleagues should be not rewarded, but stripped of their appointments. In a stirring peroration, Henry warned that unless the jury were disposed to rivet the chains of bondage on their own necks, he hoped they would not let slip the opportunity which now offered of making such an example of him, Maury, as might hereafter be a warning to himself and his brethren not to have the temerity for the future to dispute the validity of such laws. The jury, swayed and moved, brought in a verdict for token minimum damages, one penny. Judge Henry, moved to tears by his son's great speech, upheld the verdict, and the happy crowd, wild with delight, seized their champion and bore him on their shoulders in triumph around the courtyard. John Cam's own case came to trial in April 1764. This critical case was decided by the Council of Virginia, sitting as the Supreme General Court of the colony. The Council decided against Cam by a vote of five to four. Voting against Cam were John Blair of Williamsburg, sometime president of the Council, John Taylor, William Byrd III, Robert Burwell, and Presley Thornton. 
Voting for CAM were Richard Corbin, Robert Carter, Peter Randolph, Surveyor General of the Customs, and Philip Ludwell Lee. William and Thomas Nelson of York County excused themselves from voting as parishioners of the Reverend Mr. Cam. White, Warrington, and Maury each had appealed their cases to the council, sitting as the Supreme General Court, and the Reverend Mr. Henry's suit was dismissed when the Cam case was decided. All the other cases were now ended, and the Parsons' cause rested on Cam's further appeal to the Privy Council in England. Meanwhile, the pamphlet war between Cam on the one hand and Bland and Carter on the other had renewed in 1763 and 1764. Finally, Richard Bland published in August 1764 his famous The Colonel Dismounted, which the historian Lyon G. Tyler has called the great critical paper of the Revolution. Colonel Bland began by asserting that the Virginians properly retain the rights of all Englishmen. He added, Under an English government, all men are born free, are only subject to laws made with their own consent. If then Virginians are freeborn and have the rights of Englishmen, then laws over them can be made only by their own representatives. This, Bland declared, applied to internal laws, whereas external laws are to be determined by Parliament. As for the royal prerogative, Bland warned that submission, even to the supreme magistrate, is not the whole duty of a citizen. Something is likewise due to the rights of our country and to the liberties of mankind. To say that a royal instruction to a governor is to have the validity of a law and must be obeyed without reserve is at once to strip us of all the rights and privileges of British subjects and to put us under the despotic power of a French or Turkish government. Thus, the strictures of Bland and Henry emphasized the importance of the Parsons' cause in expanding the colonial conflict with Britain, from taxation by colonists themselves to legislation by the colonists. As historian Richard Morton puts it, from the principle of no taxation without representation, Virginians had moved on to no legislation without representation. During this debate, Virginians developed the great constitutional arguments, which they were to use effectively a few years later to justify rebellion. And it started Patrick Henry on his eloquent and outspoken defiance of British authority in America. Nullifying the Twopenny Acts by the Crown irritated the Virginians in many ways. It involved using royal power to annul a law popular in the colony. It attempted to impose suspension clauses to restrict further Virginian legislation. It gave rise to the Parsons' call for rendering such laws initially null and void. It rendered obnoxious 
to moderate low church Virginia, an influential portion of the Anglican clergy devoted to high church Tory principles. And it recalled the Episcopal schemes of the leaders of the Church of England. Furthermore, the Parsons cause polarized Virginian opinion, aligning the Anglican and dissenting laity of Virginia against the reactionary wing of the local Anglican clergy, the English Church, and the Crown itself. The Parsons cause now rested on Cam's appeal to the Privy Council. To combat Cam's case, the Virginia Assembly's Committee of Correspondence in July 1764 prepared argumentation against Cam. The main brief was drawn up by committee member Robert Carter Nicholas of Williamsburg, who had been chief defense lawyer against Cam before the general court, and by George Wythe of Williamsburg. The case dragged on unresolved until the end of 1766, when the Privy Council dismissed Cam's appeal on a legal technicality. The Parsons' cause was ended, but even then unclearly and inconclusively. It left a significant legacy of opposition and hostility by Virginians to the Crown. Volume 3, Chapter 18 Wilkes and Liberty, 1763 1764. In June 1762, John Wilkes, a country squire who was High Sheriff of Buckinghamshire and a member of Parliament, set up his weekly newspaper, The North Britain, in opposition to the Tory Butte regime in Great Britain. Wilkes took the Newcastle Whig line in opposition to the harshly expansionist peace terms the British were exacting from the French, especially their insistence on ousting the French completely from the North American continent. At the end of December, the North Britain denounced the purge of the Newcastle Whigs from the administration, and called for a determined popular opposition to Tory rule. Out of power for the first time in two generations, the disoriented Whigs polarized, the more conservative moved to make their peace with the Tory administration. The younger and more radical members, led by the young Marquis of Rockingham, formed an opposition club with the tentative and worried blessing of Newcastle. On April 11, 1763, Lord Bute was driven from office by the revolt in Parliament against the tax on cider, a revolt joined by Whigs and West Country Tory gentlemen. With his old enemy Butte, Alsted from office, John Wilkes felt that his task was done, and he suspended publication of his radically liberal North Britain. But the Tory regime continued virtually unchanged, and the King's speech at the opening of Parliament on April 19, 1763, inspired by the new Prime Minister George Grenville goaded Wilkes into publishing a harsh comment in the famous numbered 45 of the North Britain. The Crown decided to take the opportunity to crack down on the annoying Wilkes as a libeler of the king, and issued a general warrant for the arrest of everyone connected with the publication of the seditious and treasonable North Britain. 
In doing so, the Crown also hoped to discredit the opposition by associating them with a notorious rake and libertine like Wilkes. Wilkes was summarily arrested, along with forty-eight others connected with the publication of his journal, and sent to the Tower. Those most closely implicated in the Crown's decision, aside from Grenville and the King, were the powerful secretaries of state, Lords Egremont and Halifax, Charles Jenkinson, the Secretary of Treasury, Jenkinson's counsel, Philip Carteret Webb, and the Crown's law officers, Sir Fletcher Norton and the renegade Whig Attorney General Charles York. The Whigs were now placed squarely on the spot by the summary arrest of Wilkes and the suppression of his paper. Wilkes's mentor and patron, Earl Temple, did not hesitate to rush to the aid of his beleaguered friend. But what would Newcastle do? The aging Whig leader was beset by conflicting advice on where he, and hence his party, should go. For on his position in the Wilkes affair rested the choice of whether the Whigs would subsist in moderate and respectable dissent from the administration, or whether they would become a party in radical opposition to the status quo in behalf of liberty. The Whigs were again being polarized by the larger polarization occurring in England as a whole. Between the aggressive Tory imperialist in power and the rising agitation of the people, as expressed in the rebellion against the cider tax, for liberty, property, and no excise. The younger and more ardent Whigs pressured Newcastle to declare for Wilkes. These liberals were headed by Newcastle's nephew, George Onslow, and particularly Lord Middleton, another nephew who, like Temple, declared his intention to visit Wilkes in the Tower. But on the other side, the older and more tired Whigs counseled caution. These were led by Lord Hardwick, the father of York, who bitterly denounced Wilkes's audacious libel as not only unjustifiable but inexcusable. Hardwick carefully concealed the secret role that he himself had played in the affair when he had advised the Crown to proceed with the stamping out of its most ardent opposition. Pitt, of course, remained cool to the Wilkes cause. Newcastle finally was persuaded by his old friends not to plunge into the Wilkes imbroglio. Wilkes, undaunted, fought on brilliantly, his first success being to win a writ of habeas corpus and a release from the Tower. Wilkes carried on his fight on two levels, the legal level, aided by his counsel, Sergeant John Glynn, and the political level, aided by his own appeal at the London trial. At his trial in early May, a cross-section of Londoners, gentlemen, shopkeepers, craftsmen, packed the courtroom and first raised the thunderous shout, Liberty, Liberty, Wilkes forever. The Wilkite cause had been swiftly adopted by the people of London. In his argument at the trial, 
Wilkes made sure that his London followers got the point. The liberty of all peers and gentlemen, and what touches me more sensibly, that of the middling and inferior set of people, who stand most in need of protection, is in my case this day to be finally decided. Chief Justice Charles Pratt ruled general warrants to be legal, but freed Wilkes on his privilege as a member of Parliament. The crowd, which included George Onslow, on hearing the verdict, burst into loud cheers, and Wilkes was borne home by many thousands of Londoners shouting, Whigs forever, no Jacobites, and the new slogan of the radicals, Wilkes and Liberty. John Wilkes followed up his victory by a direct challenge to the crown. After his arrest, his house had been ransacked for evidence, and Wilkes now boldly and heroically called upon Lords Egremont and Halifax to return his stolen papers. Receiving the expected angry reply, Wilkes now magnificently brought suit against Halifax, Egremont, and Under Secretary of State Robert Wood for theft, and against Webb for perjury. With widespread support in the press, and numerous bonfires and rejoicings among the people at every Wilkite victory, Wilkes and the printers associated with the North Britain won numerous damage suits against Wood and other government officials during the remainder of 1763. The sympathetic juries took care to award heavy damages to the Wilkes forces. But the big question to be decided was the legality of general warrants. The Crown case rested on precedent. For nearly a hundred years it had issued similar general warrants against persons suspected of seditious libel against the government. Until Wilkes, their validity had not been challenged. Hardwick and Newcastle regarded such warrants as perfectly legal, but Chief Justice Pratt was now increasingly taking the position that both general and specific warrants for seditious libel were illegal. The Whig-oriented city councils of London, Dublin, and Exeter voted their gratitude to Pratt for his new stand. In the end, Wilkes won his point and a significant victory for individual liberty. By 1765, Pratt was able to win over the bench and to rule such general warrants null and void. As Wilkes piled up victories in the courts during 1763, he became the idol of the London populace. He was mobbed by cheering throngs, and the merchants and financiers of the city expressed ardent support for his cause. From the city of London to Surrey County, and to English sailors at port, Wilkes and Liberty was the common cry. In a short time, John Wilkes had sparked a libertarian mass movement in England. The possibilities for the movement and for Wilkes himself were limitless. But Wilkes, besides a leader, was a man of personal irresponsibility, of the kind fatal to the leadership of a great cause. And this flightiness was to lay him low, for as he prepared to bind and reprint the North Britain, 
he also blithely and frivolously decided to print for private circulation an obscene parody of Pope's Essay on Man, which had been written a decade before. While Wilkes, in the autumn of 1763, was light-heartedly visiting in Paris, Philip C. Webb bribed Wilkes's printer and fellow victim of the general warrant, Michael Curry, to turn over to him the proofs of the obscene essay on woman. The Crown, now eagerly prepared to proceed against Wilkes for obscenity and blasphemy, and at the same time to split and neutralize the Wilkite forces, especially the respectables who were sure to place aesthetics and propriety above the great principles of liberty. Ironically, the leading role in the prosecution was played by the Earl of Sandwich, successor to the deceased Egremont, who until recently had participated with Wilkes in the frequent orgies of a notorious and exclusive club, the Monks of St. Francis. In mid-November, Sandwich, with enthusiasm, read the essay on woman aloud to the scandalized House of Lords. All the shocked respectables seized the opportunity to abandon a cause which their devotion was at best questionable, and took turns in denouncing the harried Wilkes. Pitt's denunciation was typical. The North Britain series was unmanly and detestable, and Wilkes did not deserve to be ranked among the human species. Wilkes, in short, was the blasphemer of his god and the libeler of his king. As the crown had hoped, the irrelevant essay on woman was used to turn opinion against and to condemn number 45 of the North Britain and to vanquish the Wilkite movement. Frederick, Lord North of the Treasury, led the attack for the government in the House of Lords, charging the North Britain with being false, seditious, insulting to royalty, and intending to excite the people to insurrection against the government. Wilkes objected only to the charge of falsehood. Thirty-five noble lords managed to hold their ground to vote for him. They included Temple and the Whigs Devonshire, Grafton, and Portland. Pitt's man, Lord Shelburne, naturally voted to condemn John Wilkes. The House of Commons condemned number 45 as false, scandalous, and seditious libel by a vote of 273 to 111, and Parliament ordered it burnt by the common hangman. The middle and lower class supporters of Wilkes, however, were not as easily swayed from principle by irrelevant aesthetics. At the appointed time of the burning on December 3rd, a large crowd of over 500 Londoners gathered, pelted the sheriffs with wood, attacked their coaches, wounding the high sheriff, and rescued the North Britain from the bonfire. Instead, the mob burned a boot and a petticoat in the bonfire, items symbolizing the hated Lord Boot and the king's mother, who had been a long-time friend of Boot. The Common Council of the City of London demonstrated its solidarity with Wilkes 
by pointedly refusing to thank the sheriffs for their part in the proceedings. And when the king went to the theater, instead of the customary applause, there arose a general shout of, Wilkes and Liberty! It was in the same month that Wilkes was awarded 1,000 pounds damages from the crown by a London jury to the cheers of great London crowds and shouts of Wilkes and Liberty. Probably Wilkes could still have remained and forged a successful libertarian mass movement, but wounded in a political duel, deliberately provoked by an enemy in Parliament, and knowing that Parliament was about to expel him, Wilkes at the end of December again showed his irresponsibility by departing the country for France. With Wilkes gone, his enemies could now proceed at will. In January he was expelled from Parliament. In February he was found guilty of blasphemy and seditious libel by a grand jury in printing the essay and reprinting the North Britain. And on November 1, 1764, while still in France, he was declared an outlaw. And with Wilkes gone, the great Wilkite movement in England necessarily collapsed, at least for the time being. Many Wilkites were dismissed from public office, including the Whigs Colonel Isaac Barre and General Henry Conway. But Wilkes and his cause still remained high in the hearts of the people. When the liberal Whig Edmund Burke was elected to Parliament two years later, the people toasted Burke and Wilkes and Wilkes and Liberty. And though Wilkes himself was gone, the people could and did take revenge on his tormentors. Sandwich was generally derided. The informer Michael Curry was scorned as a renegade and blacklisted by all the master printers, and Philip Webb lost his post at the Treasury in mid-1765 as a direct result of his ill fame in the persecution of John Wilkes. The sudden flowering of the Wilkite movement had a profound influence on the accumulating tensions between Britain and the American colonies. There were many reasons for this. For one thing, the bursting forth of the liberty and property agitation against the cider tax merging into the Wilkes and Liberty movement articulated the grievances of the colonies against taxation and against invasions of liberty. In short, the Whig ideals of liberty and property were under attack for citizens in England as well as in the colonies, and under attack by the same imperial Tory government. In fact, the same persons, the Grenvilles, the Halifaxes, the Jenkinsons, and so forth, were reviled as despotic at home as well as abroad. In brief, the Tory oligarchy was busy aggrandizing the royal prerogative against the liberty and property of the people at home and abroad. In these circumstances, it is not surprising that the Americans should eagerly follow and be inspired by the Whigs and Radicals of England. Second, the theorist most cherished by the Americans, Locke, Algernon Sidney, John Trenchard, Thomas Gordon, the Commonwealth men, were precisely the patron saints of radical Whiggism, and had been for a century. Third, 
the radical Whigs reciprocated American interest and staunchly championed American liberties in English politics. And fourth, the particular tactics, especially the spirited mob actions by the English of London and of West Country, also provided inspiration to Americans of what direct mass action could accomplish, above and beyond mere legalistic petitioning of Parliament or the Crown. Fuse these current examples of revolutionary mass action in England with those of the great colonial revolutions against English tyranny in the middle and late 17th century, and an explosive mixture was at hand. In short, what the Marxists call the objective conditions and the subjective conditions for any American revolution were now virtually imminent. The objective conditions were a crescendo of despotic actions by Great Britain, striking hammer blows against constitutional, economic, and individual rights and liberties of Americans. The subjective conditions were nurtured by their own revolutionary traditions, by the libertarian ideals common to the English Whigs and themselves by the inspiring example of the libertarian Whig rebellion in the home country, and by an increasing willingness of the American people to embark on mass civil disobedience and on even more violent forms of revolutionary overthrow of tyrannical British rule. Volume 3, Part 4, Edge of Revolution, The Stamp Act Crisis Chapter 19. Passage of the Stamp Act Upon introducing the American Revenue Act in Parliament in March 1764, George Grenville strongly hinted that a stamp tax on the colonies might become necessary. He asked for postponement of any such tax for a year, but still induced Parliament to resolve that it may be proper to levy the tax. By doing this, Grenville carefully paved the way for stamp tax the following year, prepared the colonies for the severe blow, and put Parliament on record of its constitutional right to levy such a tax. In this way, he shrewdly brought Parliament's strong sense of its own unchecked prerogatives into play, while presumably allowing time to soften the blow for the colonies. Grenville tried to cover his tracks and assume a mask of benevolence by hinting to, but never officially informing, the Americans that he was willing to listen to alternative modes for the colonists to raise the money themselves. But preparations for a stamp tax proceeded apace. We have already seen the leading role of Henry McCullough in drafting a proposed stamp act in late 1763, and now Grenville assigned Thomas Watley, Secretary of the Treasury, the task of drawing up the bill. In this task, Watley was aided by McCullough. Two, Grenville was particularly enchanted with the idea of a stamp tax. It would be uniform throughout the colonies, affecting not only merchants in seaport towns, but farmers as well. Moreover, it would be, in a sense, self-executing, 
since instead of search and seizure for contraband goods, every document in paper would require a specially stamped paper the citizen would have to buy himself. As early as August 1764, the Earl of Halifax, the powerful Secretary of State for the Southern Department, sent a circular letter to all the colonial governors announcing the parliamentary resolution for a potential stamp tax and asking for a list of instrumentalities and transactions that might require a stamp. On the basis of the replies, Watley prepared a detailed list of stamp duties, and the list was approved by the Treasury Board in mid-December. The die for a stamp tax had been cast. Most of the proposed rates were lower than those of the English stamp tax, since the rates could later be raised after the Americans had become accustomed to the tax. But the taxes on entry into college and to the bar were far higher than in England. The taxes for matriculation in college degrees were set at two pounds in America, but two shillings in England. For entry to the bar, ten pounds in America, and six pounds in England. Watley's reason for setting such high rates in America was brutally frank. It would be better indeed if they were raised considerably in order to keep mean persons out of those situations in life which they disgrace. While these preparations were secretly underway, the colonies did their best to explore Grenville's hint that he would forego a stamp tax if the colonists were willing to raise an equivalent sum themselves. But when Grenville met with the colonial agents in mid-May 1764, he pushed aside the crucial question of how much he wanted the colonies to pay to England. Dismissing the possibility of self-taxation, he proposed instead that they simply give their advance approval to the stamp tax. So much for the sincerity of the Grenville offer. When Israel Mauduit, representing Massachusetts, gently asked how the colonies could possibly give advance approval to a bill they knew virtually nothing about, Grenville answered that the details were unimportant, since the bill was to follow the model of the stamp tax in England. It was clear that Grenville was interested only in securing an advance blank check from the colonies, and not in soliciting any colonial criticism of his plan. Yet the bemused colonial agents could not bring themselves to face the iniquity of George Grenville, and they clung to the hope that his hinted offer had been genuine. The Boston members of the Massachusetts Assembly asked Governor Bernard for special session to forestall an English stamp tax by imposing one themselves. Bernard realized that no such alternative tax could be enacted until the Crown decided how much it wanted the colonies to pay, a disclosure it kept refusing to make. In fact, many of the colonies, including Franklin Galloway-dominated Pennsylvania, signified a willingness to tax themselves any sum that might be requested. But the Crown, of course, never bothered to make such a request. Grenville's state of mind at this point has been acutely summed up by the Morgans. 
It is evident that Grenville was determined upon a stamp tax. Though he was willing to make magnanimous gestures, he had no intention of allowing the colonies to prevent passage of his measure. They would not thwart him by levying a substitute tax themselves. By withholding the necessary information, he made sure of that. Nor would he be troubled by the objections. Thanks to his foresighted resolution, he could safely predict Parliament's unsympathetic reaction here. Grenville must have felt comfortably satisfied with all his maneuvers. He made it useless for the colonies to attempt any action to avert the tax, and yet he had carried out his interviews so smoothly and expressed his affection for the colonies so convincingly that the agents did not perceive the hopelessness of their efforts. In addition to a few pathetic offers to appease Grenville by offering to tax themselves, many colonies sent protests against any projected stamp tax along with their reactions to the Sugar Act. The Connecticut Resolution of May-June 1764 Selecting a committee of protest, singled out a stamp tax as the gravest threat on the horizon. The South Carolina House's instruction of protest in August against the American Revenue Act singled out a stamp tax for special hostility. And the Rhode Island legislature's protest of November was confined to stamp duties and other internal taxes. Colonial protest general and specific, against a stamp tax, came not only from official bodies, but from private sources as well. Jared Ingersoll, an influential Tory lawyer from Connecticut and one of that province's agents to England, warned Watley in the summer of 1764 that the people were filled with the most dreadful apprehension over any stamp tax. Ingersoll warned of the great difficulty that would be met in collecting a tax that was, in the opinion of most of the people, contrary to the foundation principles of their natural and constitutional rights and liberties. Even some of the wealthiest citizens, he added, threatened to emigrate in the event of such a tax. The other colonial agents joined in the advance agitation, but the protest only succeeded in hardening the Crown's determination to put the annoying colonies in their supposedly appointed place. The agitation also made it easier to appeal to Parliament's sensitivity to its own power and right to impose such a tax. By early 1765, the year of grace was over. The colonists had presumably had time to absorb the shock, and the crown was set to ram the hated stamp tax down the throats of the colonies. A last-minute attempt to head off the stamp bill occurred on February 2nd at a conference between four official and unofficial colonial agents and George Grenville. The four agents, Charles Garth, MP, agent for South Carolina, Richard Jackson, now agent of Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin, and Ingersoll, made a final try at appeasement by offering a self-imposed tax by the colonies. Jackson voiced a common and perceptive colonial fear 
that the crown would be able to use colonial funds to support its armed forces and the royal governors in America, and thus free the governors from the assembly control so precious to the colonies. Grenville replied with the same hocus-pocus and double-talk of the year before, now revealed as patently insincere. But Benjamin Franklin proved indomitable in his determination to toady to the crown. Franklin had three alternative plans of his own devising to offer, each of which would have yielded to the principle of English taxation of the colonies, and each of which would also have aggrandized central imperial control at the expense of American home rule. One was a cute way to make a mockery of the principle of colonial self-taxation, to provide some colonial representation in Parliament. A second was to return to his imperialist and centralizing Albany plan of 1754, which would have imposed a royally appointed American council to levy taxation on the colonies. A third plan, which Franklin strongly urged, called on Parliament to establish a single loan office in America to issue a common colonial paper currency, part of which would go to Britain as a hidden and therefore less provocative form of taxation on the colonies. In that way, centralization and imperial control in America could make giant strides. Paper money inflation would recover nicely from the hard blow of Parliament's rather restrictive Currency Act of the previous year. And Franklin, if luck went his way, would have a healthy share in the lucrative contract for printing the new paper issues. Indeed, Franklin persuaded his old friend, former Governor Thomas Pownall of Massachusetts, to propose the plan and to present it jointly with him to Grenville. Pownall and Franklin also eagerly offered their services in the well-paying task of putting their grandiose scheme into operation. Thomas Pownall incorporated Franklin's proposal into the second edition of his influential book, The Administration of the Colonies, originally published in 1764. In view of Pownall's close collaboration with Franklin, it is instructive to note the views expressed in Pownall's work on imperial colonial relations. Pownall's crucial objective was to reimpose imperial control by making the governors and other crown officials independent of the elected assemblies for their salaries. Without such independence, the officials' actions would remain subservient to the people of the colonies. The means to accomplish this end would be the levying of a British tax on the colonies, which tax could then be used to pay the salaries of the crown officials. In that way, the American colonists themselves would be forced to pay for the subversion of their own rights by the British rulers. A neat trick indeed. But Grenville scorned evasions and halfway measures. Sure of victory in Parliament and anxious to smash signs of self-reliance in the colonies, Grenville finally introduced a stamp bill into Parliament on February 6, 
1765. Opposition to the bill in the Commons was mobilized by the hardcore Whigs. The Whigs did their best, but were demoralized by the recent death of their leader, the Duke of Devonshire, and by one of the periodic bouts of insanity of William Pitt, who held the narrow view that Parliament should not impose internal taxation on the colonies. The early opposition was led by Alderman William Beckford from the City of London, who alone and courageously denied the right of Parliament to tax the colonies. The others were content, doubtless for strategic reasons if no other, to deny the equity and expediency of the tax. The most eloquent and famous speech was delivered by the old Wilkite, Colonel Isaac Barre. Barre had advocated no tax, or, if a tax, at least the opportunity for the colonies to tax themselves. He had been answered by the renegade Whig Charles Townsend, who loftily and arrogantly asked, And now will those American children, planted by our care, nourished by our indulgence, until they are grown to a degree of strength and opulence, and protected by our arms, will they grudge to contribute their might to relieve us from the heavy burden? Barre now rose and spontaneously gave a superb and prophetic rebuttal, one soon to resound throughout the American colonies. They planted by your care? No, your oppression planted them in America. They fled from your tyranny to a then uncultivated and unhospitable country where they exposed themselves to almost all the hardships to which human nature is liable. Actuated by principles of true English liberty, they met all these hardships with pleasure compared with those they suffered in their own country from the hands of those who should have been their friends. They nourished by your indulgence, they grew by your neglect of them. As soon as you began to care about them, that was exercised in sending persons to rule over them in one department and another, sent to spy out their liberty, to misrepresent their actions, and to prey upon them, men whose behavior on many occasions has caused the blood of those sons of liberty to recoil within them. They, protected by your arms, they have nobly taken up arms in your defense, have exerted a valor amidst their constant and laborious industry for the defense of a country whose frontier, while drenched in blood, its interior parts have yielded all its little savings to your emolument. And believe me, Remember I this day told you so, that same spirit of freedom which actuated that people at first will accompany them still. The people, I believe, are as truly loyal as any subjects the king has, but a people jealous of their liberties, and who will vindicate them if ever they should be violated. But the subject is too delicate, and I will say no more. Beckford and Barre moved to block consideration of the bill, but were defeated by a vote of 245 to 49. 
The bill itself came to debate in mid-February, as several Whigs tried desperately to present petitions against the stamp tax. Rose Fuller, a West Indies merchant, presented a petition of London merchants reflecting their alarm at drastic action that might be taken by their American debtors. Charles Garth, agent for South Carolina, worked up a petition that he had induced a few South Carolinians to sign. Richard Jackson presented a Connecticut petition, but Parliament refused to hear any of them on the ground that the petitions questioned Parliament's authority. No one dared to introduce the New York petition, which was deemed dangerous and inflammatory. But the petition of Virginia's agent was submitted by a leading Whig, Sir William Meredith. Virginia's right to petition was defended by General Henry Seymour Conway, a Wilkite and the Whig leader in Commons, who had been one of the main Pelham innocents massacred at the end of 1762. Conway was the brother of the influential Lord Hertford and related to the Walpole family. Conway recalled that the colonies had been asked by Grenville to submit their proposals, and then he proceeded to deny the right of Parliament to tax the colonies at all. But Parliament, led by the renegade Whig Charles York, rejected the Virginia petition by a large majority. The rest was mere formality. The stamp bill easily passed Commons on February 27, the House of Lords on March 8, and became the law of the land on November 1. The Stamp Act imposed a comprehensive schedule of taxes on all manner of colonial, legal, and commercial documents and transactions. These included court actions, wills, contracts, licenses, leases, deeds, and land grants, mortgages, insurance policies, ship clearings from ports, pamphlets, newspapers, dice, and playing cards. The highest tax was ten pounds for a license to practice law. Also extremely high was the tax of two shillings apiece for all newspaper advertisements, often amounting to a huge 200% tax. In addition, a steep tax of one-half penny was levied on each copy of the newspaper itself. All payments had to be made in English sterling or its equivalent, valued at the very high rate of five shillings sixpence per ounce of silver. Almost every transaction of the colonies requiring the use of paper now had to carry an official treasury stamp. Or rather, all transactions must be conducted on officially stamped paper, which had to be purchased by the user from officially appointed distributors selected by the Crown's Board of Stamp Commissioners. The corollary effect of this was to give the Board a monopoly of the sale, of all paper in the colonies. The Stamp Act thus had a devastating impact on virtually the entire economic and social life of the colony, in short, on nearly everyone. No tax could have been better calculated to inflame nearly everyone in the colonies regardless of location or social position.
the particularly heavy taxes on the legal in the newspaper professions, as well as the taxes on tavern licenses, were certain to mobilize the intense opposition of the most articulate opinion-molding groups in the colonies. Even Benjamin Franklin was alarmed, being sure that the new taxes would destroy half the circulation and advertising of the American newspaper. There were other ominous provisions in the Act. For one thing, no newspaper or pamphlet could be published without bearing the name of the printer or author, obviously in order to intimidate critics of government by forcing them to publicize their names. In another area, the Stamp Act imposed taxes on documents in ecclesiastical courts. The specter of an ecclesiastical court presided over by an Anglican bishop was thus conjured up to arouse the colonies. The penalties were severe. Unstamped evidence was inadmissible in any court. Violations could be tried in the colonial admiralty courts without trial by jury and especially, subject to prosecution, were officials or lawyers not using stamps, and any sales of unstamped pamphlets or newspapers. In contrast, government officials sued for enforcing the Stamp Act could automatically collect triple damages from their victims. The vice-admiralty courts, hitherto largely the concern of merchants, were now hated by all groups in America. Whereas the Navigation and Sugar Acts could conceivably, if torturously, be interpreted as dealing with the sea and therefore relating to admiralty courts, the stamp tax obviously could not. Thus, constitutional and economic questions, violations of political and perhaps religious rights, and economic prosperity all merged in the Stamp Act into one comprehensive and massive assault on the liberty, property, and well-being of the colonists in America. Great Britain had smashed at America with a mailed fist. The die was cast. The colonists were faced with a fateful choice. Abject submission or open resistance? Volume 3, Chapter 20 Initial Reaction to the Stamp Act The time for mere protest had passed. The colonists were faced with a hard choice among a few stark alternatives. They could meekly submit and pay the stamp tax. But this, it soon developed, few Americans were prepared to do. Or they could refuse to pay but such refusal in turn could take two sharply contrasting paths. The conservative path was to keep within the law by simply ceasing to transact any business involving paper documents. But such a reaction, while moderate in the sense of remaining within the law, could only ruin the colony by bringing all trade and virtually all economic life to a halt. The only practical path was the radical one of outright defiance, to continue to carry on business, legal and social life, while ignoring the stamp law. Such a course was, in effect, mass civil disobedience, 
and civil disobedience to the broad scope of the stamp tax was tantamount to revolution. The colonies had some precious months before the law was to go into effect, time to work out their tactics and strategy, time to plan their reactions to the tax itself. The Stamp Act was passed in early March and received the inevitable signature of the king near the end of the month. The news reached America in April. The colonists had less than seven months to decide what to do. All the conditions now existed in America for precipitating a revolutionary crisis situation in the midst of the rapidly accumulating vast tinderbox of constitutional, economic, political, and even religious grievances, nothing could have been better calculated than a stamp tax to unify the bulk of the colonists against the British government and to spur the intense opposition of the opinion-molding groups in society. But now that the culminating blow had been struck, the final ingredient tossed in, one condition alone was still lacking, articulate leadership. This emphatically did not mean that leaders were needed to create a revolutionary temper in the minds of the people. Contrary to the absurd conspiracy view of revolution, this is not the way that revolutions are or ever can be made. Ultimately, revolutions are mass phenomena and cannot succeed without the support, indeed the active and enthusiastic support, of the great majority of the population. True, an existing government can indefinitely peg along in command of only the support of the passive resignation of the majority of its subjects, but the existing government is already in command of the power apparatus in society. In contrast, a revolution, an upheaval against the wielders of power, must command the active support of the great majority. Otherwise, it will not even make a respectable showing, much less take and keep the reins of government. But the masses will not move, will not erupt, if they lack aggressive leaders to articulate their grievances and to point the path for them to follow. The leaders supply the necessary theoretical justification and analysis of the revolution's short and long-term goals. Unaided by leaders, the masses tend to accept each act of tyranny, not out of willing agreement, but from failure to realize that successful opposition can be mounted against the status quo. The articulation by the leaders is the final necessary spark that ignites the tinderbox of revolution. At first, the general reaction was, naturally enough, a kind of numb despair and grudging resignation. In the beginning, the colonists simply assumed that they would have to pay the stamp tax, Open defiance seemed hopeless and out of the question. Only one or two scattered incidents broke the general colonial reaction of stunned silence. Many newspaper printers sullenly sent each other wooden shoes as a proper badge of the slavery the Stamp Act must reduce all printers in America, too. The first to break the silent consternation 
was an article in the liberal Providence Gazette of May 11 under the pen name of A Plain Yeoman. The Gazette was the organ of retiring Governor Stephen Hopkins, and it has indeed been intimated that the Plain Yeoman was none other than Hopkins himself. The Plain Yeoman carried the theory of the protesting Americans to a far higher pitch, which was to resound and take hold in later years. After denouncing the parliamentary invasion of the American right to be free of English taxation, and castigating parliamentary refusal to hear American protests, the author went straight to the British charge that Americans were seeking independence. Here, Plain Yeoman expounded the new theory that the colonies were indeed not dependents of Britain or the British Parliament. Instead, America and Britain were only equal common subjects of the king. I know of no dependence in relation, only that we are all the common subjects of the same king. The implication, though not yet openly asserted, was that Parliament had no right to impose any legislation, not merely taxation, upon the colonies. A previous statement of this position appeared also in the Providence Gazette during the Sugar Act protest of the preceding August. The independence of not being taxed without consent was to be maintained as part of the birthright of all the king's free subjects without distinction. The plain yeoman also leveled a brilliant blast against the argument of the Tories that various precedents already existed for parliamentary taxation of the colonists. He attacked the common legal notion that a precedent clearly establishes a point, whether the precedent be footed on justice and reason or on whim and arbitrariness. And here he quoted, as Hopkins was wont to quote, from the witty and prospective apercy of Dean Jonathan Swift. It is a maxim among these men, lawyers, that whatever has been done before may legally be done again, and therefore they take special care to record all the decisions formerly made, even those which have, through ignorance or corruption, contradicted the rules of common justice and the general reason of mankind. These, under the name of precedents, they produce as authorities, and thereby endeavor to justify the most iniquitous opinions. The ringing article of the Plain Yeoman drew some attention in the colonies, and was reprinted in such papers as the Maryland Gazette, but it remained for a brief time an isolated expression. Meanwhile, a leader was about to arise in Virginia, who was destined to blow the whole explosive situation apart. Volume 3, Chapter 21 Patrick Henry Intervenes Like other colonists, Virginians had no notion at first of how to meet the new situation, and by assuming that they simply must, they began to bear the new burdens with pacific resignation. The protest of the previous year had been unsuccessful, what was there now to do but submit? The powerful House of Burgesses, the elected lower house of the legislature, felt it could do nothing, 
and one by one the Burgesses drifted back home as the house occupied itself with minor business. By the third week in May, only about a third of the Burgesses remained, and a merchant of Falmouth, Virginia, reported that talk about the Stamp Act had subsided much. Into this sleepy situation stepped a new member just admitted to the house, the brilliant young lawyer and orator Patrick Henry. Virginia's champion against the Anglican establishment in the Parsons' cause battle. Admitted to the house on May 20, Henry quickly mobilized the young members against the naturally conservative and staid elder statesman of Virginia's planter oligarchy. In nine short days, Henry drafted and introduced five resolutions of vigorous protest against the Stamp Act. A furious debate ensued over the resolutions. The conservative and timid ruling planter oligarchy of the Burgesses, led by Speaker John Robinson, former Speaker Peyton Randolph, Judge John Randolph, Judge Wythe, Colonel Richard Bland, Edmund Pendleton, and Robert Carter Nicholas, furiously opposed the resolutions. Against them was arrayed a lesser group of landowners, to be sure, whose main distinction was relative youth and daring. Leading the Henry group were young Robert Munford and John Fleming. It was not that the older leadership in any sense favored the Stamp Act. It had led the protest of the year before and would not be particularly opposed to the revolutionary movement in later years. If there was any class struggle involved here, it was largely a struggle of the classes of youth versus age, of daring versus a natural conservatism. The highlight of the debates was a fiery speech by Patrick Henry, who impressed young Thomas Jefferson as appearing to me to speak as Homer wrote. Henry cited the principles of English liberty and self-taxation as the fortress of freedom. Finally, Henry darkly and courageously laid down this famous warning, Tarquin and Caesar each had his Brutus, Charles I his Cromwell. And as for George III, he did not doubt that some good American would stand up in favor of his country. Speaker Robinson indignantly exploded that this was treason, as indeed it was to anyone who doomed the British king a proper sovereign thus betrayed. Robinson also denounced the other members of the House for not stopping Henry's treasonable remarks earlier. Henry, seeing that tactically he had gone too far, apologized, protested his loyalty to the king, and attributed the error to his passionate interest in his country's dying liberty. When other Burgesses then moved to accept Henry's apology, Robinson finally dropped his clear threat to proceed against the young representative. Although the five resolutions, the Virginia Resolves, were voted upon separately by the Burgesses, they actually formed a coherent and related whole. The first two of Henry's resolutions merely asserted the rights of every Virginian to the time-honored liberties and privileges of Britons. The third resolution declared the vital principle of self-taxation by the colonist 
as essential to the British Constitution. The fourth resolution pressed the colony's right to be governed solely by laws passed by their own consent and approved by the royal governor. In short, it denied the right of Great Britain to govern the colony's internal matters. All of these resolves were passed by the House of Burgesses on May 30 by a vote of 20 to 17. The fifth resolution was more sharply edged, but was actually implied in the third. It resolved that therefore the General Assembly of this colony have the only and sole exclusive right and power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony. Any attempt to place that power elsewhere has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. A bitter debate raged around this final action resolution, which passed by the narrowest of margins, 20 to 19, with Speaker Robinson anxiously ready to vote nay should the vote be a tie. The Henry Radicals then offered two culminating resolutions. The sixth flatly declared that Virginians were therefore not obliged to obey laws not enacted by their assembly, an evident call for civil disobedience to the stamp tax, whereas the seventh went so far as to label anyone maintaining the right of Parliament to tax the colonies a traitor and an enemy to the colony of Virginia. If the far milder fifth resolve could pass by only one vote, it is no surprise that these two were handily defeated. At this point, Patrick Henry, thinking that the five resolves were safely passed, made the grave tactical error of leaving for home. Taking advantage of Henry's departure, the old guard, on the next and final day of the session, moved to rescind all of the resolves and did manage to expunge the vital fifth resolution. The conservatives had been able to defeat the sixth and seventh resolves and to expunge the fifth from the record of the House of Burgesses, but they were not able to keep any of them from the minds and hearts of the American people. News of the seven Virginia resolves spread like wildfire through the colonies, providing the needed spark that aroused them from their stolid resignation to active resistance to the hated Stamp Act. By mid-June, copies of the resolves were being passed around in Philadelphia, from there, they were sent to friends in Newport, and on June 24, the Newport Mercury became the first newspaper to publish these rousing and exciting resolutions. The other colonial papers quickly picked up the news from the Mercury and reprinted the resolves. Virginia's stirring example to the other colonies was not just the mild first four resolutions, but the entire seven, including the dramatic and fiery last three. The colonists taking their cue from the Newport Mercury and all the other newspaper accounts were under the firm impression that all seven resolutions had been passed by the House of Burgesses. This misunderstanding came about by a supreme irony. Joseph Royal, the reactionary editor of Virginia's only newspaper, the Virginia Gazette, 
was so offended by even the mild first four resolutions that he refused to print any of them. As a result, the papers in the other colonies could only receive their information unofficially, and Henry and his radicals, in a master stroke of tactics, took care to feed all seven resolutions to the press, as if they all had passed the house. As the Morgans have phrased it, Henry and his friends, having failed to secure passage of their most radical items in the house of Burgesses, were able to get them passed unanimously in the newspapers. The Virginia Resolves, aided by the Henrician codicils, were important less for themselves, that is, as protest by a colonial assembly, than as a clarion call to the American people. For in the final analysis, the colonial assemblies, protest all they might, could do nothing to defeat the stamp tax. And this would have been true even if the assemblies had taken the unlikely step of moving not to enforce the tax and moving to withhold the salaries of the judges who did so. For the enforcement officials were mostly royal officials, beyond the power of assemblies. Especially out of reach were admiralty judges and customs officers. To be defeated now, the stamp tax would therefore have to be nullified by the direct action of the American people, by mass civil disobedience. The tax, in short, could not be actually resisted in the assemblies. It could only be resisted and nullified in the streets. Assembly resolves would be important now only as a call to revolutionary mass action. Volume 3, Chapter 22 Sam Adams Rallies Boston The vital question, then, was what the reaction of the people of the several colonies would be to Patrick Henry's trumpet call. A preponderance of the people were clearly delighted. Most of the colonists found out about the Virginia Resolves by early July. By mid-August, Governor Francis Bernard of Massachusetts was warning the Crown that two or three months ago I thought that this people would submit to the Stamp Act without actual opposition, but the publishing of the Virginia Resolves proved an alarm bell to the disaffected. And the British General, Thomas Gage, stationed in New York, called the Resolves the signal for a general outcry over the continent. But if most of the people were awakened and stirred by Henry and Virginia, who would lead them? For the masses cannot act without some form of organization and articulate leadership. No help, of course, could be expected from the arch-Tory and opportunist Benjamin Franklin. Franklin predictably adjusted meekly and easily to the Stamp Act, we might as well have hindered the sun setting. Let us make as good a night of it as we can. Franklin proceeded to make a good night of it indeed. Having happily filled the colonial post office with his relatives, he advised his fellow colonial agents to get themselves or their friends appointed as stamp masters, the crown officers in charge of distributing the stamps in the colonies. Acting on this advice, Jared Ingersoll, Connecticut's agent in London, accepted the post of Connecticut stamp master, and Franklin was able to get his henchman, John Hughes, appointed stamp master 
in Pennsylvania. Franklin's reaction on reading the Virginia Resolves is therefore not at all surprising. Denouncing the rashness of the Virginia leaders and the madness of the populace, Franklin advised Hughes to act as a faithful and loyal servitor of the crown in enforcing the stamp tax. And Franklin's friend and ally in dominating Pennsylvania politics, Joseph Galloway, wrote many newspaper articles in favor of the Stamp Act. If no help was to be expected from such Tories as Franklin in rallying popular opposition to the Stamp Act, what of the popular liberal leaders? A grave problem was the defection of erstwhile and future radical liberal leaders. Thus, stunned and temporarily alienated by the bold courage of Henry's resolves, Alexander MacDougall and John Moran Scott of New York, generally radical leaders of that colony, pronounced the resolves to be treasonable. But the major blow to the libertarian cause came in Massachusetts. There, James Otis, Jr., long-time leader of the Boston Liberals and spark-plug of American protest, began to defect from the liberal cause. Otis showed increasing signs of deviousness and instability, and perhaps of the insanity that was to plague him in later years. It is true that as early as June 8, when Massachusetts received word of the Stamp Act, Otis proposed that the Massachusetts Assembly send a circular letter to the other colonial assemblies, inviting them to a general congress to be held in New York in October, to ask Britain for relief. But, on the other hand, in May, Governor Bernard had happily reported to the Crown that Otis now repents in sackcloth and ashes for writing The Rights of the Colonies, and that a new pamphlet of Otis's humbly begs Britain's pardon for his former stand. Furthermore, Otis's call for Stamp Act Congress was all well and good, but it would, after all, be another, if larger, assembly ineffectually petitioning Parliament for relief. The important thing was the popular reaction to the Virginia Resolves, and here Otis showed his change of heart by denouncing them as treasonable. And while Otis erratically continued to denounce the British in anonymous contributions to the radical Boston Gazette, his public statements lauded the power of Parliament and went so far as to ask for British troops to put down the rebellious Americans. If salvation was to come, it would not be from James Otis or from the Stamp Act Congress. Massachusetts, and especially Boston, had for years now been the great center of libertarian resistance to the depredations of Great Britain. But now its old spokesman, James Otis, was no longer fit to lead the liberal cause. Oxenbridge Thatcher, who had written Massachusetts' original principled protest against the Sugar Act before being watered down by Hutchinson, exclaimed when he heard of the Virginia Resolves, They are men. And Thatcher, or a friend, immediately wrote in the Boston Gazette a fervent defense of the resolves against conservative Massachusetts critics. 
The people of Virginia have spoke very sensibly, and the frozen politicians of Massachusetts say they have spoke treason. Pray, gentlemen, is it treason for the deputies of the people to assert their liberties or to give them away? We have been told that it is not prudence for us to assert our rights in plain and manly terms. Nay, we have been told the word rights must not be once named among us. Cursed prudence of interested designing politicians. But Oxenbridge Thatcher lay on his deathbed. Was there then no one to rouse the people? No one to lead the Boston masses into the streets, to serve as the spearhead and vanguard of an American revolution against the Stamp Act? Yes, there was one man. If Otis was a dependable, radical leader no more, and if Thatcher lay dying, there was still the magnificent Sam Adams. Adams saw clearly that the real fight against the stamp tax would have to take place in the streets. He saw that the locus of pressure and unrest must be the appointed royal officials, the enforcers of the Stamp Act. In particular, that popular pressure should focus on the stamp distributors, the royal appointees who were in charge of selling the stamped paper and who were happily preparing to assume their lucrative posts. In the early summer of 1765, Sam Adams gathered together a group of Bostonians to lead and direct the people of Boston in the streets. The group was called the Loyal Nine. Like the membership of Adams's caucus club, which comprised a cross-section of the town's occupations from shipyard workers to wealthy merchants. The Loyal Nine was a diverse group. It included two distillers, Thomas Chase and the wealthy John Avery, Benjamin Eads, printer of the Boston Gazette, the Liberals' party organ, small businessmen, artisans like the braziers Stephen Cleverly and John Smith, the jeweler George Trott, and Henry Bass, a cousin of Adams. The headquarters of the group was Chase's Distillery at Hanover Square. Adams rapidly worked out a remarkably efficient structure for the radical movement. The vulnerable public leaders of the fight, legislators, ministers, and others, were not directly identified with the popular mobs. The effective liaison and direction were maintained through the Loyal Nine led by Adams, even though he was not an official member. The Bostonian populace was unified into an effective force with the various groups, from wealthy merchants to the bully boys of the taverns, playing complementary roles in the struggle. For the mass base of the popular mobs, Adams was able to utilize the gangs of the North End and of the South End of Boston. Every year on Guy Fawkes Day or Pope's Day, November 5, Boston's celebration of the defeat of the Catholic gunpowder plot of 1605 was traditionally climaxed by a quasi-friendly but violent clash between citizens of the North End and the South End. In time, each section had developed a gang for this purpose, 
and trained its members in paramilitary fashion to a finely honed edge. Every year also the quasi-friendly fighting became a bit bloodier. Particularly effective was the South End Gang, which had been victorious in the 1764 brouhaha. The gang was headed by the shoemaker Ebenezer McIntosh, whose South End forces totaled 2,000 men. Adams was able to press McIntosh and the South End into action as his mass base, and by August 14, the radical liberals, smoothly organized by Adams, were ready to strike. Adams was ready to give the signal for the first mob action against the Stamp Act, a deed that set the pattern and furnished the inspiration not only for further riots against the Stamps, but for all the riots down to the American Revolution. Adams realized that the focus of attack must be the Stamp Master. On the morning of August 14, a Boston mob, directed by Adams, and the Loyal Nine, hung an effigy of Andrew Oliver on a tree, dubbed the Liberty Tree, in Newberry Street. Oliver, a brother-in-law of the Tory Lieutenant Governor, Thomas Hutchinson, had been appointed stamp distributor in Massachusetts. Alongside Oliver hung in effigy the symbol of the hated Lord Butte, a large boot with an image of the devil crawling out of it. The affair was a challenge flung at the royal government. Some of the shrewder members of the council advised Governor Bernard to dismiss the whole episode as ostensibly a silly prank. But Bernard, furious at the hard-hitting attacks in the Boston Gazette, decided to accept the challenge. He was also advised to do so by Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson, an able theoretician and the chief beneficiary of the Tory cause in Massachusetts. As Chief Justice, Hutchinson ordered the sheriff to cut the effigy down, and the council washed its hands of responsibility by turning the problem over to the sheriff. There was a considerable slip, however, twixt order and execution. The sheriff, to his amazement and dismay, found that the effigy could be cut down only by risking the officers' lives at the hands of the populace. The effigy was, so to speak, the opening gun of the struggle. The radicals now decided to hammer the point home. By evening, a large crowd had gathered at the Liberty Tree. They cut down the effigy and, bearing it up, began to march in a mock funeral procession. The mob included wealthy merchants, many disguised in the work clothes of her laborer, and was led by Ebenezer McIntosh at the head of his South Enders. First, the mob went to the council building, where they made their presence felt, and where they shouted the stirring slogan, Liberty, Property, and No Stamps. The slogan was evidently patterned after the Liberty, Property, and No Excise of the Cider Tax Rebellion in the West of England two years before. After impressing the council, the mob proceeded to serious business. Andrew Oliver had just finished constructing a building at his dock 
and it seemed plausible that from here he would distribute the stamped paper. There, at the Kilby Street dock, the mob quickly raised the menacing building completely to the ground. From there, the disciplined crowd moved on to Oliver's home, where they put on an impressive show for that worthy by beheading Oliver's effigy. The graphic lesson did not escape the stamp master's understanding, especially as it was promptly followed by a shower of stones. From there, the mob climbed a nearby hill and ritualistically stamped Oliver's effigy and burned it in a huge bonfire. At that point, the more gentlemanly members of the crowd, lacking taste for more violence, quietly went home. Ebenezer McIntosh was left to do what had to be done next. McIntosh and the crowd now returned to Oliver's home and smashed into the house calling loudly for Oliver and threatening to kill him on the spot. Finding that Oliver had fled to the military post on the island of Castle William, the mob did the best it could by destroying the interior of his home. Governor Bernard ordered the militia to beat the drums to sound an alarm, only to find, to his consternation, that the drummers were all in the mob. Hastily, Bernard, realizing that discretion was the better part of valor, also skipped town to the safety of Castle William. Thomas Hutchinson, the Tory Ultra, was made of sterner stuff. He walked with the sheriff to the Oliver home to order the mob to disperse. Seeing them, one of the mob's leaders shouted, "'The governor and the sheriff! To your arms, my boys!' A hail of stones fell upon the august officials as they hurried away. August 14. Here was a day to live in song and story. The first revolutionary blow had been struck by the colonists against the tyranny of the British grand design. For many years, August 14 was celebrated throughout America as the happy day on which liberty arose from a long slumber. Or, as Sam Adams thundered, the people shouted, and their shout was heard to the distant end of this continent. The next day, the liberal leaders pressed their advantage and continued the work that the mob had begun so skillfully. They visited Oliver and informed him that the previous night was just a sample of what he could expect unless he resigned his office immediately. Here, then was the main point of the mob action. Revolutionary pressure on all stamp masters to resign their offices and thus make impossible the distribution of any stamped paper and hence any enforcement of the stamp tax. Oliver promised to ask the Crown for permission to resign and meanwhile to take no action to enforce the stamp tax. This reply satisfied the radical leadership and the loyal nine, but the radical masses sensibly wanted to make very sure to dot the I's and cross the T's. In short, they demanded nothing less than Oliver's immediate resignation. On the evening of the 15th, the mob built another large bonfire and threatened to raise Oliver's house to the ground. 
The leaders were able to dissuade them, and the rank and file contented themselves with surrounding the house of Thomas Hutchinson. They called for his presence, but in vain. Hutchinson had fled. He knew that this time the mob meant business. Adams and the loyal nine were jubilant. Their mass pressure had forced the stamp master to resign, and his example was a standing warning to anyone with the temerity to take his place. When one Tory declared that he would not have been as spineless as Oliver, the loyal nine taught him an instructive lesson by publicly fixing the date when his house would be destroyed. The Tory quickly came to his senses and retracted his statement. The leaders now saw that mass action need not stop with the intimidation of Oliver, that more could be and needed to be done. In particular, they saw that it was necessary to cow not only the stamp master, but also the whole clique of Tory officials appointed by the Crown. They were the enemy, and not simply an isolated stamp distributor. Particularly, the suspicion grew, with good reason, that Thomas Hutchinson had secretly favored the stamp tax and that he was their most dangerous enemy within Massachusetts. The leaders also saw the sweep of public opinion on their side. Few people criticized the events of the 14th, and the leading congregational ministers of Massachusetts, liberals all, blessed the mob action and virtually called for more. Especially ardent in favor and resistance to the stamp tax were the Reverend Andrew Elliott, the Reverend Charles Chauncey, the Reverend Samuel Cooper, and, doubly especially, the great libertarian Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. These men were friends of the secular leaders of the people, Adams, Otis, the wealthy Boston merchant John Hancock, the brilliant young lawyer from Braintree, John Adams, and so forth. Mayhew was particularly ardent in attacking arbitrary power, in battling the Stamp Act, and in championing the right of resistance by the people. He warned menacingly that the Stamp Act could not be enforced in Massachusetts without bloodshed, and he emphasized that there were 60,000 fighting men in this colony alone. On the night of August 26, the radicals struck again, escalating their revolutionary blows. The mob gathered in full force around a bonfire in King Street, blowing on whistles and horns, and shouting enthusiastically for liberty and property. Then, revealing striking discipline and coordination, the mob, under the generalship of Ebenezer McIntosh, split into several sections, each with its assigned tasks. One group went to the home of William Story, deputy register of the Admiralty Court, Story, suspected of writing reports to England denouncing the Boston merchants, received treatment benefiting his actions and status. The mob destroyed his papers, including his public papers, that would list the violators of customs regulations and wrecked his home and office. Another group went after another key enemy, Benjamin Hollowell, the controller of the customs, who had angered the Boston merchants by rigorous enforcements of the trade laws.
Hallowell's house was also wrecked, and his papers, containing written records relevant to enforcement of the British regulations, carried away. McIntosh now united two sectors of the mob and marched on to the pièce de résistance of the evening, the home of Thomas Hutchinson. Before the 26th, several opportunities had been given to Hutchinson by the Liberals to deny his complicity in passing the Stamp Act, but Hutchinson stood on his offended dignity and repeatedly refused to make the denial. Even on the day of the 26th, Hutchinson was given a final opportunity to deny the charge, but he refused to do so. The people could only interpret the lieutenant governor's lofty silence as assent, so they proceeded to wreck his house with a zeal and thoroughness surpassing their ardent work of the night of August 14. The attack on the home of Thomas Hutchinson served to polarize the political conflict in Massachusetts. It was one thing to use the mob to put the fear of God into the stamp distributor and the customs collector. No one, after all, could sympathize with these bureaucrats but their own families. But an attack upon Hutchinson was a different story. Hutchinson was the nucleus and the leader of the small but powerful clique of oligarchs who were privileged by the royal government. An attack against him could only be interpreted as an attack upon the clique as a whole. The struggle against Great Britain had now become, as a corollary, a domestic struggle as well. And this was not surprising, since the domestic ruling clique governed as a creature of the crown. The government grew emboldened by the protest of the Hutchinson cabal at the treatment to his home and was fooled by the tactical camouflage of Adams and the Boston town meeting in publicly repudiating the riot at Hutchinson's. The council therefore boldly ordered the arrest of McIntosh, only to find that Adams, backed by the leading merchants of the city, promptly demanded McIntosh's immediate and unconditional release. If not, they warned, no one would stand guard in the whole town of Boston, and the customs house would be pulled to the ground. The disillusioned rulers saw that Adams and the liberals were still fully in control of the town of Boston, and of the hearts of its people. Ebenezer McIntosh was set free and rewarded by the people of Boston with a town office. The class struggle view that the Boston riots were lower-class outbursts directed against the rich is rebutted by the multi-class nature of the liberal movement. Wealthy merchants backed and even participated in the mob violence which was directed only against those particular men of property engaged in enforcing British policy, the latter, not the rich or the merchants, virtually constituted the ruling oligarchy of the colony. No revolution advances in uniform, straight-line fashion. Instead, it always proceeds in zigs and zags, Adams and his allies saw clearly that it was now in order 
to slow down the movement. After all, the point had been beautifully made. Mass action had virtually forced the stamp master to resign and intimidated any potential successor. It had intimidated the royal officers, Governor Bernard having been forced to flee to Castle William, where he was governor in name only. Mackintosh had been freed, and the whole process had placed de facto power in the hands of Adams and his allies. There was at this point no need for violent actions. All that needed to be done was to wait in readiness for the fateful day, November 1, when the Stamp Act would go into effect. A minor crisis occurred at the end of September when Governor Bernard received the stamped papers from England and housed them in Castle William. The Loyal Nine threatened to storm the castle and destroy the papers, but the group was mollified when the governor assured it that he had no power whatever to distribute the stamped papers. Adams spent the intervening weeks constructively, perfecting his organization and strengthening his apparatus. The Loyal Nine expanded its organization into the Sons of Liberty, a name proudly taken from the great speech of Colonel Isaac Barre, which had warmly referred to the Americans by this noble name. The Sons of Liberty consisted of a cross-section of the occupations of the town, from poor laborers to wealthy merchants. For its mass base, Adams induced the North End and the South End to channel their rambunctious energies into more constructive deeds, and united them to the sons. For Guy Fawkes Day, 1765, coming at a strategic time for the stamp tax, Adams prepared to hold a union feast, celebrating the newfound unity of the two sections. Mackintosh was given a cadre of 150 militarily trained men to lead his mobs. The Sons of Liberty busied themselves by drawing up a list of Tory oligarchs whose homes might be sacked should the need arise. Governor Bernard now placed his hopes on the assembly, convening at the end of September. Remembering the Sugar Act agitation, Bernard believed that the rural farmers would again prove a conservative force, but he found, to his astonishment, that the stamp tax had truly radicalized and unified the whole colony. He wrote home that the rural people seemed even more violent than the annoying Bostonians. They talk of revolting from Great Britain in the most familiar manner and declare that the British forces never will subdue the inland. Furthermore, Oxenbridge Thatcher had died, and Bernard now found his nemesis Sam Adams in the House as leader of the Liberal forces. To Bernard's urging of the General Court to enforce the Stamp Act as the law of the Supreme Parliament, the House replied firmly that only the Massachusetts Assembly had the right to tax and to make internal laws for the American colonies. By mid-October, Governor Bernard was wailing to the Crown that Massachusetts was in a state of outright rebellion. The militia refused to obey his orders. 
The real authority of the government is at an end. Some of the principal ringleaders in the late riots walk the streets with impunity. No officers dare attack them, nor attorney general prosecute them, and no judges sit upon them. If Patrick Henry had sounded the clarion call for resistance, Sam Adams, the loyal nine, and the sons of liberty had now blazed the path for action. August 14 raised the standard for mass rebellion against the enforcers of the Stamp Act. Volume 3, Chapter 23. Rhode Island Responds. The question now arose, would Boston remain isolated and hence fall victim to English might? Would Massachusetts be vulnerable as the only colony to take the issue to the streets and rebel against British power? Or would the bulk of the American colonies follow and press on to victory? The question was soon answered. As soon as the inspiring news of August 14 was heard, Rhode Island, always libertarian, always indomitable, leaped to follow Boston's example. Rhode Island, enjoying a flourishing and extensive trade, had been spared the burdens of an executive oligarchy chosen by Britain. Its governors were popularly elected and were fully as hostile to British tyranny as the populace. Aside from a few royal appointees, such as the customs collector and naval officers, the wrath of Rhode Islanders was directed against the ultra-Tory Newport Junto, which had petitioned for an end to Rhode Island's charter as a home rule colony. Agitation began in earnest on August 24, when William Goddard published an special, extraordinary issue of the Providence Gazette. It was an all-resistance issue. On the masthead were inscribed two mottos, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Articles filled the issue attacking the British regulations, stamp masters, and Jared Ingersoll, the Connecticut stamp master, and praising the Boston rebels. The issue also reprinted the hard-hitting resolves of the Providence Town Meeting, which denied Parliament's right to tax the colonies and urged a demnification of all Rhode Island officials refusing to obey the Stamp Act. Moreover, the mob actions in Boston, as well as in New London and Norwich, Connecticut, were described in loving detail. Two days later, the Newport Mercury acquainted its readers with the mob actions in Boston and Connecticut. On August 27, the people of Rhode Island followed in the footsteps of Boston, Massachusetts was no longer isolated. Leading the action were three prominent merchants of Newport, the educated William Ellery, Robert Crook, and Samuel Vernon. On the morning of the 27th, a mob of Newporters marched through the streets, carrying three effigies with halters around their necks, and finally hanging them upon the gallows in front of the town courthouse. Guarding the scaffold were the three leading merchants of Newport, carrying clubs. The three marked men hanging in effigy were carefully selected, all members of the Newport Junto. Augustus Johnston, appointed stamp distributor for Rhode Island, 
Martin Howard, Jr., and Dr. Thomas Moffat. Their effigies were appropriately and suggestively strung together. Hung with the effigies was a copy of a song beginning with the warning verse, He who for a post or base-sworded pelf his country betrays makes a rope for himself. Of this an example for you we bring in these infamous rogues who in effigy swing. The three marked men quickly took the hint. Moffat fled town, and Howard and Johnston fled to the safety of the British ship Signet in the harbor, where they were joined by the hated customs collector John Robinson. For Robinson knew, as he put it, the disposition of the people towards all king's officers. The crowd then cut down the effigies and burned them in a bonfire. Nothing more was done that night, and the Tories returned to a supposed calm. But the next day news of the second great Boston riot reached the new porters, who determined not to lag in the libertarian cause. That evening a group of men headed by Samuel Crandall buffeted Robinson a bit on the street. When the group was then arrogantly chastised by Martin Howard, he thereby provided the needed spark for provoking the new porters into direct action. A mob quickly gathered and gave Howard's house the treatment that their Boston confrères had meted out to Hutchinson's. The mob had tasted action. They proceeded to the houses of their other mortal enemies. Dr. Moffat's house was raised. Each house, in turn, of the British and Tory leaders was visited, and each of the men was eagerly sought by the mob. But all of them had escaped to the signet. Augustus Johnston wanted to stand fast, but thought better of it, and fled when informed that the crowd would present him with the choice of resigning his post or being lynched on the spot. Johnston's house was visited, and only spared when his friends assured the mob that the absent stamp distributor would resign his office the next day. The revolutionary upsurge of August 28 proved brilliantly effective. His friends and family threatened as well as himself. Johnston kept his pledge and resigned his post the next day. Howard and Moffat decided to leave the dust of Newport behind them and sail back to England without even returning to shore. Thus, by August 29, the people of Newport had succeeded in forcing the stamp distributor to resign and the two leaders of the Newport Junto to leave the colony. But some of the mob now threatened to get out of hand. John Weber, a young Englishman recently arrived in Rhode Island, had actually led the mob the night before, and he now wanted more action. Weber began to insult the very merchants who had induced him to lead the previous night's riot. Apprehensive of potential blind violence by Weber and some of the mob, the other leaders turned Weber over to the signet as a kind of sacrificial offering. This betrayal of their former comrade to the British was a grave tactical as well as moral error by Ellery, Vernon, and others, who were soon to form the Newport Sons of Liberty. Weber's followers among the mob gathered quickly and threatened immediate destruction of the houses of the betrayers if Weber were not released. 
Faced with the prospect of a dose of their own medicine, Ellery, Vernon, and the others capitulated and told the naval officers that Weber was not guilty of leading the riots. The triumphant Weber, back ashore, resumed his provado and continued to threaten destruction of the houses of the Sons of Liberty leaders. The Sons of Liberty leadership was now thoroughly frightened of a mob commanded by the aimless, hot-headed Weber. They offered bribes to Weber, but to no avail. A threat of armed self-defense by the leaders got the mob to disperse that night, but the next day Weber returned to the attack, threatening plunder and destruction. Finally, none other than Augustus Johnston saved the day by courageously seizing Weber and carting him off to jail. The mob surprisingly did not react, and for a while Newport was safe from the wanton destruction threatened by John Weber. The stamp distributor had resigned, but the hated and inflexibly dictatorial John Robinson still remained, although aboard the signet. The morning after the riot, Samuel Crandall sent a message to Robinson, offering him something like the old pre-1764 arrangement of annual bribes to the customs officials for allowing the merchants freedom of trade. Crandall also demanded the return from Halifax of the sloop Polly and her cargo of molasses, seized the previous spring by Robinson and his aides. In return for Robinson's agreement, he would also be granted protection ashore from the wrath of the people. Robinson reacted in characteristic fashion by ordering the arrest of Crandall and offering a hundred-dollar reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of any other rioters. The people of Newport would not be intimidated. The sheriff returned the warrant for arrest, stating that such was impossible to execute, except at the risk of his life in the current popular climate, and no one appeared to serve as paid informer upon his colleagues. Robinson now appealed to Governor Samuel Ward to guarantee his protection ashore and to arrest Crandall. But Ward, in obvious sympathy with the rebels, had left town during the rioting and now kept suavely assuring Robinson that all was calm, that no one was in danger, and that Crandall was a peaceful citizen. However, the merchants of Newport found themselves presented with a grave problem that was soon, in different form, to plague all the colonies when the stamp tax came into force. For if Robinson remained on the ship with the custom house closed, no ship leaving port could have official clearance papers. And without clearance papers, any ship was subject to seizure on the high seas by the British fleet, the British Navy, dedicated to the crown and unchecked on the seas by the American populace, loomed as the preeminent menace to mercantile trade. Within a week, therefore, Ward provided Robinson with a bodyguard and the customs house opened once more. The port might be open, but as November 1 approached, John Weber remained in jail a constant potential of trouble to the citizens of Newport. The sheriff, indeed, was repeatedly threatened with harm if Weber were not released. On November 1, 
the Sons of Liberty organized a peaceful demonstration against the Stamp Act, taking care to avoid any mob violence that might be channeled into a movement to free John Weber. A mock grand funeral of freedom was organized that day, with old freedom arising triumphantly from its coffin. When no rescue party came, Weber, now two months in jail, tried to commit suicide in his cell. This attempt touched off a rather feeble effort to rescue Weber, resulting in but two of his followers being arrested. The Weber threat was over, but from that time on, the Sons of Liberty made sure of tight control over any direct mass action in Newport. The town of Providence was inspired by the rebellious actions of Newport, and on August 29-30, a crowd hung and burned in effigy of Augustus Johnston. However, with the British officials and Tory Junto both in Newport, Providence was on the fringes of the struggle, and could, by such action, only demonstrate its solidarity with its sister city. Volume 3, Chapter 24 Response in New York The people of Massachusetts and Rhode Island had now set the example. The other colonies were not slow to follow. Neither was the lesson lost on the appointed stamp distributors in the remaining colonies. As early as August 26, New York's stamp master, James McEvers, threatened with the same fate as Oliver, hastily resigned his post before mob action surfaced. On September 2nd, the frightened William Cox, stamp distributor for New Jersey, hastily resigned his post, even though he had received no threats from the populace. In Maryland, stamp master Zachariah Hood refused to resign, even after a mob raised his house on September 2, an act that followed the whipping, pillaring, hanging, and burning of his effigy. The people of Maryland saw that more drastic measures were necessary. They set upon Hood and forced him to flee for his life to New York City. There he was driven from an inn by New York radicals, but found congenial refuge at Fort George, run by Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Colden. Hood had not yet resigned, but he was no longer a present danger to Marylanders. New York might be free of its stamp distributor, but the potential menace of the stamped paper remained. The paper arrived from England toward the end of October, but it found the people of New York ready to meet it, headed by the Sons of Liberty of New York, formed a few days before. The Sons organized a crowd of some 2,000 New Yorkers to prevent the landing of the stamped paper. But the implacable Tory Codwallader Colden arranged for a British warship to stand watch while the paper was unloaded at night at his fortress on Fort George. That night, October 26, the following warnings were posted throughout New York City. Pro Patria the first man that either distributes or makes use of stamped paper, let him take care of his house, person, and effects. Vox populi. We dare. The evening before the Stamp Act was to take effect, a public meeting warned that the Stamp Act would be disobeyed. 
A crowd paraded through the city shouting liberty and threatening to bury alive Major Thomas James. James, commander of the troops at Fort George, had boasted that he would cram the stamps down the New Yorkers' throats with the end of his sword. The following night, November 1, a mob of about 2,000 New Yorkers, many of them former soldiers and privateersmen as well as seamen, carpenters, and rural folk, marched to the house of the hated Colden, carrying and then hanging and burning effigies of Colden and of the devil. The crowd, defying efforts of the mayor and council to disperse it, broke into Colden's coach house and paraded around the coach, later hanging the two effigies on a public gibbet and then burning them along with the coach and other Colden carriages. The mob then broke into Major James's home, smashed the interior, and leveled the house. The people had not yet attacked Fort George to seize the stamps. At this point, conservative opponents of the stamp tax bitterly tried to dissuade the people from such a bold course. Led by Robert R. Livingston and James Duane, the conservatives gained the concession from Colden that he would not issue the stamps. But the radical liberal leaders would not be put off by this tactical retreat. The stamped papers themselves must be destroyed. Armed New Yorkers pass into the city to support an attack on the fort, and posters signed by such Sons of Liberty names as Sons of Neptune, an organization of seamen, and Free Sons of New York, threatened an all-out assault on the fort on the night of November 5, unless the stamped papers were surrendered. Under this threat, Governor Colden, on the advice of the British General Thomas Gage and the New York Council, finally capitulated and turned the paper over to the municipal authorities. In mid-November, a second shipment of stamps was again turned over to the municipal corporation. The Sons of Liberty, the indomitable leaders of the radical resistance in New York City, were unsurprisingly led by wealthy merchants and lawyers and rested on a mass base of artisans, small businessmen, and laborers. Its original leaders had been the liberal lawyers William Livingston and John Moore and Scott, but they were soon replaced by better and more radical organizers who were also wealthy merchants. Isaac Sears, a privateer, John Lamb, a manufacturer of mathematical instruments, and Joseph Alacock. Volume 3, Chapter 25, Response in Virginia In some of the colonies, the stamp distributors had not yet arrived at the time of their appointment. Here, the task of the colonists was to await their arrival with vigilance. Thus, George Meserve, appointed stamp master for New Hampshire, faced as he sailed into Boston Harbor a hornet's nest of trouble. He found there a letter from the leading citizens of Portsmouth warning him of grave danger should he attempt to set foot in New Hampshire before resigning his commission. More immediately, he found a Boston mob that prevented his ship from landing for two days until they were convinced no stamped paper was aboard. It did not take Meserve long to size up the situation. 
He publicly announced his resignation before going ashore and was feted and cheered by the Bostonians in return. But in New Hampshire, Meserve found less willingness to forgive and forget. He lived in fear of popular retaliation until he agreed to hand over his royal commission to be burned publicly by his neighbors. George Mercer, a leading Virginia planter and former aide of George Washington, happily received his colony's stamp appointment in England without realizing the temper of the province. Mercer arrived in Virginia on October 30, shortly before the deadline, to find Virginia in an uproar. In the northern neck, Mercer had been burned in effigy, Upcountry threats abounded of marching in to destroy the stamped paper, and two country justices had already resigned in protest against the Stamp Act. Mercer's old friend George Washington, though opposed to the stamp tax as unworkable, was cool to the resistance, calling it ill-judged, but this had no effect in stemming the tide. Mercer arrived at Williamsburg, a crowd which included almost all the leading merchants and gentlemen of property in the colony, met him on the street and demanded his immediate resignation. When Mercer, asking for time to think until November 1, was greeted warmly by Governor Folkcare, Speaker Robinson, and the Virginia Council, the crowd rumbled and demanded an immediate decision. Friday is too late. The law goes into effect then. Let us rush in. Under this severe pressure, Mercer reluctantly agreed to give his decision by the next day, October 31. Despite the urging of Governor Fouquet to stand his ground, George Mercer reevaluated his position, and by the next morning he assured the large throng that he had not approved the Stamp Act and that he would never directly or indirectly helped to enforce it. The gladdened mob fatted Mercer and bore him in triumph around the streets of Williamsburg. Volume 3, Chapter 26 Response in Connecticut Jared Ingersoll, a high Tory of Connecticut, proved not as easy to convince as his fellow stamp masters. Ingersoll, as Connecticut's agent in London, had learned to move amiably in high Tory circles there. He had become a close friend of Benjamin Franklin, Richard Jackson, John Temple, Surveyor General of the New England Customs, and Thomas Watley, Secretary to George Grenville and the author of the final draft of the Stamp Act. News of Ingersoll's appointment as stamp distributor did not at first arouse much wrath, but by the time he arrived at New Haven in early August, the popular temper was beginning to rise. The attacks began with an article in the Connecticut Gazette of August 9 by Naphtali Daggett, professor of divinity at Yale, who denounced Ingersoll as a traitor and trenchantly ridiculed the idea that since tis decreed the country must fall, who can blame me for taking a part in the plunder? Throughout the colony in Lebanon, Norwich, Wyndham, and New London, Ingersoll was hung in effigy during the latter part of August, and the last three counties launched a movement to force Ingersoll's resignation. 
Armed companies in Wyndham, Norwich, and New London, in eastern Connecticut, threatened to march on New Haven against him. A troop of 500 Easterners armed with staves and including militia officers formed themselves into the Sons of Liberty and marched westward to greet Ingersoll at Wethersfield on September 19. Ingersoll argued and ranted, but severe threats of lynching finally changed his mind, and he was forced to confirm his resignation in front of the Connecticut Assembly. As a rationalist, old-light Presbyterian in a colony of growing adherence to a now-diluted evangelical new-light cause, Ingersoll dealt his religious group a severe blow by becoming a stamp master. The blow was compounded by the conservatism of most of the Connecticut old lights on resistance to the hated Stamp Act. With the notable exception of the Reverend Ebenezer Devotion, old light minister in Wyndham, most of the resistors and Sons of Liberty in Connecticut were new lights. Furthermore, Governor Thomas Fitch, an old lighter, though elected by the people of Connecticut, announced his intention to enforce the stamp tax and thus put paid to the old light cause in the colony. Only four members of the Connecticut Council supported Fitch in this most unpopular stand. Volume 3, Chapter 27 Response in Pennsylvania John Hughes, Franklin's lieutenant in Pennsylvania, also resisted resignation from the post of stamp distributor in Pennsylvania and Delaware. In early September, the people of Pennsylvania began to insist on Hughes' resignation. Hughes lamented to Franklin that the spirit or flame of rebellion is now at a high pitch in America, a spirit that he termed a sort of frenzy or madness. Hughes's determination not to resign was stiffened by Franklin's admonition from his privileged sanctuary in England to carry out his office, whatever may be the madness of the populace or their blind leaders. The favor of the colonial people must always be sacrificed in any clash with the authority of Great Britain. The pressure against Hughes had not yet reached a peak, since the stamped papers had not arrived in the colonies. In the meanwhile, the Pennsylvania Assembly, dominated by conservative Quakers and their Tory allies from the increasingly overrepresented eastern counties, decided by only one vote on September 10 to send delegates to the Intercolonial Stamp Act Congress called by the Massachusetts Assembly. Hughes, of course, led the fight against the move. The pressure of the people continued to mount, however, and on September 16, the radical liberals, led by Samuel Smith and aided by the New York Son of Liberty, John Lamb, determined to reduce Hughes's house to ashes. But in Philadelphia, the principal Tory leaders, Hughes and Joseph Galloway, were able to organize a gang of seven to eight hundred to guard the house. The gang consisted largely of Galloway's mass base in the city, the clubs of Philadelphian tradesmen known as the White Oaks and the Hearts of Oak. The governor and the municipal officials, like the proprietary, 
sympathetic to the resistance, and more particularly hostile to the pro-royal Franklin party, remained neutral in the struggle and prudently left town. Confronted with Galloway's gang, the popular mob contented itself with burning John Hughes in effigy. For the next three weeks, Hughes was ill and ordered to combat. But the conflict came to a climax on October 5 with the arrival of the stamped paper and of Hughes's official commission. The people could wait no longer. The radical leaders met at the coffee house of the printer William Bradford and summoned the people by tolling all the church bells and beating muffled drums throughout the city. A great crowd collected at the State House, particularly including Presbyterians. William Allen, Jr., son of the Chief Justice of the colony, headed the crowd. The governor and mayor took care to be absent from the scene. Only the Quaker alderman, Benjamin Shoemaker, attempted vainly to order the crowd to disperse. The crowd deputed seven of the prominent citizens of Philadelphia to demand Hughes' resignation with the threat of the extreme penalty should he refuse. The seven included Bradford, attorney James Tillman, and merchants Robert Morris, Charles Thompson, Archibald McCall, John Cox, and William Richards. The stubborn Hughes resisted the demand, even when learning of the threats of Virginia and Maryland mobs to kill him should he ever set foot there. Finally, the rather timid delegation agreed to a face-saving modification for Hughes. Hughes agreed only to defer executing the Stamp Act in Pennsylvania or Delaware until it was executed in the neighboring colonies. Still full of ginger, Hughes continued to harangue his enemies about their supposedly grievous crimes. He persisted in attacking the governor for not enforcing the tax, and the Presbyterians of the colony, recently united under New Light control, as rebels, as averse to kings as they were in the days of Cromwell, and some began to cry out, No king but King Jesus. Volume 3, Chapter 28 Response in the Carolinas and Georgia In North Carolina and Georgia, no stamp distributors had been appointed by November 1. In Georgia, radicals had to content themselves with demonstrating with nameless effigies. The appointment of George Angus was announced to the Georgians on November 7. But Angus, alone of all the colonial distributors, was a native Englishman, and had not yet set sail for America. The people of Georgia could only keep vigil to mete out similar treatment as in the other colonies. Meanwhile, the Stamp Act was not being enforced there. In North Carolina, Henry McCullough had naturally been the original appointee, but he prudently declined. The appointment then went to Dr. William Houston, who only heard the news by mid-November. When Houston arrived at Wilmington on November 16 to claim his commission, he was confronted with a determined crowd headed by the mayor and forced to resign immediately. South Carolina provided a notable example of radical resistance to the Stamp Act. Its leader was the great statesman Christopher Gadsden of Charleston, a leader in the House and one of the wealthiest merchants in the colony.
for his mass base, Gadsden, as in the case of Massachusetts and New York, relied on the small businessmen, the artisan manufacturers of Charleston, the bulwark of the Sons of Liberty. South Carolina's appointed stamp distributor, Caleb Lloyd, arrived at Charleston on October 18, along with the stamped paper. Immediately, lamented Governor William Bull, the minds of men were universally poisoned with the principles which were imbibed and propagated from Boston and Rhode Island. The next day the people erected a high gallows at the center of Charleston. Hanging there was an effigy of Lloyd, with a devil effigy at one side, and the symbol of a boot at the other. Written on the display were various mottos and warnings, including Liberty and No Stamp Act, and Whoever shall dare attempt to pull down these effigies had better been born with a stone about his neck and cast into the sea. That evening the crowd took down the effigies, and two thousand people paraded them around town in a mock funeral procession. They arrived at the house of George Saxby, appointed inspector of stamps for the Carolinas and the Bermudas, and still on the high seas. The crowd searched the house, but could find no telltale stamped papers which had been placed at Fort Jackson. Over a hundred Sons of Liberty, however, stormed Fort Jackson and destroyed the papers. After burning the effigies and burying a coffin dubbed American Liberty, the crowd proceeded to search the houses of Tories and British officers for more stamped paper. Caleb Lloyd fled for his life to Fort Johnson, and there he was joined by Saxby a week later. In Charleston, threats to the British officers and posters asserting the natural rights of the colonists filled the town. Finally, on October 29, under threat of death, Saxby and Lloyd agreed to suspend execution of their offices until Britain decided whether to enforce or repeal the stamp tax as a result of colonial protest. By November 1, then, the popular liberals of the colonies had done their work well. Not one stamp master remained ready, willing, or able to enforce the Stamp Act. Virtually all had either resigned or publicly pledged not to support the Act. Only two ambiguities in status remained, and these were cleared up quickly. At his refuge in Flushing, New York, Zachariah Hood, the Maryland stamp distributor, was visited on November 28 by an angry crowd of 300 Sons of Liberty from New York City, carrying banners inscribed with the slogan, Liberty, Property, and No Stamps. Hood was persuaded to resign forthwith. The New York Liberty Boys were thanked for their effective work by the Sons of Liberty of Baltimore, who assured them that Hood had escaped the just resentment of his injured countrymen. George Angus finally arrived to assume his post in Georgia on January 4. Spirited to the home of Governor James Wright, Angus distributed some paper to the customs officers. But within two weeks, angry crowds persuaded Angus to flee the country. 
plans for a march of some six hundred men on Savannah induced the governor to send the stamped paper back to England on a British warship. Thus, the ambiguities of stamp distribution in Maryland and Georgia were quickly resolved. The New York Sons of Liberty also exercised due vigilance in pursuing current and potential stamp masters. In the late November, the Sons of Liberty of New York forced the retirement of Peter Delancey from his post as inspector and distributor of stamps in Canada and Nova Scotia. A few days later, James McEvers was forced to repeat his public resignation as stamp distributor for New York. In early January, the Albany Liberty Boys warned prospective stamp distributors, and some 400 of them pulled down the house of one such candidate, Henry Von Schack. Von Schack, seeing the handwriting on the wall, hurried to a son's meeting the following day to promise never to accept the post of stamp master. He was duly cheered by the throng, and in Rhode Island, Augustus Johnston was again forced to resign as stamp distributor at the end of December. When a little later the stamped papers arrived, the Sons of Liberty of Newport ceremonially burned the papers. Volume 3, Chapter 29 Official Protest By November 1765, the stamp distributors and the stamped paper had been put out of action by the direct revolutionary mass action of the people, who increasingly formed themselves into sons of liberty in the separate colonies. Even if the various colonial assemblies had not been so timorous and conservative, there was little that they could have done. To nullify the Stamp Act, the first essential step was to put the stamp masters out of commission. This was a revolutionary act that the assemblies could hardly have done openly, especially since they were in most cases subject to the veto of a royal governor. But one function the assemblies could perform, send off official protest to Britain, asking for repeal of the noxious Stamp Act. Not much importance should be laid on these official resolves, which could only play a minor supplementary role in the great American struggle against the stamp tax. The exception to the minor importance of official resolutions was, of course, Patrick Henry's Virginia Resolves, which, helped by the shrewd publication of the final resolutions, ignited the spark of the whole resistance struggle. The first colony to imitate Virginia's example of official protest was, not surprisingly, Rhode Island where the assembly adopted the call to disobedience that everyone believed the Virginia assembly had passed. The resolution also denied Parliament's authority to tax the colonies at all, although it modified the disobedience clause to include only an internal tax, such as the stamp tax. Moreover, the Rhode Island Assembly went further, directing all officers of the colony to proceed as if the stamp tax did not exist, the Assembly promising to indemnify them for any penalties incurred in following such a course. Rhode Island's courageous resolutions, passed in September, were touched off in mid-August by similar resolves of the Providence Town Meeting, followed by several other towns, including Newport. 
The Rhode Island resolves were largely drawn up by Henry Ward, Secretary of the Colony, and Moses Brown, a leading merchant of Providence. They represented a living embodiment of the unity on this question of the Ward and Hopkins factions in Rhode Island. None of the other colonial assemblies, however, had the courage to go as far as little self-governing Rhode Island. None dared either to call for disobedience or to order officials to disregard the Stamp Act. Almost all the assemblies, however, issued resolves during the last third of 1765, denying the authority of Parliament to levy taxes, internal or external, upon the colonies, and most of them denied the authority of Parliament to extend the domain of the hated Admiralty Courts. Colonies such as Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, which had not in the previous year strongly challenged the parliamentary authority to tax, now took steps to correct their former hesitation. The only colonial assemblies that did not issue such resolves were Georgia, Delaware, New Hampshire, and North Carolina, and the last was not allowed to meet by edict of the royal governor. Volume 3, Chapter 30, The Stamp Act Congress The major effort of official protest was the Stamp Act Congress, called in June by the Massachusetts House at the behest of James Otis and the Boston Town Meeting. The Congress, which met in New York City on October 7, consisted of delegates from each of the colonial assemblies, with the exception of those of Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia, whose governors prevented the assemblies from meeting, and of New Hampshire, which declined to attend. Delaware and New Jersey met the same obstruction from their governors, but their assemblymen defied the governor by meeting informally and selecting delegates anyway. All in all, 27 delegates from nine colonies attended this early example of united intercolonial resistance. The delegates to the Stamp Act Congress were as follows. Massachusetts, James Otis, Jr., Timothy Ruggles, and Oliver Partridge. Rhode Island, Henry Ward and Metcalf Bowler. Connecticut, Eliphalet Dyer, William Samuel Johnson, and David Rowland. New York, Robert R. Livingston, Philip Livingston, William Bayard, John Kruger, and Leonard Lispinard. New Jersey, Robert Ogden, Joseph Gordon, and Hendrick Fisher. Pennsylvania, John Dickinson, George Bryan, and John Morton. Delaware, Thomas McKean and Caesar Rodney. Maryland, Edward Tillman, Thomas Ringgold, and William Murdoch. South Carolina, Christopher Gadsden, Thomas Lynch, and John Rutledge. Massachusetts could have been expected to give the leadership to the Congress, but its delegation consisted of trimmers and renegades to the colonial cause. Otis was, in one of his conservative phases, having recently called for British troops to put down rebellion. 
Ruggles and Partridge's election had been craftily engineered by Governor Bernard, and this manipulation paid off when Ruggles was chosen as chairman of the Stamp Act Congress. Ruggles had secretly agreed with Bernard to try to bend the Congress to ask England for repeal solely on pragmatic economic grounds and to recommend, in the meanwhile, passive submission to the Stamp Act. Fortunately for colonial liberty, Ruggles was not able to prevent and cripple the movement for colonial resistance. The first struggle in the Congress was waged over a declaration of principles, which occupied the delegates for twelve days. Over the bulk of the principles there was general agreement, the right to be taxed only by one's own representatives, the impracticality of any American representation in Parliament, the inherent right of trial by jury, and the evils and invasions of rights committed by the Stamp Act. The big struggle was waged over the definition of the scope of Parliament's authority over the colonies. All the delegates privately admitted that Parliament had the authority to regulate colonial trade, but the radical liberals, led by Christopher Gadsden and Thomas Lynch of South Carolina, strongly objected to any explicit admission of parliamentary authority. Such admission might leave a loophole for implied consent to such external parliamentary taxation as the Sugar Act. The first draft of the Congress's declaration, composed by Dickinson, pledged colonial obligation to all acts of Parliament not inconsistent with the rights and liberties of the colonists. But Gadsden insisted throughout on taking a stand on the broad and common ground of those natural and inherent rights that all Americans possessed, not only as Englishmen, but as men. A second Dickinson draft then changed rights and liberties of the colonists to the principles of freedom in an attempt to appease the radicals. But here, too, the radicals saw that such phrasing would commit the colonists to obey all parliamentary legislation that did not violate principles that remained highly vague. The final wording, then, only committed the Americans to all due subordination to Parliament, which, of course, conceded nothing to England since the word do remained undefined. This solution was bitterly opposed by the ultra-conservatives in the delegation, especially by Ruggles, Robert Ogden, Speaker of the New Jersey Assembly, William Samuel Johnson of Connecticut, and Robert R. Livingston of New York. Ruggles and Ogden, indeed, went to the length of refusing to sign any of the proceedings of the Stamp Act Congress. The next step for the Congress was to draw up petitions of protest to England based on its declaration. Gadsden and the Radicals urged that no petition be sent to Parliament, as this would imply an admission of parliamentary authority. But the others would not go that far, and Gadsden could be happy in knowing that the main Radical point, no explicit admission of parliamentary authority, had been carried. The petitions were drawn up and approved in only four days. By late October, the Stamp Act Congress had been concluded, 
every one of the colonial assemblies, even those that had been absent, hastened to approve the actions of the Congress, and Ruggles and Ogden were censured by their respective assemblies for not going along. Ogden, furthermore, was burned in effigy in almost every town in New Jersey, and was forced to resign his seat in the assembly. Only the Virginia House of Burgesses, prevented from meeting by the governor, could not meet to approve the Congress's resolved, but it had made its position clear months before. It must be noted, however, that the radicals were not able to generate a call for open resistance by the Congress. Rhode Island remained alone in this courageous stand, nor with Gadsden able to carry in the Congress's petition a position grounded on natural human rights, rather than one confined to the mere rights of Britons. Of the colonial resolves, only the assemblies of Pennsylvania and Massachusetts expanded their groundwork to include these libertarian natural rights. Pennsylvania referred to the natural rights of mankind, which later helped form the groundwork of Pennsylvania's Constitution. By far the most eloquent statement of the natural rights position was the Massachusetts Resolve of October 29. These logical and incisively libertarian resolutions were drawn up by Sam Adams, who had replaced Thatcher in the Massachusetts Assembly. Squarely in the tradition of John Locke's essay on civil government, Adams began by explicitly grounding British rights on the law of God and nature and on the common rights of mankind. Therefore, Adams continued, the people of Massachusetts are unalienably entitled to those essential rights in common with all men, and that no law of society can, consistent with the law of God and nature, divest them of those rights. Crucial to these natural and inalienable rights was the right of property. Resolved that no man can justly take the property of another without his consent. And from this, Adams presumed to derive the right of representation in levying taxes. Volume 3, Chapter 31, Ignoring the Stamp Tax. Immobilizing the distribution of stamps supplemented by official protest to Britain could only be the first step in the people's nullification of the Stamp Act. For once the Act went into effect in November 1765, the colonist, devoid of stamped paper, faced a critical choice either to carry on normal transactions as if the Stamp Act did not exist, or to stop all business so as not to violate the law. The latter, the conservative path, avoided any breaking of the law, but would have meant a suicidal stoppage of trade and of the courts that would have quickly brought the colonists to their knees. Many of the royal governors, gravely underestimating the fighting qualities of the resistance movement, confidently expected the latter result. They could not dream that the colonists would make open defiance of the Stamp Act a continuing way of life. Thus, as the enforcement date drew near, 
Governor Bernard smugly expected that famine would soon bring Massachusetts to a standstill. Jared Ingersoll calmly predicted that the distresses which the want of the stamped papers will occasion will put the people to desire to introduce and distribute them. But having disposed of the stamp masters, the colonists were in no mood to submit meekly to economic suicide rather than defy the hated stamp tax. For the work of nullifying the Stamp Act, ordinary business transactions within the colonies presented no problem. Contracts and exchanges could be made with the simple refusal of bothering about the Stamp Act's existence. The major problem in domestic business was faced by the newspapers, who were in an exposed position. As November approached, the press reluctantly prepared to close up in obedience to the stamp law, but their courage was buoyed by threats, especially in New York and Boston, to the person and the property of the printers should they dare thus surrender to the law. The pattern of press courage was set on November 1 with the bold appearance of the New London Gazette and the Connecticut Gazette without stamps. The great radical organs of liberty, the Boston Gazette and the New York Gazette or Weekly Postboy, swiftly followed suit. John Holt, editor of the New York paper, emblazoned on his newspaper the motto, Liberty, Property, and No Stamps, which was soon picked up by other leading papers. Other northern newspapers continued to publish, first hedging with such partial disguises as changing their titles or leaving out the printer's names, but soon they resumed publication full blast. Only in the South did the bulk of the press display cowardice by suspending operations rather than publishing unstamped. In some cases, courage returned and printing resumed. For example, the Annapolis, Maryland Gazette and the Williamsburg, Virginia Gazette. However, the publisher of the latter paper was not trusted by the liberals, who induced another printer to establish a rival Virginia Gazette, which corralled the coveted public printing contract from the House of Burgesses. Neither Charleston paper could be induced to reopen, so that the radicals of that city inaugurated a new unstamped newspaper there. In Wilmington, North Carolina, the radicals turned to violent methods of persuasion. A mob forced the publisher of the North Carolina Gazette to resume publication unstamped at the hazard of life being maimed or have his printing office destroyed. The publisher, however, found himself whipsawed between two masters, the governor and council, finally removing him as public printer for inflammatory expressions. The only Southern paper that defied the Stamp Act from the start was the Georgia Gazette, which, however, was closed by pressure from the royal governor in late November. Internal transactions and even the press thus successfully defied the Stamp Law. The real problem for the colonists was transactions necessarily involving government agencies, which could not easily sanction the continuance of illegal activities. 
the most vital question was foreign trade, on which many economic activities, especially in the port towns, depended absolutely. For merchants needed clearances from the royal customs officials to ship out of port. Without such clearance, they were liable to seizure on the high seas by the British Navy, which did not have to worry about colonial opposition or rebellious activity on the Atlantic. Domestic transactions requiring government stamps presented a much lighter problem. Marriages, wills, and diplomas could be and were informally recorded, and criminal court procedures did not require a stamped paper. Furthermore, a positive advantage accrued to the colonists, the closing of the hated admiralty courts, which were not supposed to function without stamps. Only the civil courts posed a problem for the colonies. On the crucial question of foreign trade, which could make or break the resistance movement, the colonists could either greatly increase their smuggling operations or put pressure on the royal customs officials to grant the merchants clearance papers. Both methods were widely used. The great trading center of Boston particularly had to face the port problem. The assembly had first thought to make unstamped trade legal on the ground that no stamps existed, and guaranteeing to indemnify officers who might be penalized by Britain for such action. But the assembly shrewdly decided that such a stand would compromise the cause, for it would concede the legality of the Stamp Act if there were a stamp master in the colony. Instead, the Massachusetts Assembly, unwilling to go so far as to encourage open resistance, left the whole matter to the Sons of Liberty, who were quite willing to assume the responsibility. The first step was to gain time, and this the Boston merchants, as well as the merchants of all the colonies, did by putting every possible ship out to sea before the November 1 deadline. In the meanwhile, the royal officials, the governor, controller, collector of customs, advocate general of the Admiralty Court, attorney general, and surveyor general of the customs of New England, engaged in a complex farce comedy of passing the buck in deciding on clearance policy for the port. Cutting through this confusion were the Sons of Liberty, which put intense pressure on the customs collectors and threatened to storm the customs house with a mob by December 17. Then the radicals showed their power by again forcing a public resignation from stamp master Andrew Oliver. A mob of 2,000 such as pressured Oliver could not be ignored, and the customs officials promptly capitulated, agreeing to provide ship clearances without stamps. On the night of December 17, the Sons of Liberty celebrated their highly significant victory, and it was particularly fitting that the brilliant organizer of the Radicals, Sam Adams, was feted as the guest of honor. The earliest and easiest resolution of the problem came in Virginia, which had the good fortune of having a liberal and understanding surveyor general in Peter Randolph of the eminent Virginia family. As early as November 2, Randolph advised all the customs collectors to clear all vessels without stamped paper.
Governor Foker of Virginia was also intelligent about the issue and quickly seconded Randolph's stand. The customs officials in Rhode Island promptly followed. The merchants of Philadelphia used an ingenious device of adding clearances to partially loaded cargo ships before November to extend their time of grace through that month. Governor John Penn induced the collector to go along with the scheme. By early December, however, the Philadelphia harbor was filled with vessels and the customs officials faced squarely the problem of clearances. Writing to England, the Philadelphia collectors admitted their fear of the populace should they enforce the Stamp Act, and they soon began to issue ship clearances. In a few days, the Philadelphia breakthrough was enormously widened by Charles Stewart, Surveyor General of Customs for the Eastern Middle District, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Stewart authorized all the customs officials to issue ship clearances without stamps, and again gave the threat of popular force as his justification. New York custom officials were especially relieved. They had suffered the growing pressure of the populace, particularly of the seamen, unemployed by the stoppage of trade. New England's ports were in effect blasted open by the surrender of the Boston customs officials in mid-December. Duncan Stewart, collector at New London, Connecticut, was forced to give way a few days before Boston. New Haven, Connecticut, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, followed a few days after. There was a little resistance by customs officials at Portsmouth, but this was arrested by a mob demonstration on December 26, and there was no clearance trouble after that. Except for Virginia, the main customs difficulties were experienced in the South. Maryland did not finally issue clearances without stamps at the main port of Annapolis until the end of January. The courageous Peter Randolph tried his best to open up the Carolinas as he had Virginia, but he was foiled for a long time by the zeal of the governors and local customs officials. In South Carolina, Randolph joined with the assembly, the merchants, the ship owners, and the rest of the people to battle the stubborn governor, William Bull. Finally, the resigned stamp master, Caleb Lloyd, reaffirmed his resignation and began to issue certificates of unavailability of stamps to attach to clearance papers. By mid-February, ships were sailing legally from South Carolina without stamps. Meanwhile, North Carolina's reactionary governor, William Tryon, tried a particularly shrewd maneuver in attempting to induce submission to the Stamp Act. While blocking any meeting of the Assembly, Tryon convened a private meeting of fifty leading planters and other gentlemen of the colony and tried to sell them on abandoning resistance assuring them that he personally strongly opposed the Stamp Act, Tryon urged them to submit to the tax and enjoy untrammeled trade, while he personally would appeal to Britain for special favors for North Carolina. As a further inducement, he promised to pay personally for the cost of the stamps required on papers issued by him. The leading citizens, however, 
spurned this shrewd appeal to ease and short-run cupidity, and firmly refused the offer. North Carolina suffered from closed ports until February, when the customs officials finally gave in. The one exception was the port of Cape Fear in extreme southern North Carolina. There, a particularly reactionary set of royal officials cracked down rigorously to enforce the Stamp Act. Captain Jacob Lobb of the Royal Navy had had the gall in early January to seize several vessels coming into Cape Fear because their clearance papers officially issued in other American ports were unstamped. When William Dry, collector at Brunswick, North Carolina, proposed to present the confiscated vessels at the Halifax Vice-Admiralty Court, a group of citizens from Brunswick, New Hanover, and Bladen counties gathered at Wilmington on February 18 to form an association to prevent operation of the Stamp Act. The association quickly amassed a thousand men, and marched on Brunswick, capturing control of the town and the port. Seizing the recalcitrant William Dry, the association searched for the ship's papers, and won from Dry and Captain Lobb the release of the three vessels and a promise to open the port from then on. On February 21, the citizens rounded up all the court and customs officials and forced them to swear an oath not to execute the Stamp Act. North Carolina, at last, was free of Stamp Act tyranny, and the happy citizens sailed back to Wilmington on the liberated ships. Georgia, the southernmost of the rebellious colonies, also had its troubles. Georgia allowed ships to clear without stamps until the end of November, when Governor James Wright and the customs officials closed the ports. Governor Wright persisted in his dictatorial course despite the pleas of merchants and shippers. When George Angus distributed stamped paper during his brief term of office in January, the Savannah merchants earned the hatred and contempt of all other merchants and colonists for selling out to the stamp tax by applying for stamped paper. The rural people throughout Georgia Similarly outraged, gathered in arms 600 strong on January 27, ready for an angry march on Savannah. For Governor Wright, too, discretion proved to be the better part of valor. On hearing news of the threatened march, Wright hurriedly shipped the papers onto a British vessel, where they were effectively out of circulation. Very shortly, Savannah was operating without stamps. Thus, by the end of February, even the most recalcitrant officials in the South were all permitting open ports, while the northern ports had all been opened by the end of 1765. If the customs officials could be successfully intimidated, what about the British naval officers, beyond the reach of colonial harassment, at least while at sea? Generally, the colonists found that the British Navy did not much bother to enforce the Stamp Act. Astute entrepreneurs in Philadelphia began to issue insurance policies to shippers against British seizure 
at the low rate of two and one half percent, thus indicating the lax state of enforcement. Moreover, American shippers soon began to find that they could land unmolested without stamped papers at English-run ports that themselves were obeying the stamp rules, including ports in Quebec, Nova Scotia, Florida, the West Indies, and even England itself. During the period of the temporary closing of American ports, illegal smuggling increased greatly, thereby generating further contempt for English authority. Indeed, the customs officials began to issue clearances partly out of fear that they would soon be ignored completely by the colonists. The Philadelphia officials wrote perceptively that we must now submit to necessity and do without them the stamped papers, or else in a little time people will learn to do without either them or us. Once in a while a rigorous naval officer persisted in plaguing the colonist. Captain Archibald Kennedy, for one, insisted on stopping all vessels leaving New York, even after the port was officially opened, and blocking the path of any whose clearance papers were unstamped. Since Kennedy allowed all entering ships to proceed, New York City soon accumulated a large population of discontented, unemployed seamen ready to rebel against the laws of trade. One reason for the lax naval enforcement, ironically enough, was the forced closing of the Admiralty Courts for lack of stamps. Only the Halifax Court was now open. With these courts closed, the naval officers were reluctant to detain ships for any length of time. The civil courts were not opened so quickly, but then the need was not nearly as pressing as in the case of the ports. We have seen the positive advantage of the closed admiralty courts, as well as the informal substitutes for domestic legal transactions. Moreover, as long as the civil courts remained closed, English merchants could not collect on the substantial sum of debts owed them by Americans. This blockage could only lead British merchants to put pressure on Parliament to repeal the Stamp Act. George Washington, Richard Henry Lee, and other Virginia tobacco planters, generally in heavy debt to English merchants, saw the importance of this method of creating pressure. As a result, the pressure to reopen the courts was far less than that to reopen the ports. Pressure for reopening the courts came mainly from the Sons of Liberty and other radicals who wanted the opening to symbolize judicial repudiation of the Stamp Act. Thus, as soon as the ports were opened in Massachusetts, the Sons of Liberty went to work on the courts. The Massachusetts Council was openly warned Open your courts and let justice prevail. Open your offices and let not trade fail. For if these men in power will not act, we'll get some that will in actual fact. This popular pressure was succeeded by arguments by leading lawyers of Boston. Young John Adams argued before the council that the Stamp Act was utterly void for it violated colonial rights as men and our privileges as Englishmen. When Parliament heirs declared Adams boldly, it need not be obeyed. 
and it had no right to impose taxes on the colonies. James Otis, Jr., this time, backed the Adams's view. The council wordly passed the buck to the judges of the colony attempting to wash its hands of the entire problem. The Massachusetts Superior Court was not scheduled to convene until March, but two lower courts in Suffolk County, containing Boston, were supposed to meet in January. The probate court of Suffolk County was being held up by Thomas Hutchinson, judge of the court. Hutchinson was soon told that his only viable alternatives were to do business without stamps, to quit the country, to resign the office, or keeping the stampless court closed, it was made clear was not a healthy path for Hutchinson to choose. Faced with this threat, Hutchinson consented to have his more pliable brother Foster replace him as judge of the probate court, which promptly opened its doors, followed by the inferior court of the county. Having secured the opening of their own county courts by mid-January, the Boston Radicals put pressure on the Massachusetts Assembly to open the other courts in the province. The House passed a resolution to open all the courts of the justice by the overwhelming vote of 81 to 5. But again, the Mestophelian Thomas Hutchinson blocked its passage in the council. The radical Boston Gazette, spearheaded by Otis, denounced Hutchinson bitterly. But the council, not wanting to take any positive stand, also blocked the proposal of Governor Bernard to arrest Otis for his seditious essay. Finally, the council again passed the buck to the judges of the colony, who in turn passed it over to the lawyers to decide. Faced with such responsibility, the lawyers, including Otis, began to stall. After a token hearing of one case in the crucial Superior Court during March, the court adjourned without taking action to await passively the now-rumored imminent repeal of the Stamp Act. Virginia displayed the same vacillation and hesitancy in opening its courts. Edmund Pendleton, a judge in Caroline County, and one of Virginia's most respected lawyers, urged keeping the courts open on the same hard-hitting grounds as the Boston Libertarians. Justice Littleton Eyre of the Northampton County Court took the same stand. But the other judges were far less courageous, and they dithered along without taking the decisive step. The Virginia lawyers tough in talk and in theory, also balked at taking the public step of reopening the courts. As a result, the courts of Virginia, as in Massachusetts, largely remained closed, with the exception of Accomack County. In Accomack, on the eastern shore, the courts defiantly reopened, but few other lower courts joined in. The story in most of the other colonies was much the same, in colony after colony, the lawyers approved the high libertarian principle of keeping open in disregard of an invalid stamp tax, but timorously continued to delay putting their high ideals into practice. The judges likewise continued to stall until the thrilling news of repeal of the Stamp Act reached the colonies in early April and took them all off the spot. 
This was conspicuously the case, for example, in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. In New Jersey and Pennsylvania, however, a few lower courts managed to remain open. In New York, an attempt by judges of the Court of Common Pleas to reopen was harshly crushed by a threat of Governor Henry Moore to fire any judges who dared to open without stamps. The courts of South Carolina also dithered throughout the period, but by March, justices of the Charleston Court of Common Pleas attempted to reopen. They were responding to pressures by merchants, traders, and their associated Sons of Liberty in Charleston, and backed by the South Carolina Assembly. However, the judges were blocked in this effort by the court clerk, Dougal Campbell, and by Governor Bull. Among the colonies, then, only four, New Hampshire, Maryland, Delaware, and Rhode Island, opened all of their courts before the repeal came through. Meeting in early February, the New Hampshire Superior Court overruled the obstructionism of its clerk, and the victory was promptly hailed by the Portsmouth Sons of Liberty. Some of Maryland's lower courts opened as early as November, but the Superior Court did not open until forced to do so in early April by repeated demands at a mass meeting at Annapolis of the Sons of Liberty from all over the colony. The courts of Delaware were opened in February under severe pressure from its grand jury, which refused to perform its task of making criminal indictments, which were not subject to the stamp tax, until the civil courts agreed to reopen. Little Rhode Island was unique among the colonies. There all the courts remained open without interruption. In this colony, the backbones of the judges were fortified by the Assembly's pledge to indemnify all officials who ignored the Stamp Act, and all the courts continued happily to function. In one case before the Superior Court, the hated ex-stamp master Augustus Johnston refused to prosecute in his capacity as King's attorney. The court expressed its contempt for British rule by replacing Johnston as Attorney General with Silas Downer, Secretary of the Providence Sons of Liberty. While most of the colonial civil courts, especially the Superior Courts, remained closed during the Stamp Act era, it is clear that legal and judicial shilly-shallying could not have continued forever. Mounting popular pressure undoubtedly would soon have forced a general reopening of the courts had not repeal intervened. However, it is likely, from their attitude, that the judges would have proceeded timorously on the practical ground that stamps were unavailable rather than have taken a stand on constitutional principle. Volume 3, Chapter 32 Government Replaced by the Sons of Liberty the Stamp Act was, in effect, nullified throughout the period of its official enforcement in the colonies. It was nullified by the official bodies of the colonies, but even more so by the direct action of the people enforcing the stamp masters to resign, in carrying on business and trade as usual in defiance of the Stamp Act, and enforcing the royal customs officials to allow ports to remain open to ships without stamps. 
corollary to this process of revolutionary mass nullification of the Stamp Act was a highly significant phenomenon that increasingly occurred in the colonies, a withering away of the authority of all organs of government and a virtual shift to a condition of quasi-anarchism. The revolutionary situation rendered the royal executive impotent and the colonial assemblies ineffective. The judges did not usually meet, and when they did it was at the behest, rather, of the radical organizations of the people than of the legally constituted authority. In short, effective rule of the colonies passed from the organs of government to voluntary organizations, to the Sons of Liberty and their popular allies. Such a shift of rule and of majority obedience from state organs to voluntary organizations is certainly a hallmark of a situation of near anarchism. The conditions differed, however, from those of the earlier anarchism in late 17th century Pennsylvania in two ways. One, local governments in this case remained in existence. Two, the anarchism was not, as before, totally pacifist and devoid of all institutions of defensive force against criminal invasions of person or property. As in all revolutionary situations, the breakaway of popular allegiance to constituted government implied a breakdown of that government into voluntary self-governing actions by each individual. It was indeed voluntary cooperative action among the people without benefit of official sanction or of compulsory revenue from taxation that brought rule to such private organizations as the Sons of Liberty. The philosophical meaning of this process has been brilliantly elucidated by the late 19th century libertarian constitutional lawyer from Boston, Lysander Spooner. Spooner's analysis, dealing with the American Revolution, in a sense applied far more aptly to the Stamp Act crisis, in which no new governmental forms intervened to alter the course or the meaning of that crisis. Spooner wrote, The revolution was declared and accomplished by the people, acting separately as individuals and exercising each his natural rights, and not by their governments in the exercise of their constitutional powers. Each declared for himself that his own will, pleasure, and discretion were the only authorities he had any occasion to consult in determining whether he would any longer support the government under which he had always lived. And if this action of each individual were valid, and rightful, when he had so many other individuals to keep him company, it would have been, in the view of natural justice and right, equally valid and rightful if he had taken the step alone. He had the same natural right to take up arms alone to defend his own property against a single tax gatherer that he had to take up arms in company with three million of others to defend the property of all against an army of tax-gatherers. 
Thus the whole revolution turned upon, asserted, and in theory established, the right of each and every man, at his discretion, to release himself from the support of the government under which he had lived. From this spontaneous repudiation of the authority of the government under which the people lived, emerged voluntary organizations to lead the popular struggle, and throughout the colonies they took the name Sons of Liberty. The Sons' directed strategy led the pressure of the crowd when intimidation became necessary, and prepared also for armed defense should the British government try to enforce its laws with force majeure. For, as the governors saw their authority crumble, it became clear that the British government was now faced with a fundamental choice to abandon enforcement of the stamp tax or to send an army to suppress colonial resistance. Open rebellion against the royal governors was very near, and they realized that they could not rely on the militia, which sided with the popular resistance. Seeing the Sons of Liberty in control of Boston, Governor Bernard was on the point of fleeing Massachusetts. Governor Penn revealed in mid-December that Pennsylvania was not more than one degree from open rebellion. And New York's Governor Colden hardly dared stir outside Fort George. If Colden had refused to turn over the stamps to the crowd, open war would have broken out. The prudent British troops knew that if the fort had fired on the people, the Sons of Liberty could have assembled an overwhelming force of 50,000 men from New York and New Jersey alone. The royal governors then kept very quiet about the stamp tax. As Governor William Franklin of New Jersey wrote his father, Benjamin, for any man to set himself up as an advocate of the Stamp Act in the colonies is a mere piece of quixotism. The governors were not disposed to being quixotic. But what of the British? Would they use an army to enforce the tax? It was clear that the scattered army in America, not yet up to authorized strength, would have to be supplemented by a new army sent from England. But English threats of cramming the stamps down American throats made Americans aware that they must be prepared to face such a challenge. Accordingly, the Sons of Liberty held meetings throughout the colonies during the winter of 1765-66 to proclaim the defiance of the citizens. The meetings of the Sons of Liberty proclaimed views that were far more revolutionary than those of the colonial assemblies. The lead was taken by the Sons of Liberty of Wyndham at New London, Connecticut. This meeting of a large assembly of the respectable populace of New London on December 10, frankly proclaimed an uncompromisingly revolutionary natural rights position, namely, that every form of government rightfully founded originates from the consent of the people, that whenever these bounds on government set by the people are exceeded, the people have a right to reassume the exercise of that authority, which by nature they had before they delegated it to individuals, that every tax imposed upon English subjects without consent is against the natural rights and the bounds prescribed by the English Constitution.
The meeting concluded that it is the duty of every colonist to oppose execution of these invalid acts, and if necessary, to reassume their natural rights and the authority the laws of nature and of God have vested them with. The New London meeting threatened every officer neglecting the people's trust with the people's resentment and hoped for no ministerial preaching of any doctrine of passive obedience. Connecticut saw the earliest and most fiery public meetings held by the Sons of Liberty, which was quickly emerging from its initially secret status. A meeting at Pomfret soon followed, and the citizens of Wallingford, on January 13, promised to oppose the Stamp Act to the last extremity, even to take the field. Sons of Liberty and other colonies were soon inspired to follow suit, and similar meetings ensued during early 1766 in Providence, New York City, Oyster Bay, and Huntington in New York, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Cecil County, Maryland, Leedstown and Norfolk, Virginia, and Wilmington, North Carolina, all pledging resistance to the uttermost and with our lives and fortunes. The eminent liberal Congregationalist divine, the Reverend Charles Chauncey, thundered that regardless of cost, the colonists will continue the fight from the interior against any British army of repression until the invaders have been driven into the sea. Daughters of Liberty arose, who swore to marry no one who was not willing to resist the Stamp Act to the last extremity. Marylanders swore to fight to the last drop of their blood, and armed resistance was deemed inevitable even in Quaker Philadelphia. Advanced strategists among the Sons of Liberty realized that revolutionary armed conflict against a British force would require coordination among the rebels in all the colonies. To this end, they moved toward a union of the various Sons of Liberty organizations. Mock funeral processions for liberty appeared on November 1, 1765, in Sons of Liberty demonstrations in Portsmouth, Newport, Baltimore, and Wilmington, perhaps by coordination. But the first formal step toward unity took place in a December 25 meeting at New London, Connecticut. There, two delegates of the New York Sons met with the Connecticut Sons and ratified an agreement of mutual military aid against any British armed attack. They also pledged attempts to seek similar agreements from the Sons of Liberty in all of the colonies. For the next few months, correspondence flew back and forth between Sons organizations throughout the colonies, pledging mutual assistance and proposing boycotts against any colony that might submit to the Stamp Act. Colonel John Durkee and Colonel Israel Putnam of the Connecticut Militia promised the aid of 10,000 well-armed men should New York be attacked by the British. Massachusetts and New Hampshire were also able to command an armed force totaling 40,000. The two New York agents, in the meanwhile, proceeded to Boston, where they procured the allegiance of the Boston Sons to the Mutual Aid Association. 
Boston soon wrote to Portsmouth and all the towns in Massachusetts urging them to join the Sons of Liberty Association. The Providence Sons of Liberty sent out circular letters to other sons pledging aid to any other harassed colonies. The Providence Sons pledged 3,000 men to the cause and eagerly approved a union of the various sons' organizations throughout the colonies. In early February, the New York Sons appointed a committee headed by John Lamb to correspond with all other Sons of Liberty for mutual aid and with a view to wielding united action against a possible British attack. The Lamb Committee correspondence with Sons organizations as far away as South Carolina. The South Carolina Sons, furthermore, pledged 500 men to assist Georgians, if necessary, to get rid of their stamped paper. Connecticut soon organized a unified colony-wide Sons of Liberty in a convention at Hartford on March 25, which called for an intercolonial association. This was followed by unified colony-wide Sons organizations in Maryland and New Jersey. The New Jersey organization of a unified Sons of Liberty was the most elaborate. Each town was to elect delegates to a county convention, which would in turn select delegates for convention of the colony. On both county and provincial levels, the Sons appointed committees of correspondence. Sons of Liberty organizations also expanded throughout New York, especially in Albany, Huntington, which appointed a correspondence committee, Oyster Bay, and Fishkill. By March, the New York City Sons were in command of a sizable armed militia. Local organizations were also stimulated in all the other colonies by active and urgent correspondence from the New York, Boston, and Connecticut Sons. Only in Pennsylvania were the Sons of Liberty relatively weak, with no correspondence committee established and no firm response to the growing intercolonial revolutionary movement. Governor Penn reported in late March that though attempts by the British to enforce the Stamp Act would probably meet with united armed resistance from all the Sons of Liberty, traveling agents of the Sons had met little response in Pennsylvania. The cause of this weakness was admittedly the strength of the Franklin-Galloway-Tory faction in Philadelphia and environs. From committees of correspondence and mutual associations of aid, the next obvious step was a unified central Sons of Liberty organization for all the colonies. The first concrete proposal for such a union came from the New York City Sons, which on April 2 urged a Congress of the Sons to form a general plan to be pursued by the whole. But there was no chance to weld such a unity, for soon the happy news arrived of the repeal of the Stamp Act. Britain's choice to repeal staved off what undoubtedly would have been an American Revolution in 1766. It is idle to speculate on what the results of such a revolution would have been, but it is very likely that the colonies would have been more united against the universally hated Stamp Act than they would be a decade later. On the other hand, 
Since the focus was on just a single tax grievance, it would be far easier, as events later proved, for Britain to end the revolutionary resistance by simply repealing the tax. Volume 3, Chapter 33, Repeal of the Stamp Act Considering the tough, ultra-imperialist policy Britain had been pursuing toward the American colonies, we may well ask, how did it finally come to choose the alternative of appeasement and repeal? And when every imperialist instinct certainly called for a tough crackdown on the presumptuous, impertinent, and presumably traitorous colonist. The chief clue to the answer was the fall of the arch-imperialist Grenville Ministry in July 1765. King George had never liked Grenville personally, and Grenville's attempt to exclude the king's mother from being selected regent in case of the monarch's incapacity from illness was just about the last straw. Grenville's open insult to the king's mother was caused by her long-time liaison with the generally hated Earl of Butte. Accordingly, King George removed Grenville and replaced him with an ultra-Whig ministry headed by the Whig leader, the Marquis of Rockingham, and included the venerable Duke of Newcastle as Lord Privy Seal. The bulk of the rest of the cabinet was new and young blood, headed by the fighting liberal General Conway as Secretary of State for the Southern Department. But the liberal millennium had scarcely arrived in Britain. The new ministry was held in general contempt. Clearly, Rockingham commanded nothing close to a majority in Parliament, and only the King's whim kept him in office. Everyone expected Rockingham's imminent fall. In this context, repeal of the Stamp Act was scarcely assured, but at least there was now a fighting chance. Charles Watson Wentworth, Marquis of Rockingham, was at this point a young man in his thirties and the political leader of the wool-grazing district of Yorkshire, as well as of the Whig movement. From his early years, his mentor in Lockean ideas of liberty had been Sir George Seville. Under Seville's guidance, Rockingham had studied at a center of liberal thought, St. John's College, Cambridge, under John Newcomb and Bishop Samuel Squire, at one time secretary to the Duke of Newcastle. The young, shy, and gentle Marquis was not, however, cast in a heroic mold. The Rockingham Ministry, friendly to the Wilkite cause, quickly quashed General Warrants and the persecution of the Wilkite press, and removed the persecutors from office, while the massacred innocents were restored to their public post. The chief test of the Rockingham Ministry, however, would come in December when Parliament would meet. Newcastle, as usual, tried desperately and fawningly to get William Pitt to join the cabinet so as to ensure a parliamentary majority, while Pitt, as usual, scornfully refused to enter any cabinet where he did not enjoy absolute power. Grumbling about the lack of a warlike spirit among the Whigs, Pitt remained aloof, in effect aligned with Grenville and Temple in maintaining opposition to the Whig ministry. Several factors joined to enlist the Rockingham ministry in a drive to repeal the Stamp Act. 
There was, in the first place, the liberal ideology of the Whigs, and in particular the long and honorable record of the Duke of Newcastle's salutary neglect of the colonies. Second, the Whigs were close to many of the merchants of England, and the merchants who traded with America were especially eager to repeal the Stamp Act. The English merchants trading with America had been hurt by the American Revenue Act and by the whole program to enforce mercantilism upon the colonies. They suffered directly as traders and indirectly in the loss of American markets caused by the British restrictions. Their devotion to repeal of the Stamp Act was further strengthened by the decision of the leading American merchants to boycott importation of English goods. The boycott was shrewdly designed to pressure the English merchants. It began shortly before November 1, when 200 New York merchants and retailers signed an agreement to cease importing from Britain until the Stamp Act was repealed. They were followed by 400 Philadelphia merchants and traders a week later, supported by Philadelphia retailers, and then by 250 merchants and traders of Boston. These agreements were joined by merchants in Albany, in rural Pennsylvania, and in Salem, Marblehead, Plymouth, and Newburyport, Massachusetts. Compliance with the boycott was remarkably widespread. Only a few violations occurred, but in these cases the radical merchants turned to violence to enforce their policy. The first breach occurred in late April in Philadelphia. There the Committee of Merchants ordered imports from Liverpool seized and locked up until news of repeal should arrive. Shortly afterward, goods from Bristol arrived at New York and were seized by the Sons of Liberty to be returned promptly to England. The principle of the secondary boycott was also applied against any exports to American ports where the stamp tax was being observed. Thus, for the short while that Georgia was using stamped paper, the Charleston Fire Company, consisting of small businessmen artisans, organized a boycott of all exports to Georgia. In late February, the Charleston Sons of Liberty, growing out of the fire company, threatened destruction of a ship about to export rice to Georgia, as well as murder of the exporters. The offending merchants thought it wiser to submit. The people of Newburyport, Massachusetts, after threats had failed, informed customs officials of violations in order to stop a schooner from sailing to Halifax, a port using stamped paper. Joined to the slackening of imports due to the restrictions and taxes, the boycott helped to cement and intensify the clamor of British merchants to repeal the Stamp Act. Another aid, as we have seen, was the stoppage of some of the civil courts that enforced debt payments to English creditors. The clamor was joined by the newly burgeoning English manufacturers who were in danger of losing their American markets and the merchant planters in the West Indies, who, in contrast to their vested interest in restricting the molasses trade, wanted the incubus of the stamp tax on their markets removed. This was the first time in English history that manufacturers were mobilized for political cause. 
The Duke of Newcastle had long been one of the best informed Englishmen on American affairs, and he was always in close touch with merchants in the American trade, especially their leader, the radical alderman Sir William Baker. As early as May 1765, the London merchants in the American trade had chosen a select committee to battle oppressive legislation and taxation of the colonies. During August and September, the merchants of Liverpool petitioned the government to repeal Grenville's oppressive acts in order to relieve the depressed state of trade, and they were followed by the manufacturers of Manchester and of the Yorkshire cities. All this pressure had particular meaning for Rockingham. The Marquis was the political leader of Yorkshire and close to the wool manufacturers there. He was also a relative of the powerful Wentworth family of New Hampshire, and was therefore very likely to favor their presentation of the American point of view. One of the joint agents for New Hampshire in arguing against the stamp tax was John Wentworth, nephew and future successor of Governor Benning Wentworth, and John exerted considerable influence upon Rockingham. Also close to Rockingham was former Boston merchant and now M.P. John Husk, who had been born in New Hampshire. Other influential New Hampshire agents were the John Tomlinsons, senior and junior, who were close associates of Newcastle. The Rockingham Ministry was inclined not only for reasons ideological, social, and economic to work for the repeal of the Stamp Act. And other repressive restrictions on the colonies, but for compelling political reasons as well. For one thing, the merchants and manufacturers joined to the London radicals could provide the Whigs with a mass base for influence upon Parliament. For another, the focus could then be on discrediting Grenville by highlighting the evil consequences of the actions of his administration. The British press kept the public well informed of the developing opposition to stamps in America. Patrick Henry's resolves received full publicity in England. When news of the numerous American riots and actions of the Sons of Liberty began to be published in mid-October, Newcastle made a swift decision to drive for outright repeal of the Stamp Act, a decision backed by Sir George Saville. In early December. The London merchants, led by Barlow Trecothick, an eminent merchant born in Boston, organized a committee to mobilize mercantile and manufacturing sentiment and to pressure Parliament, then in the process of opening for repeal of the Stamp Act. Trecothick was selected for this task by Rockingham, Newcastle, and the Whig Ministry. Trecothick was another joint agent of New Hampshire, as well as a partner of the Tomlinsons in the American trade. He was also a radical alderman from London and an important adviser of Rockingham. Trecothick sent a crucially important circular letter, inspired by Rockingham and William Burke, to thirty of the leading trading and manufacturing towns in Great Britain. Letters were also sent to individual Whig leaders in the various towns, urging them to take the lead in organizing the various petitions to the government. This letter, which has been called 
the principal instrument in the happy repeal of the Stamp Act, soon bore fruit in a deluge of petitions to Parliament for repeal of the Stamp Act from over twenty towns and cities, including Bristol, Liverpool, and Manchester. The petitions, of course, stressed not the moral or political rights of colonies, but the grievous economic effects of the measure for trade in the colonies and at home. While Parliament would have to decide on repeal, there were many good deeds that the Rockingham administration could perform strictly on its own. Above all, it could return to the policy of salutary neglect, including a seemingly bungling failure to enforce the Stamp Act. This was precisely what it did. Instructions to the royal governors on the stamp tax were deliberately tardy and vague, and confined to cloudy advice to do their duty within the limits of prudence. No British army was sent or mobilized, and the navy did not bother about the lack of stamps on the clearance papers of American ships. Furthermore, under the influence of Newcastle, the Rockingham Ministry applied salutary neglect to the rest of Grenville's restrictive program. Laxity was again encouraged. In particular, the useful Spanish bullion trade from South America to the British West Indies in exchange for English manufactured goods, which helped repay debts to American and English merchants, was again looked at benignly, even though it was illegal. Laxity was particularly welcome after Grenville's repressive enforcement had disrupted transatlantic trade habits of over a century. Moves were also undertaken to legalize informally or formally the vital American molasses trade with the foreign West Indies. Influence to this end was exerted by William Burke, the young undersecretary to Conway. Burke, who had been the leading publicist at the end of the Seven Years' War for the Whig peace terms of keeping the West Indian Islands and letting France keep the American colonies, was himself involved in the molasses trade from Guadeloupe to America. Burke was a partner in this vital trade, repressed by Grenville's program of rigor, as were his cousin Richard Burke and Richard's brother Edmund, the brilliant young private secretary to Rockingham. In originally formulating its plans for the opening of Parliament, the Whig ministry had been misled into underestimating the colonial reaction to the Stamp Act and therefore had planned to repeal or revise the Grenville Trade Acts gradually before taking up the stamp tax. They were misled largely by the special situation in Pennsylvania, including the over-optimistic reports received from Benjamin Franklin. The support for the Stamp Act by Franklin's Pennsylvania ally Galloway, the actions of the counter-revolutionary White Oaks mob in Philadelphia, and the September elections in Philadelphia won by the Royalist Party, with the aid of some 2,600 Germans naturalized and enrolled by Galloway just before the election. The Rockingham Ministry was at last becoming disillusioned about the quality of Franklin's reports and about the position of Mr. Franklin himself. The radical and rebellious temper of the colonies was becoming clear, 
and Franklin's cool treatment of the Bristol merchants opposed to the Stamp Act called his whole attitude into question. The administration now realized that Stamp Act repeal must be the first order of colonial business in Parliament. By the December opening of Parliament, then, it was clear that the most pressing problem before the government was the stamp tax. The Whigs, merchants, manufacturers, and London radicals formed the Liberal Party facing the opposition of Grenville, Bedford, Halifax, Butte, the King's Friends, in short, all of the various Tory factions. The ideological battle raged in the press. Typical of the liberal view were articles by Rationalis. Rationalis warned that Britain's harsh measures might well drive the American colonies out of desperation into independence. He argued, as had Robert Walpole decades before, that refraining from taxing the colonies would leave them free to use the money to buy British goods, an advantage to both peoples. Rationalis cited Walpole's famous aphorism, deliberately neglecting to enforce taxes and regulations in the colonies, is taxing them more agreeably both to their own constitution and to ours. Parliament opened on December 17, with the administration urging another month's postponement to allow time for public opinion, spurred by Trakothic's campaign, to mobilize behind repeal. Grenville and Bedford, suspecting an eventual plan for repeal, which had been kept secret by the ministry, issued a violent attack on the colonies and called for suppression of the Stamp Act rebellion. But the large block of Tory King's friends were willing to go along with the King's ministers, so Grenville did not put his views to a test in Parliament. Significantly, Charles Townsend and Lord George Sackville, conservative members of the ministry, both called for enforcement of the Stamp Act, although doing so while speaking against Grenville's motion. Leaders for the government in the debates were London Alderman Beckford and Baker, Rose Fuller and Sir George Saville in the Commons, and Grafton and Dartmouth in the Lords. Leading the Tory attacks were Bedford, Halifax, Sandwich, and North in the Lords, and Grenville in the Commons. Finally, the administration was successful. The House agreed to adjourn until January 14. The parliamentary task of the ministry was made all the harder by the untimely death at the end of October of the influential Duke of Cumberland, the King's uncle, and the Whigs' one friend at court. It was Cumberland who had persuaded the King to choose the Rockingham Ministry. The ministry was now clearly shakier than ever, and Newcastle began to press upon Rockingham without success, his old disastrous tactic of fawning upon William Pitt. Pitt, now pressured by both sides, continued to refuse to support any government dominated by Newcastle. Indeed, Pitt gave strong indications of favoring the exercise of British sovereignty over the colonies. 
However, the fawning upon Pitt was intensified by Newcastle as a result of the growing defection of the king's friends, who were rapidly learning with alarm of the great extent and depth of the colonial rebellion. Thus, as the crucial January session of Parliament approached, the Whigs saw their two potential sets of allies, the Pittites and the king's friends, drifting strongly toward opposition to repeal. Amidst the growing political crisis at home and in the colonies, the cabinet met on December 27 to decide finally upon government policy. Rockingham, Lord Dartmouth, Henry Seymour Conway, and William Dowdswell, Chancellor of the Exchequer and representative of the instinctively liberal wing of the country gentry, came out foursquare for outright and total repeal of the Stamp Act. There was no need to invite Newcastle, perhaps the most pro-American of them all. The big surprise, however, was a determined drive by Attorney General Charles York, a conservative renegade Whig, against any undignified concessions to the colonies. Whether or not the repeal was pushed, York insisted particularly on a declaratory act which would affirm conclusively the unbounded sovereign power of Parliament over the colonies. York also called for a penalty of high treason against anyone who might dare to attack the proclaimed sovereignty of Parliament in speech or in writing. York's stand was attacked by Conway and later by an angry Newcastle. Instead, Newcastle proposed the usual Whig game, which had worked so well in the days of Walpole, namely a meaningless declaration as sop to the king's friends, the Pittites, and the conservative Whigs. The declaration could then serve as a formal camouflage for the reality of conciliation, salutary neglect, and virtual de facto colonial independence from British rule. Rockingham himself was thinking along similar lines. But once again Pitt threw a monkey wrench into the proceedings, calling for a firmer stand against the colonies and insisting on his personal control of the cabinet. Earl Temple trumpeted that Pitt agreed that the Americans must be crushed, and to make matters worse, Conway and Grafton, personally loyal to Pitt, although liberal, repeatedly threatened to resign unless Pitt were brought into the cabinet. In the meanwhile, Butte and the King's friends, violently disturbed at the colonists' disobedience, were secretly given the green light by the King himself to vote against his own ministry, which he was already preparing to dump. What the king desired as the Tory ideal of his maneuvers was a coalition ministry with Butte and the king's friends dictating domestic affairs while leaving foreign affairs to the arch-imperialist Pitt. In Parliament, the king's friends, without joining Grenville's organized opposition, would vote against repeal thereby toppling the ministry and permitting the king to ignore the Grenvilleites, whose leader he personally hated, in forming his desired ministry. As the decisive January session of Parliament drew near, success of the repeal program seemed distant indeed. Borne down by defections within and without, harassed by intrigue, 
alarmed at the mounting rebellion, the Rockingham Whigs yet coolly and rationally stayed firm on principle, insisting on removing the oppression instead of sending force to crush the colonies. With only the merchants and manufacturers to support the Whigs, the power of the latter in Parliament was minimal, yet the Whigs refused to temporize and continued to press for repeal. Parliament opened on January 14, and the expected immediate assault on the ministry was launched by the Grenvilleites and some king's friends demanding enforcement of the Stamp Act, as well as the sending of troops to the colonies to crush the rebellion and to impose the brutal model of British policy in conquered Ireland on the Americans. At this point, William Pitt, ill and erratic as usual, exercised his charisma once more. Pitt, felled by illness and insanity, had not appeared in Parliament for two years. Now Pitt played his pivotal role to maximum dramatic effect, after having kept everyone in the dark about his position. Staggering to his feet, Pitt stunned everyone with a fiery defense of the Americans and a scathing attack on Grenville. As to the late ministry, every capital measure they have taken has been entirely wrong. The Whigs were criticized by Pitt, in an odd turnabout, for hesitancy in treating the problem. As for the Americans, Pitt averred that they had all the natural rights of mankind and the peculiar privileges of Englishmen. Only American assemblies have the right to tax the colonies. Any other dispensation would be slavery. Pitt concluded that this kingdom has no right to lay a tax upon the colonies, although sovereign over them in every field of legislation or regulation. Pitt, therefore, urged immediate repeal of the Stamp Act on the grounds that it was an unconstitutional tax on the colonies. The repeal was to be accompanied by a declaratory act asserting Parliament's sovereignty, limited by a lack of taxing power over the Americans. After Grenville answered with one of his typical legalistic speeches, Pitt's reply rose to the heights of eloquence. I have been charged with giving birth to sedition in America, they have spoken their sentiments with freedom against this unhappy act, and that freedom has become their crime. The gentleman tells us America is obstinate. America is almost an open rebellion. I rejoice that America has resisted. Three millions of people, so dead to all feelings of liberty as voluntarily to submit and be slaves, would have been fit to make slaves of the rest. I come not here armed at all points with law cases to defend the cause of liberty. I am past the time of life to be turning to books to know whether I love liberty or not. Will you sheath your sword in the bowels of your brother, the Americans? You may coerce and conquer, but when they fall, they will fall like the strong man embracing the pillars of this Constitution and bury it in ruin with them. 
Pitt's brilliant speech was a mighty blow for the American cause. Yet it is surely ironic that this, one of the few libertarian stands of Pitt's career, was to make this Johnny-come-lately a supposedly libertarian hero to the American colonist. Rockingham's thankless role was forgotten, even though Pitt had refused to coordinate his moves with the ministry, and even now continued to refuse cooperation with Rockingham. In fact, Pitt erratically continued to insist on Earl Temple's inclusion into the cabinet as the price of his support. Even though Temple was ardently defending the Stamp Act in the House of Lords, still, Pitt had drastically changed his mind. Three weeks before, he was ready to impose British authority on the colonist. Now, he stood fast for repeal. What, apart from inherent instability, had changed him? The answer lies in the trichothic agitation among the merchants and manufacturers, shrewdly directed from behind the scenes by the Rockingham Ministry and spurred by the depression and the trade boycotts waged in the colonies. During December and January, the merchants' agitation received a great boost from the temporary suppression of American shipping because of the lack of stamped clearances and from the closing of the civil courts to British creditors. The English agitation for repeal was also joined to great effect in the public press. The leading Whig publicists in the campaign were William Burke, Edmund Burke, and, particularly, David Hartley, a lifelong friend and advisor of Seville's who had first urged Sir George the previous fall to press for complete and immediate repeal. Foremost in influencing Pitt was the unanimous clamor for repeal among the merchants. All his life Pitt had been the spokesman of the merchants, especially those engaged in West India planting. But now all the merchants, whether in America or West India trade, united to urge repeal. Of the 52 merchants sitting in Parliament in February 1766, 46 voted for repeal. Of the Maverick Six, two were members of the King's Scots Block, two were agents of the East India Company, headed by the Tory Earl of Sandwich, and two were indebted to Grenville. Of the West Indian planting interests, Beckford, the Lascelles family, and the Fullers, as well as the West Country gentry, were all ardent opponents of the Stamp Act. It was therefore clear to Pitt that there was only one way for him to reattract his old mercantile West Country and West India support and to wean them from their attachment to the Whigs over the Stamp Act. That way was to make a grandstand play to shout louder than the Rockingham Whigs for the American cause no matter that the Whigs had to engage in subtle and often silent strategy to maneuver a repeal through Parliament, never mind destruction of the Whigs' well-laid plans. By thundering dramatically in Parliament, Pitt could seem to be the heroic champion of American liberty and make the Rockingham seem pale and timorous by comparison. Such is precisely what Pitt did, 
in his irresponsibly designed speech. Having tried and failed to induce Pitt to join the cabinet, the Rockingham Ministry met on January 17 to decide the strategy for repeal. Within the cabinet, a fierce struggle raged, with Attorney General York reluctant on repeal and insistent on the harshest possible declaratory act asserting the absolute sovereignty of Parliament over the colonies. York pressed alone for a specific declaration of a Parliament's right to tax the colonies, but was overruled by Rockingham and the final version of the Declaratory Act. In the meantime, a flood of petitions for repeal by merchants and manufacturers was deluging Parliament. Their zeal was intensified by the sharp drop in exports to America caused by post-war depression trade restrictions, and boycotts by American merchants. Exports to America had fallen by 700,000 pounds from 1764, a drop of over 25%. Furthermore, unemployment was now severe in the export industries, especially in shipping, and fears grew of riots by the restless unemployed. Above all, Americans owed English merchants and financiers a mass of debt, and fears of default bestirred almost every merchant in England. Total American debt to England at this time has been estimated at nearly five million pounds, and all this to be sacrificed for the sake of a stamp tax designed to yield an annual revenue of only 60,000 pounds. Skillfully timed, petitions for repeal poured into Parliament on January 17 from the merchants of Bristol, Lancaster, Liverpool, Leeds, and Halifax, from the manufacturers of Manchester, Leicester, and Bradford, and from the wool manufacturers of Yorkshire. Additional petitions soon came from Jamaica and from over 20 towns and cities, including Birmingham, Coventry, Nottingham, and Glasgow. The Rockingham Ministry's almost exclusive stress on the economic reasons for repeal and its blurring and playing down of constitutional reasons, while perhaps effective in the short run, stored up great trouble for the future. William Pitt's speech was generally misinterpreted as only denying Parliament's power of internal taxation of the colonies, whereas Pitt, as well as the colonists, denied all taxation imposed by the mother country and agreed only to the latter's power to regulate the trade of the colonies. The Rockingham Ministry, anxious to appease its vehement opposition, decided to stress the weaker limits and to give the impression that the arbitrary internal-external distinction was that of the colonist also. Thus, when Pitt and his friend George Cook tried to bring the petitions of the Stamp Act Congress, which clearly denied the right of all parliamentary taxation, before Parliament, the administration managed to suppress their hearing. In keeping with this soft-sell strategy of the 40 or so administration witnesses appearing before the House on the Stamp Act, the featured American was none other than Benjamin Franklin. The Whigs were not above using bribery 
none other than Major Thomas James, the anti-American hardline commander from New York, was bribed with a very large sum to testify in commons in favor of repeal of the Stamp Act. The daft and witty Franklin pleased the administration, not only by stressing the economic consequences rather than moral or political rights, but also by raising and stressing the old arbitrary and flimsy distinction between internal and external taxation that he and his friend Richard Jackson had originated over two years before. Nor was that all. Franklin changed the terms of the debate by his mendacious assertion that his was the dominant American argument. A completely rejected and bizarre distinction of Franklin's and of a few of his cronies was elevated by the wily Franklin to become in the eyes of the English the official stand of the American colonies. On February 3rd, two weeks before introducing the motion for repeal, the Rockingham Ministry introduced some sugar-coating for the forthcoming pill, the Declaratory Act. This bill asserted full parliamentary authority over the colonies. The crucial question of whether the power extended in full or in part to taxation was deliberately left ambiguous as sop to all factions. Here Rockingham overrode the objections of the arch-conservative Whigs, Attorney General York, and his brother, the Earl of Hardwick, who urged that the right to tax the colonies be inserted into the bill. From the other side, Newcastle believed that the declaratory bill went too far. In Commons, Colonel Isaac Barre and William Pitt made a tactical error and tried to weaken the declaration. By losing, they gave the impression to all England that the bill did include the power to tax the colonies. The Declaratory Act passed Parliament overwhelmingly, with only Pitt and a few hard-hitting liberals opposed in the Commons and Lord Camden leading the handful of opponents in the Lords. At this point, however, the Tory opposition counterattacked with a resolution calling for armed enforcement of the Stamp Act in the colonies. On February 6, the Lords carried the resolution by three votes, and Butte's vote in favor was a clear signal of the King's true wishes. The vote, ominous to the administration, reflected an alliance of the Bedford, Grenville, and Butte forces. The next day, the elated Grenville introduced a similar enforcement resolution into the House of Commons. Grenville's motion was roundly defeated by a vote of 274 to 134. Its defeat indicated a critical turning point in the entire parliamentary struggle. The leading arguments in opposition to Grenville varied from those of the cynical Townsend, who favored force but first wanted troops to be built up in America, and of Pitt, to those of the impassioned Whig generals Conway and Howard, who threatened to maim or kill themselves before killing fellow men who were, in the words of Howard, contending for their liberty. The opposition had used poor tactics. The sight of their defeat on the enforcement issue staggered the politicians and paved the way for the repeal of the Stamp Act. 
The motion for repeal was introduced on February 21 and passed early the next morning by a vote of 275 to 167. This was the decisive, though not the final vote, and the people of England rejoiced throughout the land. The government had feared an insurrection at home if repeal had not passed. The industrial towns had threatened to send mobs to Westminster to enforce their demands for repeal. As it was, the throng of merchants outside Parliament cheered Conway and Pitt and hissed and threatened George Grenville. The bells of London's churches rang all day at the happy news. Ship captains broke their colors. Manufacturers began to rehire their workers, and merchants put their ships to sea once more. The debate in the Lords opened on March 11. The lead for repeal was taken by Whigs, Lords Dartmouth, Newcastle, Grafton, Richmond, and Camden, and against by Halifax, Temple, Butte, and Bedford. The repeal passed the Lords by 105 to 71, with 33 Lords issuing a special public protest against it as weakness and surrender. The repeal was officially signed on March 18 to the accompaniment of more celebrations throughout the country. Despite this signal victory, as well as such other accomplishments for liberty as making general warrants illegal and repealing the hated cider tax, the Rockingham Ministry was close to collapse. The king hated the repeal, and during the Revolutionary War was to recall it as his only political regret. Most of the king's friends had voted against the repeal. Pitt was refusing to back the administration. By his grandstand play, he had succeeded in making himself, rather than the ministry, the hero of the merchants and of the Americans. Volume 3, Chapter 34 Aftermath of Repeal the glorious victory over the Stamp Act was, of course, celebrated throughout the American colonies. Houses were lit, songs composed, and toast drunk to the English champions of repeal. Throughout the colonies, the Sons of Liberty triumphantly directed the celebrations, and in later years were to celebrate the anniversaries of this and such other great occasions of resistance as August 14. The victory was generally interpreted as a victory also for the right of the colonists to tax themselves. Moreover, the vague declaratory act was not thought to assert the right of taxation over and above the right to legislation and regulation. The various colonial assemblies drew up addresses of thanks to the king and parliament for the repeal but did not at all yield their constitutional stands. But amidst their rejoicing, the more far-sighted colonists saw the evils inherent in the Declaratory Act, harbinger of taxation to come. George Mason, a leading Virginia planter, replied sharply and trenchantly to a condescending letter by leading English merchants warning the colonists to behave themselves and not exult over their victory. The colonists, answered Mason, were tired of being treated as schoolboys who are to do what your papa and mamma bid you. 
The Americans have been fighting for their birthright as free men and have only gained common justice. Mason reminded the merchants that the stoppage of trade brought by resistance was a critical factor in repeal. He also detailed the infinite cost and trouble, perhaps including international war, that total military enforcement would have brought. Mason also warned of the suspect vagueness of the Declaratory Act, which failed to exclude taxation from the parliamentary domain. In Charleston, Christopher Gadsden and the Sons of Liberty, one of the hardest-hitting and most uncompromising sons groups in the colonies, were not taken in by the general rejoicing. In a prophetic speech to the Sons at Charleston's Liberty Tree, Gadsden warned of the folly of relaxing their opposition in vigilance or of indulging the fallacious hope that Great Britain would relinquish her designs and pretensions. Gadsden noted the ominous implications of the Declaratory Act, and the sons all joined hands and swore to eternal defense against tyranny. Furthermore, by mid-July, Silas Downer, a lawyer and secretary to the Providence Sons of Liberty, was writing to the New York Sons, urging the need for maintaining the Sons' effective intercolonial organization, as well as the intra-colonial one, especially in view of the Declaratory Act and the consequent need for vigilance to preserve the rights of Americans. But men like Downer, Mason, and Gadsden, as well as writers in such papers as the Boston Gazette, were voices crying in the wilderness. Americans were all too willing to relax and abandon themselves to the general rejoicing at victory. The Sons of Liberty organization largely evaporated, although the leaders continued to be active, especially on ceremonial occasions. Despite the general lull among Americans, a strong residue of revolutionary radicalism remained from the Stamp Act crisis. People began to call into question more examples of existing British tyranny. For instance, in New York, some began to call for abolition of the Customs House and the Royal Post Office as being unconstitutional and oppressive. And in Massachusetts, the Whigs cemented their political hold on the province. The council was purged of pro-Tories, and a blacklist of 32 supporters of the Stamp Act in the Massachusetts House was drawn up, men whom John Adams scorned as stamp men and trimmers, and those thereon were largely purged in the elections of 1766. Sam Adams's continuing popularity was shown by his receiving the largest vote of the four Boston representatives, and the Radicals' purge cleansed the council of such Tories as Hutchinson, the Olivers, and Benjamin Lind. The embittered Tories denounced the liberal victors as subverters and scum, while John Adams exulted at the total triumph. From this point on, the council, dominated by the wealthy liberal merchant James Bowden, marched with the House on the side of American liberty. In August 1766, 
trouble flared up with the British. The Redcoats summarily cut down the Liberty Pole in New York City. Swiftly, the Sons, though largely disbanded, rose to the occasion engaged in a protest meeting of several thousand people. During the meeting, British troops fired into the crowd, wounding several people. Finally, the Sons triumphed by building another pole and refusing to allow the soldiers to patrol the streets. A minor incident, perhaps, but indicative of strong, latent resistance beneath the new surface of imperial harmony. For the moment, however, relations with Britain would continue to look rosy, and the Rockingham Ministry, spurred on by for the moment, however, relations with Britain would continue to look rosy, and the Rockingham Ministry, spurred on by Trakothic, Fuller, and the English merchants, managed to lower the molasses duty from threepence to one penny a gallon, another great boon to American trade and prosperity. Export duties on British West Indian sugar were removed, lowering its price on the American mainland. Still, American trade was at the same time hobbled by requiring that all colonial products shipped to northern Europe had to clear through British ports. Free ports were open to colonial trade in the West Indies, but here Alderman Beckford, the Fullers, and the West Indian merchants, backed as usual by Pitt, sharply opposed the end of their monopolistic privileges. Pitt's maneuverings on this issue, indeed, helped to pull down the Rockingham administration. Pitt's enmity was also fueled by his vehement opposition to Rockingham's long-run plans for the repeal of the crippling restrictions on American trade embodied in the Navigation Acts. The Whig idol of peace and non-interference was indeed doomed to be only an interlude, though a highly important one. The king, more eager than ever to dump the Whigs, but anxious to avoid the resurgence of Grenville, selected William Pitt to head the cabinet in August 1766. The king could now select Pitt as head of a Tory imperialist cabinet, while the deluded Americans would cheer the appointment of a supposed libertarian and champion of the colonies. Pitt's maneuverings and intrigues had finally paid dividends. His appointment was in fact hailed by the misguided Americans, but the colonists were not to remain under illusions about William Pitt for very long. Volume 3, Part 5, The Townsend Crisis, 1766-1770 Volume 3, Chapter 35, The Mutiny Act Though the Stamp Act crisis was over, an important irritant in Anglo-American relations remained. During 1765, Grenville had passed the Mutiny Act, which gave the British Army the right to quarter its troops in private American dwellings. Originally, the troops were to be quartered in private homes, but the final bill, which Benjamin Franklin helped to draw up, limited houses open to seizure to inns, unoccupied buildings, and barns. 
The act also forced the colonial governments to furnish the soldiers with specified supplies. At the time, Franklin proudly proclaimed for the amended bill. Two years later, however, amidst colonial resistance to the measure, he had a convenient lapse of memory about his role in the affair. The object of the Mutiny Act was to conscript the houses of the colonists so as to allow large bodies of British troops to be stationed in the seaports, since any possible enemies of the colonists were on the frontiers. The purpose of quartering troops in the seaports could only be to intimidate and coerce the colonists. For this service, the colonists would be forced to yield their dwellings to the redcoats. During the Stamp Act crisis, the Mutiny Act was forgotten and went unenforced. But after repeal of the stamp tax, problems under the Act came to the fore. Aside from the threat inherent in quartering the British troops, many colonists realized that the coercing of supplies was a tax in kind, every bit as bad in principle as any tax levied in money. Was this new tax in kind to perform the work of the hated stamp tax, to compel the Americans to pay for British troops amongst them? The earliest and most important resistance took place in New York, the headquarters for the British Army and its commander-in-chief, General Thomas Gage. New York refused to obey Gage's request for supplies under the Mutiny Act and insisted on complying only partially with royal requisitions while demanding that England recompense the colony. Other colonies hedged on following suit. Most did not comply fully, but did not challenge the laws openly, and voted some supplies. Understandably, there was, so soon after the vigorous resistance to the Stamp Act, a general desire for respite. Notwithstanding, when the Massachusetts Council voted supplies and quarters to a British artillery troop, its action was met by a storm of denunciation from James Otis and the Assembly, and Sam Adams asked whether the Mutiny Act is not taxing the colonies as effectively as the Stamp Act. Otis called for a purge of the Council, and the Assembly refused to vote supplies. But in the end, it voted for partial compliance. Partial non-compliance also occurred in New Jersey. There, the Assembly denounced the Mutiny Act as being as much an act for laying taxes on the inhabitants as the Stamp Act, but then voted funds. However, it officially evaded full compliance by vaguely instructing a new set of commissioners to act according to the custom of the province. South Carolina partially complied, but refused to include such specified supplies as salt and beer in its requisition. Apart from New York, the most principled resistance occurred in an unlikely, because generally the least revolutionary, colony, Georgia. Georgia demurred on even partial compliance until its 1767-68 session, when it followed the course of its neighboring sister colony, South Carolina. To the new Tory administration in England, this partial defiance of the Mutiny Act was a red flag to the English bull. Now English troops, as well as Parliament, were being defied. The new Prime Minister, a supposed friend of American liberty, 
William Pitt, now the Earl of Chatham, lost no time in displaying his true feelings toward the colonies. Bolstering Pitt's anger towards Americans was a petition of 240 New York merchants in late 1766 asking for free trade and for the virtual removal of the restrictive trade and navigation laws. Arch-mercantilist and imperialist that he was, Pitt responded by inducing Parliament in the Restraining Act of June 1767 to suspend the New York Assembly completely until it was brought to heel and complied with the Mutiny Act. Other British Tories ranted and raved even more aggressively than Pitt. Grenville was hailed in Parliament as a prophet of the dangers of appeasement. The Duke of Bedford and his clique shouted for more regiments to be sent to teach the New Yorkers a lesson. William Pitt had scarcely assumed the ministry, however, when his chronically intermittent insanity took hold, and he lost de facto control over the course of the English government. Stepping into virtual power was a flashy playboy opportunist and unstable epileptic, the renegade Whig Charles Champagne Charlie Townsend, Chancellor of the Exchequer in the Pitt Cabinet. This embodiment of opportunism, who had opposed repeal of the Stamp Act, soon decided upon a tough imperialist line toward the colonies. Part of this line was the crackdown on the New York Assembly. Here Townsend pursued a far shrewder course, for example, than Bedford, who wanted to send a military force to crush the resistant colonies. Townsend saw that this could only unite the colonies once again into another and perhaps successful rebellion. If, on the other hand, one colony alone were singled out for suppression, then would not the other colonies be too short-sighted to rally round? New York as the most important and most defiant colony on the mutiny issue, was the obvious focal point. In making his move, Townsend decided on suspension of the assembly rather than outright military action. He was backed by Pitt, Grafton, Camden, and Shelburne. In the cabinet, only the redoubtable liberal General Conway opposed the measure as coercion of the Americans. The potential crisis over New York was eased when, at the same time that Britain was cracking down, the Assembly itself was deciding to surrender. Over the opposition of the Radicals, and by only a single vote, the Assembly decided to comply fully with the Mutiny Act. Parliament's order for suspension never had to be enforced. New York capitulated easily and with it the bulk of American resistance to the Mutiny Act. One reason for New York's flagging courage was the failure of two of its neighboring colonies, Connecticut and Pennsylvania, to give it any support. Connecticut indeed quartered the troops that New York had refused to supply. Volume 3, Chapter 36 The New York Land Revolt Undoubtedly, one of the main reasons for the collapse of resistance in New York was the gratitude of the New York-landed oligarchy for the prompt use of British troops in suppressing a widespread tenant rebellion in 1766. By the middle of the 18th century, rising resentment against the manorial lords of New York 
recipients of huge government land grants, had begun to set off tenant uprisings against their masters. In 1750, a tenant settler revolt occurred in Dutchess County, and in the early 1760s, similar revolts erupted on the giant manors of Albany and Westchester counties. Discontent centered in the largest ones, the Big Four manors, and the movement of the New York peasantry culminated in the General Hudson River Rebellion or Leveler's Uprising of 1766. This revolt began over land in the Phillips Manor, Highland Patent, in southern Dutchess County, now Putnam County, where Phillips tenant settlers, largely from New England, concentrated in the eastern end of the county, were buying their land titles from the local Indians and ignoring the Phillips land claims. By 1756, the Phillips proprietors had seized the lands from the Indians and had brought ejectment suits against the rebellious tenants. In 1763, the tenants renounced the Phillips leases and refused to pay rent to their designated landlords. A chancery court case reached trial in the spring of 1765, but the judges including members of the Colden, Smith, and Delancey families of the New York oligarchy, were all great landlords. One judge, William Smith, was even connected with the Livingston family, which was involved in similar lawsuits with the Indians. Not only were the judges packed against the Indians and the tenants, but the grand Indian sachem, Daniel Ninham, was unable to retain a lawyer, because every attorney in the province had been bought by the landlords. Furthermore, not only was Ninham not allowed to speak in court, but the tenants were ordered arrested for the high crime of depriving the crown of its due inheritance. And while Ninham appealed to England, Van Rensselaer took ejectment action against many of his tenants claiming Indian titles. The settler cases were brusquely thrown out by the courts, except for those won by the Phillips proprietors on the strength of obviously forged bills of sale from the Indians. Deprived of their lands by the aggression of packed and landlord-dominated courts, the tenants looked for other means of defending their property. At the end of 1765, the tenants of New York undoubtedly inspired by the stamp tax fight for liberty, decided to strike out for liberty for themselves. The Phillips settlers advertised publicly for tenants to meet in order to reinstate the evicted tenants by force. The Dutchess County rebels moved to stand by each other with lives and fortunes to force their landlords to grant them security of tenure and at least to lower their rents. Their main methods were by refusing to pay rent and defending themselves against any forced ejections. They pledged to rescue any tenants arrested for refusing to pay rents. Recalcitrant tenants were now forced to join the rent strike. William Prendergast, one of the more prosperous tenants, was chosen as leader, and militia companies were formed. Judges were forced by the rebels to swear never to prosecute them. In the spring of 1766, the Leveller rebels on the Van Cortlandt Manor in Westchester refused to pay rent, 
and demanded their land in fee simple. When three of them were arrested by the New York government, over a thousand assembled Westchester tenants threatened to rescue the prisoners from the New York City jail. The Duchess rebels, who had been leery of the radicalism of the Westchester movement, now eagerly joined in the demands for rescue. The armed tenants marched on the city, naively expecting aid from the New York Sons of Liberty. When this help never materialized, the tenants disbanded and returned home before reaching the city. As the conflict polarized, the alarmed governor, Sir Henry Moore, called out the militia to suppress the tenants. Five hundred rebels now gathered and threatened to burn the house of Pierre Van Cortland if he did not grant their demands. A mob of five hundred also freed John Way from a Poughkeepsie jail where he had been confined for non-payment of rent. But a show of military force and a proclamation for the seizure of tenant leaders managed to disperse the rebels. The Dutchess County rebels, led by William Prendergast and Samuel Munro, moved against the Phillips proprietors. At Livingston Manor, several hundred leveler rebels marched on Livingston's house, threatening to destroy the Lord and his property unless they were at last freed from rent and taxation. They were dispersed, however, by an armed Livingston troop. Seventeen hundred armed rebels also fought at Van Rensselaer Manor. By the summer of 1766, jail rescues of tenants flourished, throughout the eastern Hudson Valley. Despite proclamations and orders for arrest for high treason, the provincial government could not begin to suppress the rebellion. The militia, including many small farmers, proved completely unreliable, and British troops had to be called in by the governor to quell the uprising. Ruthless suppression by the pillaging British troops continued for four months. Finally, about eighty of the rebels were captured, including the great leader of the Phillips Rebellion, William Prendergast. Significantly, so far was Prendergast from being a radical partisan of debtors or heedless of the property rights of creditors that he made it clear that payment of debts in general must be strictly enforced. Only debts for the unjust exactions of quasi-feudal rents drew Prendergast fire. Prendergast and the eighty other or so rebel leaders were brought to trial. The judges were all great landlords and land speculators. Moreover, two of the judges were directly related to the manorial lords involved in the struggles. The rebels were indicted on charges of riotous assault and some for rescuing prisoners. They were variously sentenced to fines, imprisonment, and the pillory. Prendergast's trial was different. His indictment was for high treason. Prendergast, highly popular in the colony and known to be a sober, honest, and industrious farmer, was ably defended by his wife, Mehitabel Wing. At one point, the prosecutor moved to oust Mehitabel, lest she might too much influence the jury by her very looks. 
The court sharply remarked that they might as well cover the prisoner with a veil, lest the distress painted on his countenance should too powerfully excite compassion. The jury quickly brought in a verdict of guilty, with a recommendation of mercy, but the court sentenced Prendergast to be hanged and quartered. Meanwhile, butchery continued in the field, where British troops burned, pillaged, and plundered the still-recalcitrant Philip's tenants. Dispossessed Van Rensselaer and other tenants fled to Massachusetts and Connecticut, where they continued their quest for the land via guerrilla warfare, aided by Massachusetts and the Indians. Because of the great popular sympathy for Prendergast, the sheriff could find no one willing to carry out the brutal sentence upon him, despite the sheriff's promise to disguise and reward the collaborator. Finally, after keeping Prendergast in prison for several months, the Earl of Shelburne, Secretary of State for the Southern Department, recommended a pardon in view of the prisoner's great popularity, and the king agreed. Prendergast, incidentally, had bravely refused several chances to escape from prison in order to spare his family from having their property confiscated. He now returned home to great rejoicing. As for the rebellious settlers, many of them left either for cheap and available land in virtually unsettled Vermont or for nearby Massachusetts. The Indians, despite the Crown's sympathy for their land claims, were forced to plead their case before a packed court, a council consisting of great landlords, some of them directly involved in the dispute. The Indians could not find a lawyer in the province. Their witnesses were arrested, and judgment was concluded against them. The failure of the liberal forces in New York was the failure of groups like the Sons of Liberty to merge with the tenant liberation movement. But given the conditions of the day, no further link was possible between these two libertarian groups, for the landlord leadership of the struggle against British oppression could hardly join hands with their own tenantry. The zeal of the Livingstons for liberty always stopped well short of extending such liberty to their own tenants. Two, the bulk of the Sons of Liberty was urban and artisan, and had little appreciation of the problems of the tenantry, or perception of how the mutually beloved concept of liberty could have forged a link between the two movements. Hence the indifference, or hostility, of the urban radicals toward the tenants, the radicals even applauded the calling in of British troops. And hence the lack of enthusiasm among the New York tenants for the Sons of Liberty and their cause. A pity, since the tenants had been firm supporters of the Stamp Act Rebellion and were inspired by that very revolt to struggle for their own particular liberty. A grave split thus developed among the radical forces of New York weakening the whole resistance drive in that critical province. An example of this split was the case of John Warren Scott, an early founder of the Sons of Liberty, 
It is true that Scott was early suspended in control of the sons by such radical leaders as Isaac Sears, John Lamb, and Alexander MacDougall. But it is also significant that this merchant, land speculator, large landlord, and political ally of the Livingstons was viciously anti-tenant and was one of the personally interested judges who condemned Prendergast to death. On the other hand, an arch-Tory like Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Colden counseled against the massive use of force that crushed the tenants. General Gage chortled at the comeuppance being given to the rich and most powerful people who had fought the Stamp Act. Gage wrote trenchantly that these leaders had first sowed the seeds of sedition amongst the people and taught them to rise in opposition to the laws. Volume 3, Chapter 37 Passage of the Townsend Acts The Mutiny Act was one of the lesser of the major irritants imposed by the Pitt-Townsend administration. In early 1767, Townsend, with the consent of Pitt, decided to crack down on the Americans by making use of Franklin's strained distinction between internal and external taxation of the colonies. Townsend decided to levy external duties on the colonies and to execute the law by ending salutary neglect and by instituting measures to enforce imperial customs and trade regulations. These were the Townsend Acts of 1767, which were passed at the end of June and which would become effective on November 20. Designed to bring in 40,000 pounds annually, the most fateful of these acts imposed new import duties on glass, lead, paint, paper, and tea. This money would be used to quarter British troops in the colonies, but primarily it would go for increased support of civil government, an obvious threat to the jealously guarded power of the colonial assemblies to appropriate the salaries of the executive officials. To ease complaints against the heavy tax burdens in England and to expand English power over the colonies, Townsend had decided to make use of the internal-external dichotomy. After all, he reasoned, if Americans, as he thought, could believe in this absurd distinction, let Britain make good use of this foolishness. Such proved to be the folly of England's taking Benjamin Franklin as representing the American people. Parliament, piqued at the Americans and eager to shift tax burdens on to others, overwhelmingly supported the Townsend Acts. Indeed, the chief opposition came from the Tories, led by Grenville, who argued against the Acts for not going far enough. Among the Whigs, Edmund Burke, at this time one of their leaders in Parliament, led the opposition from the Liberal side. He astutely pointed out that the Acts were not essentially different from the stamp duties and that the Americans would resist the former as they did the latter. As a companion to the new duties, another Townsend Act radically increased the enforcement powers of British officialdom, 
Until this time, the various customs collectors and surveyors had been loosely controlled by commissioners of the customs in England. Now, a new five-man American board of commissioners of the customs was established at Boston to exercise direct central control of American customs and Trade Act enforcement. The idea for the customs board had been given to Townsend by his protege, Charles Paxton, surveyor of Boston, marshal of its vice-admiralty court, and one of the newly appointed commissioners. Another Townsend Act authorized the appointed Supreme Courts of the colonies to issue writs of assistance, general search warrants, to enforce the customs regulations. A companion measure to increase the effectiveness of admiralty court enforcement took effect the following year. It expanded the number of super-vice-admiralty courts from the single Halifax court to four, each of which would have both original and appellate jurisdiction in its own region. These courts were now located at Halifax, Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston. Volume 3, Chapter 38 The Non-Importation Movement Begins The arrogant encroachments of the Townsend Acts immediately rekindled American resistance to British oppression. With the exception of tea, much of which was handled by the British East India Company, the commodities taxed by the Townsend Act were all manufactured products imported almost exclusively from Great Britain. The Americans therefore decided to employ the non-importation weapon, which had proved so effective in pressuring the British merchants to have the stamp tax repealed. A non-importation boycott promised to be the best means of fighting the Townsend duties as well. Boston, the major port for reception of the newly taxed goods, was a natural point of origin for the resistance, and this vigilant and libertarian-oriented town did not disappoint anyone's expectations. The first public resistance came in the Boston Town Meeting of October 28, 1767, led by James Otis. The meeting drew up a lengthy list of British products that Americans were to pledge themselves not to purchase after the end of the year. Colonists were to patronize local manufacturing instead. Copies of the resolutions were sent to all the towns in Massachusetts and to the principal towns in the other colonies. Twenty-four Massachusetts towns backed Boston's action enthusiastically, with only Salem refusing. The following month, Boston petitioned for the constitutional rights of the colonists against the new duties. This original phase of the non-importation movement was organized by Massachusetts town meetings and pledged the public not to consume certain British imports. These actions were partially spurred by a commercial depression triggered by the restrictions and burdens of the Townsend Acts. Clearly, they would help those caught by the Depression to retrench their expenses and hence their purchases of imported goods. Massachusetts towns were not alone in following Boston's example. Rhode Island, in fact, not only followed, but went one better. On December 2, a Providence town meeting pledged the town's merchants 
not to import a list of imported goods after the first of the year. Such a pledge of a non-importation boycott by merchants was far more concrete and finely edged, and far easier to maintain than a vague and unwieldy pledge by the mass of consumers. Providence's action was really the first effective move for a mercantile boycott to pressure England for repeal. Any merchant failing to sign or to conform to the boycott was himself to be boycotted by the people. Two days later, Newport followed suit, and then small Rhode Island towns. In Connecticut, town meetings led by Norwich adopted non-consumption agreements after the pattern of Boston's. Historians have made much of the fact that popular resistance to the towns and duties early took the form of boycott agreements, whereas resistance to the Stamp Act had stressed armed rebellion. This has been interpreted as a significantly conservative shift led by merchants fearful of popular mob actions. But this view ignores the crucial difference between the two threats, the stamp tax being internal to all colonial transactions had to be fought by dismantling the new Stamp Act bureaucracy and then immobilizing the stamped paper. This could be done only by the armed action of the aroused people. But the Townsend levies reverted to the more orthodox import duties, and early mob action would have been pointless. What was needed now was mercantile action, smuggling in defiance of the duties, and boycott pressure on English merchants. Mob violence at that point would have been ineffectual and even absurd, and hence was not embarked upon. As would soon be seen, neither the American liberal leaders nor the public had become more timid or conservative since the stamp crisis. Different methods of oppression simply called for different means of resistance. The change was one of tactics, not of spirit. As in the case of the Stamp Act, popular local action was supplemented by petitions and resolutions of the assemblies. A clarion call was sounded in the form of a letter drawn up by the indefatigable Samuel Adams and presented to the Massachusetts General Court. Adopted on February 11, 1768, the missive was sent out as a circular letter to the assemblies of all the other colonies. The letter acknowledged the power of Parliament to regulate the colonies, but categorically denied any power of taxation, internal or external. Furthermore, not only the constitutional, but the natural rights of Americans were charged to have been violated by such a tax, because the doctrine of consent to taxation was an unalterable right in nature ingathered into the British Constitution. Hence the Townsend duties were spurned, along with any move to make executive, including judicial, offices independent of assembly appropriations, and united action was called for. The Massachusetts Circular Letter was approved by the assemblies of New Hampshire, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maryland, Virginia, Georgia, and South Carolina, 
during the spring and summer, and Virginia reinforced it by a circular letter of its own against British taxation. Another powerful and widely influential statement of the American case against the Townsend duties was delivered by the eminent leader of the Pennsylvania Liberals, the young lawyer John Dickinson. Dickinson's Letters from a Farmer appeared in the Pennsylvania Chronicle around the turn of the year 1767-68. It denied the right of any parliamentary taxation and hence of the Townsend duties, although it conceded the right to raise a revenue incidental to regulation of American trade, as under the Sugar Act. Dickinson also called for a determined non-importation campaign to effect repeal of the Townsend taxes. It soon became clear that official petitions and individual protests and even uncoordinated local boycotts were not enough. More concerted and unified efforts were evidently necessary. On March 1, the merchants of Boston, led by Captain Daniel Malcolm, pledged to cease importing all goods from Great Britain for one year, provided that the merchants in New York and Philadelphia, the two other major American ports, would agree to join. Almost all the merchants of Boston signed this agreement, as did the merchants of Salem, Marblehead, and Gloucester, although the merchants of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, refused. After several meetings, almost every merchant and trader of New York agreed to import no British goods after October 1, 1768, and until repeal of the Townsend duties, provided that Boston continued its boycott and Philadelphia concurred. The Boston merchants accepted these terms in early May, but Philadelphia was a different story. The city of Philadelphia scarcely hit by the trade depression, was more heavily ridden with Tories than any other city in the American colonies. Here the Tory machine of Joseph Galloway was in control and was able to overrule John Dickinson. During meetings in Philadelphia in March and April 1768, Dickinson eloquently reminded the merchants of the numerous attempts by Great Britain to cripple the trade and the nascent manufacturing of the colonies. The Townsend Acts were an invasion of liberty, and liberty, property, and industry went hand in hand. Therefore, Dickinson urged the merchants to forego present advantage for principle and for long-run self-interest. But the Philadelphia merchants, taking their cue from Galloway, remained unmoved, and the great and imaginative project for a non-importation league of merchants from the leading American cities collapsed. Philadelphia's betrayal was a severe blow to the colonial cause. Notwithstanding, nearly all the merchants of Boston fearlessly agreed on August 1 to go it alone and to discontinue imports of all goods from Great Britain for the entire year of 1769, as well as imports of all goods on the Townsend duty list until those duties were repealed. The heroic example of Boston's merchants inspired others. Soon the merchants of Salem, Plymouth, and other towns followed suit. On August 27, 
the New York merchants decided to go far beyond their Boston confreres. Almost unanimously, they agreed to cease all importation after November 1, 1768, and until the Townsend duties were repealed. Any subscribing merchants violating the agreement would be publicly designated enemies to their country. Furthermore, the retail tradesmen in New York signed an agreement to refuse to buy from any merchants who themselves refused to sign or follow the merchants' agreement. The merchants of Albany and other towns of the province also concurred. The following April, New York's Assembly, on motion of Philip Livingston, merchant and leader of the liberal wing of the landed oligarchy, voted its thanks to the New York merchants for their patriotic decision for a boycott. Once again, in the fall of 1768, the merchants of Philadelphia were on the spot, and once again they coolly ignored the pressure for a boycott and confined themselves to their own petitions. Supporting a request to England by the Pennsylvania Assembly for repeal of the Townsend Act. Finally, however, the Philadelphia merchants pledged themselves to non-importation effective next spring if the Townsend Act had not then been repealed. With no sign of repeal in mid-March of 1769, the great bulk of the Philadelphia merchants at last agreed to import. Virtually no goods from Great Britain after April one, seventeen sixty nine, until the Townsend duties should be repealed. Any violator would be publicly stigmatized as an enemy of the liberties of America. Thus, by the spring of seventeen sixty nine, the three great ports had joined in a boycott until repeal. After a year of shilly-shallying, Philadelphia was at last permitting concerted American pressure upon Great Britain. The boycott movement was over the top. Volume Three, Chapter Thirty Nine: Conflict in Boston. Meanwhile, during 1768, the British government managed only to stiffen American resistance. By its frenzied reaction to the circular letter of Massachusetts, Charles Townsend had died suddenly in early September 1767. The Townsend Acts, of course, remained. The evil that he did lived after him. The subsequent reshuffle of the cabinet swung the balance of forces sharply to the right, with new power accruing to the followers of the arch imperialist Duke of Bedford. Townsend's post as Chancellor of the Exchequer was filled by the arch Tory Frederick Lord North, who also replaced the Liberal Conway as leader in the Commons. A critical new post of Secretary of State for the Colonies, in charge of colonial affairs, was filled by the imperialist Lord Hillsborough, formerly President of the Board of Trade. Hillsborough reacted in horror. To Massachusetts, circular letter. At the end of April 1768, he countered that mild action with a circular letter of his own, ordering the royal governors to dissolve any colonial assemblies that would dare to endorse the Massachusetts letter. For Massachusetts, Hillsborough ordered special punishment. 
its cherished assembly was not to be allowed to meet again until it repudiated its circular letter. Here Hillsborough had been anticipated by Governor Bernard of Massachusetts, who had condemned the circular letter as seditious and dissolved the assembly in early March. Lord Hillsborough's bombshell was issued too hastily on several counts. For one thing, it had been sent without consulting the cabinet, where it was severely denounced by the liberals. But the fat was already in the fire. Second, several of the assemblies had already endorsed the letter by the time Lord Hillsborough's order was received in America. In any case, Hillsborough's effrontery was enough to influence Americans once more against British tyranny. The colonies were incensed at this ferocious attack on their elementary right to petition, something enjoyed even by the slaves in America. Even someone as conservative as George Washington began to think of taking up arms in defense of American liberty. Repression had only lit the spark of resistance in America. Colony after colony rushed to commend the Massachusetts circular letter. The spirit of resistance even stirred in Pennsylvania, although here Joseph Galloway was able to table any endorsement of Massachusetts. Massachusetts itself stood firm. Otis demanded that Britain promptly rescind its actions. The Massachusetts Assembly on June 30 defeated the royal order to rescind by the overwhelming vote of 92 to 17. The Assembly was then promptly dissolved by Governor Bernard. Throughout America, the glorious 92 were hailed as heroes of American liberty, while the 17 rescinders were condemned as traitors and tools of Great Britain. Of the 17, 12 had been appointed officials under the royal governor. The town of Marblehead, Massachusetts, in unanimously voting to thank the 92, trenchantly warned that the British were seriously miscalculating in thinking of the resistance as the product only of a minority faction rather than of the bulk of the people. The radical Massachusetts engraver, Paul Revere, depicted the Seventeen in an influential cartoon as marching into hell. Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty mobilized against the rescinders, and no less than twelve of them lost their seats in the elections of the following May. Meanwhile, Boston was particularly scourged by the presence of the new Board of Commissioners of the Customs, which began operations at the end of 1767. The Customs Board soon found to its horror that salutary neglect had indeed been in operation. Violation of the imperial trade laws was rampant. Only six seizures of shipping had been made in New England since 1765, and of these violations, only one court case had been won by the Crown. Of the five other cases, two had been acquitted in Rhode Island under severe public pressure, and the three other ships in Massachusetts and Connecticut had been rescued by mobs. The Customs Board swiftly and radically transformed the Customs Service. 
the old customs officials who had settled into a mutually pleasant and profitable arrangement with the merchants, were dismissed and replaced by eager and, unfortunately, incorruptible Scotsmen. The new bureaucracy, led by a network of paid informers, swept down upon ships and managed to suppress the bulk of smuggling and hence of shipping in Boston. Boston's economic depression was thereby greatly intensified. The board did not succeed in suppressing smuggling and hence shipping in the other ports, but Boston was seriously crippled. The Massachusetts merchants were understandably embittered, and the customs commissioners were denounced as robbers, miscreants, and bloodsuckers upon our trade. Confronted with the oppression of customs and of navigation acts enforcement, the people of the colonies, especially in the northern seaports, were forced to turn once again to their most powerful weapon, rebellion in the streets. The armed rioting was directed against the oppression of the customs officials. First, ships and cargoes were recaptured from the clutches of the government under cover of night. Second, as a supplement, stern warnings were issued to customs officials and their hired informers. Throughout 1768 and 1769, stripping, tarring, and feathering by mobs proved to be highly useful devices for intimidating the enemies of the people. Informers quickly learned a valuable lesson and abandoned their underhanded profession, while customs officials promptly fled the colony. Despite arrogant demands by the governors, local sheriffs and magistrates happily refused to do anything to stop the people's resistance. And even when officials were foolhardy enough to track down the mob leaders and bring suit, the sympathetic juries invariably freed the resistance leaders. Prosecution of rebel leaders could only take place in common law courts, and here juries were eager to protect their heroes. The customs commissioners, like Lord Hillsborough and most of the British officialdom, were nothing if not hardline scorners of any appeasement of the colonies. In this they were aided by the arrival of a British man-of-war sent in answer to their request for armed help. The consequence, each step of the way, was to inflame and redouble the popular resistance. The Customs Board decided to repress the resistance by concentrating on and crucifying a man who was the leading financial angel of the Massachusetts radicals, John Hancock. Hancock, one of the wealthiest merchants in New England, symbolized the popular struggle. He had refused to lead a parade in honor of the commissioner's arrival and had snubbed them socially. More important, he had eagerly and energetically announced in the assembly that he would not permit any customs officials to board any of his ships. The first skirmish between the commissioners and John Hancock came in April 1768. He refused to let customs officials search his ship Lydia and backed up this refusal with the presence of himself and numerous followers. The commissioners tried to bypass a jury trial in prosecuting Hancock, but the Attorney General of Massachusetts ruled for Hancock 
and was upheld by the treasury in England. Thwarted here, the board struck again on June 10, seizing Hancock's sloop Liberty in Boston Harbor for loading without a license, a regulation hitherto unenforced. Knowing that for months no seized vessel in New England had gone unrescued by the people, the customs men towed the Liberty out close to the British man of war, Romney. To the people of Boston, this act of oppression was the last straw. The Townsend taxes, the repression by the commissioners, the attempts by the British Navy to impress Bostonians as sailors on the Romney, all fused to provoke mob action to defend their popular leader, Hancock. In addition, the new customs regime was hated personally by Americans. One commissioner was the execrated John Robinson, formerly of Rhode Island. Another, Charles Paxton, was a friend of Hutchinson and an organizer of the customs board. It was for Boston the time of the Stamp Act all over again. A mob threatened and set upon the customs officers, stoned their houses, and burned one of their pleasure boats. Leaflets were distributed urging the people to rise and clear the country of the customs officials. The commissioners promptly fled to Castle William and continued their operations from that privileged sanctuary. Four days after this successful riot, James Otis led a tumultuous town meeting in Boston. The meeting demanded that every British naval commander in Boston be under the orders of the Massachusetts General Court, that the Romney be removed, that the Customs Board be dissolved, that impressments cease, and that anyone who sought British troops in Boston be branded a traitor and a disturber of the peace. Impressments, incidentally, had been causing intensified bitterness and opposition in Boston during 1768. A Boston mob attacked boats from the Romney that were impressing fellow townsmen. Sailors were treated as criminals by the press gangs, and conditions and pay were poor on the naval vessels. The vice-admiralty court went so far as to acknowledge that Americans who killed a British naval lieutenant during impressment had killed in justifiable self-defense against an invasion of their persons. The customs commissioners, it was true, had been driven temporarily out of Boston. But what about the liberty? Under the protection of the Romney, Hancock's ship was quickly tried in the vice-admiralty court without benefit of jury and condemned. But this was only the first step in the vindictive plan of the commissioners, the liberty had been seized on a picayune technicality, but the commissioners were out to get Hancock personally. One of their officials, Thomas Kirk, suddenly changed his story and now told a wild tale of casks of Madeira wine being unloaded from the liberty without payment of duty. Despite a lack of evidence or cooperation of this testimony, the Crown proceeded to try Hancock and five others for this alleged violation. Hancock was jailed by the Vice-Admiralty Court, and his bail set at the huge amount of 3,000 pounds sterling. 
Hancock's trial was launched at the beginning of November 1768. British officialdom and the people of Massachusetts were now at the point of armed conflict, a point brought nearer by further requests for British troops to put down the Bostonians. News of the Boston resistance fanned the flames of an aggressive tough-line attitude towards the Americans. Tories thundered that measures must be taken to show those braggarts their insignificancy in the scale of the empire and to reduce the great metropolis of Boston to a poor smuggling village. Even Lord Rockingham regarded Boston's resistance as most dangerous and offensive. The fatal decision was made to send four regiments of troops to occupy Boston and to put down its virtual rebellion. Few yet had the courage or insight to call for escaping from Britain's dilemma by repealing the Townsend Act structure. Still, pro-American opinion among the English public was very much alive, and newspaper articles hailed the American spirit of liberty in struggling against oppression and unconstitutional coercion, and in fact mentioned that the bulk of the British people were wholehearted believers in the American cause. Furthermore, the eminent Whig, Sir George Saville, perceptively wrote Rockingham that it is in the nature of things that the colonies must assume to themselves the rights of nature and resist those of law, which is rebellion. And the great Newcastle remonstrated with Rockingham about coercing the colonies. For my own part, whoever is for it, I must in conscience enter my protest against it, and I hope our friends will well consider before they give in to so destructive a measure. Volume 3, Chapter 40, Wilkes and Liberty, The Massacre of St. George's Fields. The bonds between the popular libertarian causes in England and those in America, and in their respective struggles against the British government, were in fact greatly strengthened during the critical year 1768. For 1768 saw the resumption of the libertarian Wilkite movement in England, and its attendant rioting inspired and strengthened the American and especially the Bostonian will to resist, just as the English cider tax rebellion had helped to inspire the stamp tax resistance in the colonies. John Wilkes had been fretting in exile in Paris since the end of 1763. Wilkes was unable to persuade the sympathetic but shaky Rockingham ministry to let him back into England. It had enough troubles without him on the scene. Rebuffed coldly by Chatham, Wilkes took the bull by the horns and boldly returned to England in early February 1768, to find a highly receptive climate among the people. Unhampered by the crown, Wilkes stood for Parliament from the City of London, backed by Sir William Baker, Newcastle's friend and an alderman, and by numerous craftsmen, with the cry of Wilkes and Liberty. Defeated in London, the bulk of the Liberal votes having gone to their spokesmen Beckford and Tricothic, Wilkes decided to run from Middlesex County, in the general elections of late March 1768. 
His leading supporters in the election were the Reverend John Horne and the counsel at his trial in the old North Britain days, Sergeant John Glynn, M.P. The inspired public rode in hundreds of coaches, bedecked in blue and carrying Wilkes and Liberty cards, out to Middlesex to campaign. The eager Wilkites were anxious to be peaceful, but were confronted by a crowd supporting the Tory incumbent Sir William Proctor. Armed with placards proclaiming no blasphemers and no French renegade and hurling insults, the crowd briefly scuffled with the Wilkites. At the Middlesex election, Wilkes led the poll by a sizable majority. The joyous Wilkite masses celebrated by rioting for two straight days in London and Westminster, chalking every door with number 45 and breaking the windows of the leading Tories, including Lord Bute. Particularly roughly treated was the house of Wilkes's old enemy, Thomas Harley, now Lord Mayor of London, whose windows were broken to the shouts of Wilkes forever. Among those arrested as leaders of the mob were Matthew Christian, a wealthy gentleman from the West Indies, and Robert Chandler, a London tea broker. Notwithstanding the arrest, the Wilkites continued to riot and to control the streets for several nights thereafter. The sudden resurgence of John Wilkes in the mass libertarian movement posed a critical problem to the politicians of Great Britain. How should they react to the Wilkite movement? The range of opinion was what ought to have been expected. The new turn of events was favored by the Whig leaders. The Duke of Richmond hailed Wilkes's election as demonstrating to the administration that though they may buy lords and commons, yet they are not so much approved of by the nation. The venerable Duke of Newcastle agreed and wrote that Wilkes's merit is being a friend to liberty, and he has suffered for it. His old friend Earl Temple was still favorably disposed, and such as the Duke of Grafton and Lord Chatham shrewdly favored a royal pardon for Wilkes, still under the old sentence of outlawry, and letting him take his seat in Parliament, thus quelling the Wilkite agitation. But the right wing of the government, the Bedfords, including Lord Hillsborough and the king himself, wanted full punishment for the rebel Wilkes. The decision on how to handle Wilkes came before the government at the same time, April, that it was confronted with the Massachusetts letter against the Townsend Act. The British government saw the radical libertarian philosophical link between the two rebellions, and the instinct of the dominant Tories was to maximize royal power by crushing both. Not receiving a royal pardon, John Wilkes was tried for escaping punishment for his old offense. When the Tory judge Lord Mansfield imprisoned Wilkes without bail on April 27, the London crowd liberated Wilkes. But he put on a disguise to sneak back into prison in order to obey the royal command. In reaction to the arbitrary imprisonment, the Wilkite mobs rioted continuously for two weeks, especially outside the prison where Wilkes was being held. The prison lobby was demolished to the shouts of Wilkes and Liberty, but Wilkes himself at one point persuaded the crowd to disperse. 
On May 10, Parliament opened, and a large crowd gathered in front of the House to demand that Wilkes be allowed to assume his rightful seat. In St. George's Field, a huge crowd of twenty to 40,000 people from all over London gathered ominously in front of Wilkes's prison. Wilkes's old enemy, Robert Wood, Undersecretary of State, had persuaded the Secretary, Viscount Wymouth, to put a troop of infantry and cavalry into the fields that day. As the day wore on, the huge crowd and the troops confronted each other, each growing more restive. The crowd managed to paste on the prison walls a poem including the line, Venal judges and ministers combine, Wilkes and English liberty to confine. When the paper was torn down on magistrates' orders, the crowd became more radical, shouting not only, Give us the paper, and Wilkes and liberty forever, but also, No Wilkes, no king. Damn the king, damn the government, damn the justices. And, This is the most glorious opportunity for a revolution that ever offered. At this point, Justice Samuel Gillum read the riot act to the crowd, which responded with a volley of stones. One hit Gillum, and he ordered the soldiers to pursue the stone-thrower. The soldiers did not catch the assailant, but managed to kill William Allen, an innocent bystander. Finally, the soldiers were ordered to fire into the crowd, killing five or six and wounding fifteen, an act of brutality that became widely known as the Massacre of St. George's Fields. Many of those shot were innocent bystanders. One policeman wrote that the soldiers seemed to enjoy their fire. I thought it a great cruelty. The massacre did not succeed in repressing the people's movement. Two of the magistrates implicated in the massacre had their houses pulled down, but the magistrates called the troops into play and dispersed the crowd. Throughout the metropolis, houses of leading Tories and anti-Wilkites were attacked. The next day, several thousand sailors were posted before Parliament. With the encouragement of Parliament, the magistrates redoubled their repression, arresting 34 persons for participating in the riots. Of these, however, only a half-dozen were convicted in sentence. Of those arrested, the great bulk were of the poorer classes, mostly laborers and the rest artisans. Grand juries tried their best to strike blows for the people against the government. The jurors tried to indict the troops responsible for the murder of the innocent man mistaken for a stone-thrower, and indeed indicted Justice Gillum for willful murder, but these culprits were all acquitted. The charge of outlawry against Wilkes was dropped on technical grounds, but on June 18, Lord Mansfield, surrounded by troops, ordered Wilkes to serve a 22-month imprisonment on a variety of minor charges. The Wilkite movement was now in good shape. It had the memory of the authentic martyrs of St. George's Fields, and it had a leader whose continuing imprisonment was a standing reproach to the government and a standing inspiration and rallying point to the popular libertarian cause. 
the massacre of St. George's Fields, and the incarceration of John Wilkes were a goad and an inspiration to the liberal movement in America. As early as the first Wilkite agitation in 1763, Americans recognized their kinship to liberty and their enmity to the tyranny of British rule. In commemoration of Colonel Barre's famous pro-American speech in Parliament against the Stamp Act, Pennsylvanians named a new town Wilkes-Barre in honor of the two heroes. Now on June 6, 1768, a committee of the Boston Sons of Liberty, including John Adams, Benjamin Church, Joseph Warren, and others, wrote to the illustrious patriot Wilkes as the Friends of Liberty. Wilkes, Peace and Good Order The Bostonians hailed Wilkes's fight for the true British Constitution, commended John Dickinson's pamphlet to his attention, and sent a monetary token of their esteem. On July 19, Wilkes significantly replied from prison that his dedication to liberty had no local confines and that he was a friend to universal liberty. Wilkes warmly commended Dickinson's generous and rational Farmer's Letters, in which the cause of freedom is perfectly understood and never so ably defended. Such was the beginning of a more formal linkage between the libertarian movements in Britain and America, and of a voluminous correspondence between John Wilkes and the Boston Sons. The American press had closely followed the events of Wilkes's European exile and followed still more closely the drama of his return, imprisonment, and rioting by the people. In New London, Connecticut, in August 1768, the popular toast was, May we never want lack a Wilkes, and may Wilkes never want liberty. The speeches of Wilkes and his supporters were included among the radical ideas propagated by Adams, Otis, and the other popular leaders in America. The harsh treatment meted out to Wilkes and his followers helped intensify the feeling of resentment in America against the crown. The Wilkite uprising also greatly raised American hopes for any American resistance to British troops would be much aided by any distraction provided by the London radicals. Volume 3, Chapter 41 British Troops Occupy Boston Perhaps these events helped build the optimism of Sam Adams and Dr. Benjamin Church of the Boston Radicals, who called for resistance to any invasion by British troops on the ground that Britain was a tottering empire. The erratic James Otis also took heart. In late June, at a meeting of the Massachusetts Assembly, Otis extolled the memory of Oliver Cromwell and the execution of King Charles. Aroused from shock, Governor Bernard denounced Otis's speech as the most violent, insolent, abusive, treasonable declaration that perhaps was ever delivered. A few weeks later, Otis urged one and all to defend our liberties and privileges even unto blood, and to don the sword and musket in that cause. Thus, by the latter half of 1768, Americans were pursuing two courses of resistance against the exactions of the Townsend-Hillsborough program. The first was general. 
though it concentrated necessarily on the port towns, expansion of non-consumption and, especially, non-importation agreements in boycott of British goods. The second was largely limited to Boston. Resistance against a crackdown on illegal trade by the new Board of Commissioners of the Customs stationed there. This reign of rigid enforcement was primarily aimed at Boston. Against such measures, mere boycotting was not enough and had to be supplemented by direct mass action. The decision to send troops to Boston made that port the acute center of conflict in the colonies. Word of the decision to send an army of occupation to Boston galvanized the people of Massachusetts into action. Sparking the opposition to heights of revolutionary fervor was Samuel Adams. Rather than submit to military rule, Adams proclaimed, we will take up arms and spend our last drop of blood. He promised that thousands of Massachusetts farmers would sweep down to aid the embattled people of Boston. Rumors spread of two secret meetings of the Sons of Liberty, which plotted to incite the people of Massachusetts against the troops and to seize the Boston Harbor fortress of Castle William in behalf of the Sons of Liberty. With the May Assembly dissolved by Governor Bernard for disobedience, the Boston Town Meeting took the lead in organizing the resistance. Other assemblies that would eventually be dissolved by the royal governors for favoring pressure against the Townsend Laws were those of New York, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia. The town meeting was now the only legal body that could serve as a focus of resistance against Great Britain. Accordingly, the Boston town meeting met on September 12 in a session planned and organized by radical leaders Otis, Sam Adams, Joseph Warren, and other Sons of Liberty. The meeting again stressed that taxation without their representation violated the British Constitution and natural law and sending an occupying army to enforce such unconstitutional acts was all the more unconstitutional. The Boston town meeting also used the clever excuse of an approaching war with France, a cherished policy of Chatham and Shelburne to order all citizens to bear arms so as to resist any French invasion. The Bostonians knew very well whose invasion they had in mind. With a meeting of the assembly denied to it, Boston summoned a newly created convention of delegates from all the towns to take proper action. In this way, an extra-legal, revolutionary institution was created by the people of Massachusetts to aid them in their struggle. Meanwhile, preparations continued for armed uprising against the British invasion, Before it was removed by the council and sheriff, a beacon was set on top of Beacon Hill in Boston, which was to be burned as a signal to armed farmers to rally to Boston's aid. The Massachusetts Convention met on September 22, with most of the towns, 96 in all, sending delegates and instructions of support. Its composition was very similar to that of the regular lower house, 
it is not clear what the radicals desired the convention to accomplish. Having imitated the proscribed assembly by selecting the conservatively inclined Thomas Cushing as chairman, the convention confined itself to issuing a protest against the British troops. The arrival of these troops on September 29 caused the convention to disband in haste after doing little more than setting a useful revolutionary precedent by its very existence. Also, the Sons of Liberty talked of mounting an armed resistance, but it never materialized. It is doubtful that all-out armed resistance by Boston at that time would have drawn in other towns and colonies, and an isolated Boston uprising would have had very little chance of succeeding. The Massachusetts Council, the town of Boston, and later the new Massachusetts Assembly refused to permit the British troops to quarter in the town, but General Gage quartered them there nevertheless. The council was controlled by the House and by the popular forces, and the governor could not dismiss any magistrates without its approval. With the military refusing to enter civilian disputes, the popular Liberal Party still controlled the town of Boston. Furthermore, despite Herculean efforts, smuggling was still far from being stamped out. The settling of an armed occupation did not cow the town or the province. The liberals swept the Massachusetts spring elections of 1769, and Boston condemned the British and praised the American merchants for their boycott of British goods. A distinguished liberal congregational minister, the Reverend Samuel Cooper of Boston, wrote that the entire province was united in its stand against the British troops and the Townsend Acts. The radical-dominated assembly proceeded to purge four Tories from the council. The conservatives were now routed from the assembly and in the court of public opinion. The popular liberals won another signal victory in the winter of 1768-69 in connection with the prosecution of their leading merchant, John Hancock. In his trial for smuggling, Hancock was defended by the brilliant young Boston lawyer, John Adams, who moved from technical issues to the unconstitutionality of the statute, since the colonies had not been represented in Parliament and the unconstitutionality of trial without jury. As months went by in the lengthy trial, Thomas Kirk became an increasingly flimsy and untenable witness, and John Hancock became a hero among the press and throughout the colonies. Finally, at the end of March 1769, the prosecution dropped the case. Hancock was free, and the popular forces had triumphed again. Volume 3, Chapter 42, Non-Importation in the South Undoubtedly, the coercion against Boston helped to expand the non-importation movement, and it had, by spring of 1769, induced the merchants of the three great American ports to adopt such boycotts. From New England, New York, and Philadelphia, the boycott movement now spread to other colonies. However, the situation in the South, especially the tobacco colonies of the Upper South, was more difficult than in the North. 
In those southern colonies, commerce was conducted mainly by English and Scottish factors or independent merchants. These were not likely to turn against Great Britain and their own possibilities for trade. In the South, therefore, there was a tendency to stress non-consumption agreements, as in the early New England boycotts, and thus to go over the heads of the merchants to the people. The boycott movement was led by the leading consumers in each province, the large tobacco planters. In Virginia, organizers of the boycott were the large planters George Washington and George Mason, joined by Peyton Randolph, Richard Bland, Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, and Richard Henry Lee. When the House of Burgesses met in May 1769, it proclaimed that it alone had the right to levy taxes in Virginia and attacked Britain's reaction to the Massachusetts circular letter. It also denounced a British threat to haul Massachusetts patriot leaders to England to stand trial for treason. When the Virginia governor dissolved the House in reaction to these resolutions, the members met privately on May 18 and formed the Virginia Association, pledging non-importation and non-consumption of all British goods subject to a duty, with the exception of paper, as well as of a long list of imported fineries. The agreement was devised by Mason in Washington, and Randolph was selected chairman of the association. Back in their home counties, the planters persuaded many of the public to sign the agreement. In neighboring Maryland, the merchants of Baltimore joined their confreres in Philadelphia to adopt a non-importation agreement at the end of March. Outside Baltimore, however, the traders and factors refused to join, and so planters led the way in bypassing them, signing a non-importation agreement in Annapolis and Anne Arundel County on May 23rd. Most Maryland counties soon followed suit, and this led to the Annapolis leaders calling a meeting of merchants, traders, freeholders, mechanics, and other inhabitants for June 22. The Maryland Association added more luxuries to its taboo list. It also went beyond previous agreements by pledging a business boycott of all persons not adhering to the agreement. Such were to be treated with contempt as enemies to the liberties of America. The largest mercantile town in the South was Charleston, South Carolina. But Charleston lagged badly in joining the boycott movement. The mechanics, artisans of Charleston and the planters of the province, favored resistance, but the merchants proved apathetic. Receipt of the circular letter of the Boston merchants in the fall of 1768 galvanized the South Carolinians, and the Charleston artisans won seats in the assembly on the cry of supporting the glorious 92 anti-rescinders of Massachusetts. The leader of the South Carolina boycott movement was the noted merchant planter Christopher Gadson, who welded the planter-artisan alliance. Spokesman for the alliance was the Charleston, South Carolina Gazette, printed by Peter Timothy. In early February, Timothy urged non-consumption of imports on the people of the province, 
and printed letters by planters urging such a boycott as a means of bypassing the reluctant merchants. Charleston artisans met around the Liberty Tree in March, calling for non-importation. By mid-June 1769, societies of gentlemen had sprung up in Charleston, pledging themselves to buy no British goods that could be manufactured in America. Thus, rich and poor united in favor of resistance. Still, despite the army in Boston and the widespread non-importation movement throughout the colonies, the Charleston merchants hung back and did nothing. The time had come for sterner measures by the popular liberal forces. Accordingly, Christopher Gadsden kicked off a new phase on July 22 with a denunciation in the Gazette of importers of British goods, most of them newcomers in the colony. Gadsden and Timothy pushed for a formal non-consumption agreement, one pledging an all-out boycott of all imports from Great Britain until the Townsend Acts were repealed. A boycott was also threatened of all citizens who did not sign the agreement within a month. Heading the struggle for a boycott was Christopher Gadsden, accused of advocating independence for the American colonies. Gadsden replied, that independence would be bad, but added that losing their rights and liberties would be far worse. Aiding Gadsden in the fight were his old colleague at the Stamp Act Congress, Thomas Lynch, and the radical planter, John Mackenzie. The original non-consumption agreement was also signed by 25 members of the South Carolina Assembly. On July 3 and 4, 230 mechanics of Charleston met under the Liberty Tree and signed the agreement, and even strengthened it by adding a pledge to buy no British goods from transient traders and to import no slaves from British traders. Some of the mechanics also proceeded to pledge to deal only with merchants who signed the non-importation agreement. The merchants railed at these agreements as worse than those of a despot, ignoring the vital distinction that such boycotts were purely voluntary decisions rather than coercive acts backed by the state or by any other force. Reluctantly, the merchants were dragged to the radical position. At first, on July 7, they signed their own weaker non-importation agreement, limiting the boycott to the year 1770 and permitting certain articles to be imported. Further friction and severe pressure finally brought the merchants around. A joint committee of merchants, planters, and artisans drafted a uniform agreement, and on July 22, Christopher Gadsden triumphantly read this final agreement to a great audience under the Liberty Tree. Over 400 signers in this general meeting of inhabitants formed an association headed by a 39-man general committee of 13 representatives, each of merchants, planters, and artisans, to supervise the workings of the agreement. The joint agreement was largely a victory for the radicals. Signers agreed to import no goods from Britain, to maintain previous prices, to buy no imports from transient merchants or Negro slaves for a year's time. 
Any non-signing South Carolinian would be boycotted, and any violator was understandably to be contemptuously advertised as being inimical to American rights. Of particular importance was the pledge to continue the boycott not only until the duties were repealed, as was usual, but also until repeal of the entire Townsend Act structure, including the Customs Board and the new powers of the Vice-Admiralty Courts. Most enthusiastic of the advocates were the artisans, who, it must be noted, had a distinct economic interest in non-importation. As local manufacturers of domestic products, they were the ones who stood to gain most from the patriotic boycott banning the products of their British competitors. Georgia suffered from the same occupational split on the Townsend measures as did her sister plantation colony. But a letter from the South Carolinians galvanized fraternal feelings in Georgia, and the radical, amicable society met at Liberty Hall, Savannah, and called a meeting of inhabitants. The timorous merchants of Savannah tried to head off the association movement, by proposing a weak substitute of their own, an agreement to boycott imports of only the dutied articles. But the mass meeting of September 19 followed the South Carolina principles closely and overruled the merchants without even a pretense of gaining the merchants' approval. North Carolina was still a holdout, with the merchants the main obstructive force, but the dam broke when Cornelius Harnett led the Sons of Liberty of Wilmington and Brunswick into non-importation resolutions at the end of September 1769. A province-wide association emerged after the manner of the Virginia Association a half-year earlier. The North Carolina Assembly adopted the Virginia Resolutions on Importation and was promptly dissolved by Governor Tryon. The assemblymen quickly met as private citizens, and on November 7, 1769, drew up an association for non-importation. The agreement was much like Virginia's. Violators, furthermore, were to be treated with the utmost contempt. Volume 3, Chapter 43 Rhode Island Joins Non-Importation One by one, the other colonies joined in the boycott movement. The grand jury and then all the freeholders of Newcastle County in Delaware followed Philadelphia's lead at the end of August 1769. In New Jersey, the Assembly, in mid-October, passed a vote of thanks to the noble conduct of the merchants and traders of New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania for stopping the importing of British goods. Mass meetings in Essex County and at New Brunswick pledged non-importation and a boycott of all non-signers and violators. Connecticut merchants heeded the appeals of their fellow merchants from the large port cities. The merchants in New Haven agreed in mid-July 1769 to purchase no British goods except for certain commodities excluded in the Boston and New York agreements. Violators were to be boycotted as enemies of their country. Merchants at Groton and New London followed suit in August. 
The farm-dominated Connecticut house in mid-October gave its enthusiastic approval of the non-import agreements. The boycott was joined by the towns of Wethersfield and Norwich at the end of the year. Merchants and some other citizens from all over Connecticut met in late February 1770 and drew up a uniform agreement for the entire colony. Violators were to be boycotted, whether they were individual merchants or entire provinces. Two continuing recalcitrants were Rhode Island and New Hampshire. Of these, Rhode Island, a leading mercantile center, was by far the more important. Rhode Island's merchants took the golden opportunity to reap trade while their fellows were renouncing profits in behalf of principle. Thus, Rhode Island imports of British goods grew during 1769, and much new trade in these goods was conducted in western Massachusetts. Providence Merchants and its town meeting, it is true, extended an old but loose non-importation agreement. Newport merchants, however, were far more stubborn. Severe pressure descended upon Newport from the other colonies. The Philadelphia Merchants Committee threatened to sever commercial relations. Boston shut off all trade with Newport, and Charleston was preparing to enter the fray. Even a non-importation agreement drawn up by Newport merchants at the end of October 1769 proved unsatisfactorily lax, and Philadelphia and New York merchants proceeded to boycott Newport. Finally, in late January 1770, Newporters surrendered and agreed to a strong non-importation agreement. By no means all Rhode Islanders, it should be noted, lagged behind in the resistance movement. As early as September 1767, an article in the Providence Gazette spoke eloquently of the natural rights of mankind, declaring it a self-evident truth that all were by nature equal in rights. The obligation to obey man-made laws rested on the consent of men. Therefore, it concluded, Parliament not only had no right to tax unrepresented Americans, it had no right to regulate them either. Leader of these logical advances in libertarian thought in Rhode Island was Silas Downer, a lawyer and a leader of the Sons of Liberty of Providence. In a speech to the Sons at the Providence Liberty Tree in July 1768, Downer while admitting allegiance to George III, denied the right of Parliament to make any laws whatsoever to bind us. He went on to apply this principle, denouncing royal post office charges in America as a tax and therefore illegal. Moreover, Downer attacked the British laws of trade and manufacturing as violations of the natural rights of men. At least one Rhode Island writer trenchantly called for extending the libertarian doctrine to one group often neglected by the Americans, Negro slaves. If the cry for liberty is sincere, why is not the principle extended to the Negro slaves at home, the writer challenged. The only way to prevent enslavement from abroad, he declared, was to end that hellish practice of enslaving another part of the human species, 
for Negroes were surely sons of liberty too. New Hampshire's failure to join the resistance had a simpler and far different cause. An agricultural province lacking a large trading town, this small royal colony was a virtual fife under the thumb of the Wentworth family. As merchants, landowners, and top executive officials in the province, this family, uniting formidable political and economic power, was able to dominate the affairs of New Hampshire for decades. At the apex of this cozy pyramid was Sir John Wentworth, the royal governor and the surveyor of the king's woods for all the colonies. Wentworth astutely named numerous new towns and counties in New Hampshire after his friends at the British court, for example, Rockingham, Grafton, and Hillsborough counties, and founded in 1770 a new college that he named after his friend, the Earl of Dartmouth. Also in 1770, eight of the nine members of the appointed council of New Hampshire as well as a judge and a clerk of the Superior Court, were members of Governor Wentworth's family. In this situation, no non-import association could be formed in New Hampshire.